This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. with another episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. I'm Kevin Kautzman, joined by, actually first, I have to, just in in the theater of the mind, I want you to insert random belligerent motivational screaming in German here now. <laughs> I, 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 I always do, Kevin. I always of course, do. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I open my mouth. The great Brad Kelly the novelist Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? V Gates Hoyta, my uh, hair. I'm great, man. How, how are you doing? I'm well. <laughs> I am going to use my mediocre German today on the pod. All right. I have been looking at the memoirs of our subject, Lenny Riefenstahl. And I'm just going to say, Control F Hitler. <laughs> That's uh, a lot of hits, right? That's a lot of, <laughs> lot of hits when you control F Hitler on Lenny Riefenstahl. Oh, I'm not even going to count. Oh, 344 results. 344 hmm. results, it appears. Um, yeah, so, how, how many pages is it? Uh, <laughs> the, the memoir? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, this memoir is 700-ish, oh, okay. under, just under 700 pages, 650 okay. pages. Okay. Uh, it is one of the finest memoirs I've read. And I'll explain, Excellent. I think, the reason why. Why would someone who had a very deep working collaboration with the Austrian corporal 
want to write a very exhaustive memoir. Why do you think that might be, Brad? Uh, I, yeah, I think you're trying to uh, redeem. She's trying to redeem her reputation in the eyes of the public. Would be my guess. I don't know much uh, about her, but very good. And and yeah. we're not going to get too far ahead of things. But first, a mm -hmm. little bit of housekeeping. Patreon. We are doing well. Mm -hmm. We could do better. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. You sign up. $5 gets you through the door. You get the bonus After Dark for every episode that we do. I'll tease the After Dark for Lenny here in a bit. I got some really good stuff from oh, the yeah. After Dark. Good. You get access to our Bookends Book Club. You can join us on Zoom and read these books that we have. You go to the website. The list is there, artofdarkpod.com. Up next is Aaron Gwynn. We're reading All God's Children. Aaron's going to mm -hmm. join us. If you don't want to join us on Zoom, you're not available, you're busy, or you're just not into it, you can, you'll, we record those. So you can also listen back after the fact. You get lots of great extra stuff if you sign up for the Patreon. And I, I have to say, the Patreon support literally keeps the lights on at this point. <laughs> I think if we were this deep into this pod and mm -hmm. not seeing, a new Some. patron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every day, every other day, sure, somebody might fall off. Hey, that's all right. Two people replace them. If we weren't seeing that, given the amount of labor that we do for this podcast, this is an effort pod. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that we would be continuing. That's not a threat. I'm not right. going to turn the car around. <laughs> right. But if you enjoy what we do, Please, please support us materially through Patreon. Brad and I have big dreams for the pod. We're doing our first Art of Darkness Live here in St. Paul, June 5th at Walden yeah, just Brewery. A few, just a few weeks from now. Yeah. It's coming up. We're going to do Fitzgerald Part 1. That's going to be, it's a free event. You just show up. You got to spend 10 bucks at Waldman Brewery. My theater company, Badmouth Theater Company, is going to do a theatrical presentation of the great Fitzgerald short story, Winter Dreams going to be a, a good time we're going to record it the tickets the to rsvp just go to badmouthtc.com i just got to hammer it again the patreon really genuinely if you're listening if you're subbed consider that five bucks a month it, it's not going to go in terms of content i, I don't mm -hmm. know like legitimately we we're taking that money we're using our precious time we're mm -hmm. buying books and we're preparing core episodes like this one you also want to get into the telegram uh, do you like pens? Are you a pen respecter? Do you like to talk high-end pens? Because if you join the chat room at, I love that chat room. It sounds like something <laughs> from another century. If you join the telegram t.me slash art of dark pod and you post your pick, if you could afford any pen after you sub for Patreon, you, you know, mm -hmm. now you're going to start putting money away from your, for your ideal pen if you hit the chat with that, yeah. you're instantly recognized as an Art of Darkness OG. Right. <laughs> we don't just talk about high-end pens in the Telegram, but it seems mm -hmm. to be a, a topic of conversation it, that it, comes up. It is. There's a surprising number of people who are really into pens, which is cool. I, yeah, we're yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah, and then, of course, you got to follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash art of dark, pro, dark pod. Tell us what we got wrong. Tell us what we got right. You can harass mm -hmm. Brad there. Brad mans that account. I man mm -hmm. the Patreon. Mm -hmm. And YouTube. Go and sub on YouTube if you want to see our faces. YouTube.com slash at art of dark pod. All right, that is housekeeping cool. out of the way. Let's start 
with the classic yeah. Art of Darkness question. And we can't forget the closer, but let's start with the, yeah. uh, and I don't know that I have the closer in my notes. Oh, no, I do. Okay, great. <laughs> what would Lenny, or <laughs> that's the closer. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> ah, time yeah. is a flat circle. What yeah, is time? Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm going to get it in. Well, okay, all right. Brad, what do you know about Lenny Riefenstahl? Uh, I don't know a whole lot. I know that a German uh, filmmaker, um, made uh, i believe triumph of the will made a film about i think it's the 1936 olympics i've never seen either of those so i don't honestly know much about them uh other than i know they are um they're one of these things where they do get some amount of respect from a craft standpoint but there's always kind of this asterisk that it's got something to do with the nazi party i i don't know I don't know much about her. I don't know how much of a partisan she was. I, I, I couldn't tell you a, a single word about her politics uh, personally. Um, I know she lived for a long time after World War II and was not sort of, she must have been uh, denazified or repatriated in some way because I don't think she, you know, she didn't spend the rest of her life in, in, in prison or anything. So, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I honestly, I don't know a whole lot about her. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot more. Very interesting, Brad, because I think that's kind of maybe the baseline knowledge mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. average American, maybe above average. I think we're above average, maybe above average American. <laughs> I'll, ask my, I'll ask my mechanic. Yeah, uh, right. What right. <laughs> Reef and yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> Reefer badness. Uh, yeah, but that that's a pretty fair base, baseline. And so okay. I think you're going to be surprised. And we are going to the heights of paradise to the depths of hell mm. in this episode. It is staggering. It is one of the, the most the most intense stories that I've encountered uh, covering the subjects for, for Art of Darkness. Uh, I can't wait to get into it. Yeah, looking forward so, to it. I'm going to tease the After Dark now. So After Dark for Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. I'm going to tell three stories. And I think this After Dark might go a little long because there's quite a lot of interesting stuff here. One, I'm going to tell the story of how Lenny had her film career saved by a mountain witch. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay. Good. Right. Uh, I'm also going to talk about when... Lenny wrote a screenplay or tried to write a screenplay with L. Ron Hubbard. LRH. LRH shows up in this episode. Can you believe it? That's crazy. And I'm also going to talk about the time she shot Mick Jagger. Like his wife. With a gun? With a camera. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. The direction this was going, it was like it could be going anywhere. So, right. Right. Yeah. No, the current Mick Jagger is a clone. He's the fifth Mick Jagger. Right. And she killed Jagger number two. No. Explains a lot. Right. Yeah. Right. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be dead. Keith Richards will still be rocking, rocking and rolling. Um, all right, and before we get into the bio, I just have to mention the source material. I'll use the Wikipedia and various online sources for the spine of the bio. I find that to be a very uh, sort of satisfactory way to do this. Wikipedia is not perfect, but at least at least it helps me construct the shape of a biography. Mm -hmm. uh, if, I, if I had typos in Wikipedia, 
Really? Do, be- do better, Wikipedia editors. And, and there's That's- also these like, well, they can only do so much, right? But there's there's obviously strange little constructions where you go, well, that's not exactly what happened. He, you know, she didn't receive a package. He brought it to her in the hospital, if, mm-hmm. if her memoir is to be trusted, which mm-hmm. brings me to the memoir. Mm-hmm. Now, this this entire episode is going to have an asterisk. Uh retweets are not endorsements, yeah. right? We are not Philistines. We understand that Lenny is a a bit of a third rail. There's mm-hmm. this is a very intense topic. We do we're gonna laugh. We laugh so we don't cry, but we do take this stuff pretty seriously. We get it. Mm-hmm. We understand. Yeah. Uh, there's a there was a document documentary that was made, which we'll talk about that she participated in, obviously called "The Wonderful Horrible Life of Lenny Riefenstahl." Oh, wow! And three hours long worth watching if you listen to this uh don't change that dial uh but if you listen to this and you're interested in her i would say the two pieces of media to consume would be that and then her memoir Mm. uh yeah and and uh they cover it we get it she worked she worked for hitler right right there's no what are what are we supposed to say about this perfect art of darkness subject yeah, I mean, to, to pretend these people don't exist doesn't do anybody. Uh, there's no benefit to that. No, right? And yeah. and you know, when when we were at Texas, where we met for for grad school, I I took a like an upper level undergraduate class from a great professor who, who grew up in the rubble uh, in mm. Germany, and it was his last class. He didn't tell us that it that it was his last class teaching after like 40 years of teaching. Wow. And, and it was incredible. I mean, we all applauded for him. It was, it was a really, really wonderful class. Mm-hmm. One of those classes where you go, wow, this is incredible. Uh, and we studied German cinema. And you, you're you going to watch this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of the points that I'll make throughout the course of this episode. Both uh, Triumph of the Will and Olympia are touchstones of cinematic technique for propaganda and the way that politics is presented they still refer to it and olympia absolutely transformed the way that sport is presented every time you tune in to a sporting event you're watching an echo of an echo of lenny riefenstahl's contributions to cinema and to sport and the 36 olympics are that was the first time they had the 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 torch relay, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. But then they lit the flame. Mm-hmm. Every time you watch that, Lenny was the first person to to put that on mm-hmm. camera, okay, and and display it. There's and there's an awful lot of new nuance here, uh, sure. and we'll get into not all of it. The mm-hmm. memoir is 650 pages, right. but we're going to get into a lot of it. <laughs> and I am going to lean heavily on the memoir context this is a woman a very very famous woman a household name certainly in europe Mm. certainly in deutschland and uh she's wrote this to rehabilitate her her image and to give like the comprehensive review of her of her life so occasionally we're gonna have like dueling memoirs like goebbels in his diary 
would say one thing, Lenny mm. would say another thing. I love the image of Goebbels' diary, like it's like a like a pink diary with a little locket. He's <laughs> right, he's, he's it writing just, in it. He's oh, laying on his oh, stomach with his feet oh, kicking. You know. <laughs> oh, I hope I hope uh, Adolf. I hope Adolf calls. I hope he calls tomorrow. <laughs> you know. Um, uh. Goebbels was a bit of a prankster too. <laughs> really? Discovered. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That somehow fits in <laughs> a maybe, weird maybe. way. Right, right. There's. We'll get uh, if I don't touch on it in the memoir because I've got her her early life. I'm going to dwell on the memoir. But there was a screening of some film. Ah, it was um, all quiet on the Western Front, hmm. uh, which Lenny knew the um, the fellow who wrote that, whose name escapes me off the cuff. But hmm. when they screened it, uh, Goebbels released a bunch of mice at the premiere as a kind of protestation which is very funny you think of all these like right dressed up fancy you know like dressed up for almost for like the opera people germans and then suddenly there's mice everywhere mice. so yeah oh oh that Goebbels. uh he's just uh yeah so he's he'll oh. he'll appear um interesting hmm. okay yeah yeah and then the other books that i that i'm principally gonna um rely on are so I have her memoir showing it for YouTube. Mm -hmm. I've got a book called Lenny, the life and work of Lenny Riefenstahl, Stephen Bach. Okay. And then I've got uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, a life by Jürgen Trimborn. Uh, But principally the memoir, because it's just so uh, well-written, frankly, it's like, you know, you pick up a book and you get a pay, you get a page or two in, and you go, "Ugh." Yeah. I, I grabbed another Lenny book and I I looked at it and I was like, "Oh, that's not going to be that helpful. This isn't even especially well written, like on a paragraph le level." Mm -hmm. Lenny's memoir, like mm -hmm. on the cover, I mm -hmm. I actually find this pull quote or this blurb a little clunky, but this is mm -hmm. from the New York Times book review, John Simon. An extraordinary life does not contain a single unspell binding page. I don't like unspellbinding, no. but <laughs> no. but it's true. It's like mm. it reads like a novel, and uh, she cool. was a genius. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this is a woman. I don't doubt if she had said, "I'm just going to write novels," she probably could have done it. Right. She was an autodidact, and this is going to bring me to a point I want to make before if I before I get into the the bio proper. What if I told you, and I, I wrote this down because I've been thinking about this. There was a woman born at the turn of the 20th century who had a breakout career as a dancer, starred in a series of popular films, like A-list celebrity, mm. um, couldn't dance, suffered an injury, couldn't dance anymore, and went on to direct two seminal films which continue to influence filmmakers and even define the way political events and sports are, are filmed. You'd think she'd be like a top girl boss mentioned right. like regularly, like Madame right. Curie as an inspiration. There'd be a, Google, there'd be a Google doodle of her on her birthday. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm just pulling up the, the Wikipedia here now. So I have it. Yeah. She was born. Yeah. At the turn of the century. And beyond all of that, you, you know, she's in it. You'd think she'd be propped up because those are, traditionally masculine domains mm -hmm. politics sports film mm -hmm. right and then later in life she would go on and do this extraordinary work 
photographing African tribes and oh, even okay. pioneering underwater photography. In fact, she was probably, and we'll cover all this, she was probably the oldest or one of the oldest active scuba divers in the world for a period of time. Okay. Right? You know how we have Chad's and we have Stacy's? She's yeah. like a top Stacy. Right. Top <laughs> Stacy. Just a boss. She's yeah. like Chad's are on notice. Wow. She's more Chad than most Chad's. Wow. Total wow. alpha boss lady. Yeah. One problem. She was friends with Adolf Hitler. <laughs> I don't like this. Like, I don't like this guy at all. What did Norm say? Hey, yeah. Oh, hold the yeah. fort. <laughs> yeah. Control yeah. F. Yeah. Yeah. And so there we go. And throughout throughout this, and I think we're just going to stop. We're not going to do any of these fumbling apologetics on her behalf yeah. or try to explain the association. <clears throat> we cover the dark side of dead artists. I didn't have to go looking for it here. Uh, she said... Like later in life, her one regret was meeting that man, meeting that man. Mm -hmm. um, well, and this is this is mm -hmm. we see this anytime we cover. A, 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 well, we haven't covered that many, but 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 I, I'm reminded of the Junger episode, the Ernst, Ernst Junger episode. Yeah, j just because you happen to be in the right in the same area, you do get a little bit of that guilt by association through the historical lens. But it's it's worth it's worth piercing through that to try and understand what was really going on these things, are, these things are so easy to say you know 60 70 80 years later say well i would you shouldn't have sure. done that right and it's right. like these things that aren't as yeah. obvious when they're happening what's ha what is actually happening 100 percent i think americans of our generation who lived through i don't know say iraq right like yeah. it's we're relitigating the meaning of that now mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm not trying to compare the two, but right. and yet it's there. So let's let's come to this with a bit of generosity and try to understand her, where she was coming from, how she got cut up, caught up in it, and uh, what happened. All right, let's get into it. Mm -hmm. Helena Bertha Amelie Lenny Riefenstahl was born in Berlin on the 22nd of August, 1902. Her father, Alfred Theodore Paul Riefenstahl owned a successful heating and ventilation company and wanted his daughter to follow him into the business world. Firmly middle-class family. Bourgeois. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Since Riefenstahl was the only child for several years, Alfred wanted her to carry on the family name and secure the family fortune. However, her mother, Bertha Ida Sherlach Riefenstahl, um, had been a part-time seamstress before her marriage had faith in Riefenstahl and believed that her daughter's future was in show business. And I'm going to give a little overview of the early life here, and then I'm going to get into the memoir. I got a ton of stuff from the early life because it's so fascinating. Uh, Riefenstahl had a younger brother, three years her junior, Heinz, who, had uh, who she described as quiet and withdrawn. Riefenstahl fell in love with the arts in her childhood. Total theater kid. Mm -hmm. She began to paint and write poetry at the age of four. She was also athletic and at the age of 12 joined a gymnastics and swimming club. Her mother was confident her daughter would grow up to be successful in the field of art and gave her her full support, unlike her father. And we're going to see how this played out. Like she would be taking dancing lessons secretly. Dad, oh. 
we're right in that period where, and she says it in her, in her memoir, like to her father, getting on stage and performing for strangers was one step above the gutter prostitution. Wow. Okay. Okay. We're in that period. And of course it's not anymore. Is it? No. We're, you were, we're, we're highly respected content creators. Brad. <laughs> oh, we, we are. Better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's good. I got that going for me at least. Yeah. So and it's really important here to understand who we're dealing with. And she doesn't really point at it too directly in her uh, memoir. I'm sure out of modesty. I mean, as modest as anyone can be writing a 650 page memoir of, about themselves, um, not autobiography, but she drove men insane. Yeah, well, I saw the, the picture of her from the 1930s here, and yeah, she was a she was an attractive woman, and so you add this clearly brilliant and physically talented. I mean, she's a dynamo. She was. She drove men insane. I believe it. Uh, and somebody, one of our uh, uh, friends from the pod on Twitter, was sort of pointing out possible corollaries between her and Marilyn, and I yeah. thought about thought about it a little bit, and. Lenny's upbringing was not nearly as Dickensian as Marilyn's, but they did kind of come up, up, you know, roughly at the same time. And we'll see Lenny dealt with casting couch stuff too in, mm. in Berlin. And there it is. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to it. Um, okay. So, Oh, one final thing before I, before I dive into her memoir, she would describe like so many people, Hitler as hypnotic. And he he obviously he had something going on that would compel people to listen and to follow and to uh, become attached and all the rest. She was projecting to a degree because she was whatever he had, she had some kind of feminine equivalent of it mm. without a doubt. Uh, so I think when in her case, it's a bit of game knows game, right? Uh, all right, so let's get into the memoir. There's so much to read and so much to do. How much time do you have, Brad? We're going to go long. Oh, it's going to be let's good. Do it. Let's all do right. It. <clears throat> I was warming up earlier. All right. Here she is talking about her childhood. As a young girl, I was happy growing up amid trees and bushes, plants and insects, a veritable child of nature, shielded and protected in an era undisturbed by radio and television. By the time I was four or five years old, however, I was beginning to enjoy dressing up and playing games of fantasy. I clearly remember an evening in the apartment on Prince Eugenstrasse in the wedding district of Berlin, where I was born. My parents were out. With the help of bedsheets, I transformed my brother Heinz, three years of my junior, into an Egyptian mummy, binding him so tightly that he could not move, while I turned myself into an Indian dancing girl by wrapping... Tula around my body and donning my mother's long lilac evening gloves. The moment I rather dreaded came when my parents returned and my astonished mother stood staring at this scene, especially at the mummified body of my baby brother. She confessed to me later, however, that she too had wanted to be an actress, but instead had married at the age of 22. Dear God, forgive me a beautiful daughter who will become a famous actress. Unfortunately, or so it seemed, the girl born to her on the 22nd of August, 1902, was ugliness itself, wizened, cross-eyed, and with thin, wispy hair. Having been told that my mother wept bitterly when she first saw me, 
I found small comfort in the assurances of cameramen later on that my slightly squinting gaze was perfect for the two-dimensional medium of film. My father, Alfred Riefenstahl, was a businessman, the owner of a large heating and ventilation firm who, where work was concerned, was modern and far-sighted. Before World War I, for example, he installed modern sanitation in many of Berlin's buildings. He met my mother, Bertha Sherlock, at a fancy dress party. And like her, oh, Art of Darkness Live is 100% a fancy dress party. <laughs> the yeah, fancier... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, <laughs> it's Fitzgerald. Yeah. So it's, it's Fitzgerald, yeah. yeah. We should get tuxes. Okay, yeah. in any case. Um, and like her, he loved the theater. Yet, although they went off into plays, he considered the acting profession to be not quite respectable. Hmm. Actresses especially were held in deep suspicion of being no better than they should be. The one exception to this was Fritzi Masary, a famous soubrette whom he adored and whose performances he never willingly missed. All those actresses, except Fritzi, she's the good one. <laughs> My father was a tall, powerful man with blonde hair and blue eyes, full of joie de vie, an impetuous nature, and very strong-willed. He could easily lose his temper if he did not get his own way, especially with my mother and me. But people, as a rule, did not dare to contradict him. He took charge everywhere, among his relatives or among his friends he hunted with, bowled with, played cards with. He had the final say about anything concerning his wife and children, no matter how strongly my mother argued her own point of view. As a young man, he had dabbled in acting and had a good voice, but he never dreamed that his daughter might develop similar inclinations. Uh, this is a good point to go through here. The first play I ever saw as a child of four or five was an unforgettable experience. It was a Christmas. It was at Christmas and the play was Snow White, but I can't remember the name of the theater in Berlin. My excitement was at fever pitch on the train ride home. And I can still recall how the other passengers finally covered their ears and begged my mother to make her hysterical child stop babbling. I was fascinated by the very idea of the theater and of all that mysterious world behind the curtain. As I grew, so did my curiosity, and I would bombard with questions anyone I could find who had anything at all to do with the stage. In fact, I was generally inquisitive. At school, I was probably the only pupil who constantly earned bad marks for conduct because I so often interrupted the teacher with questions. And my poor father was struck for an answer when I insisted that he tell me exactly how many stars there were in the sky. Mm. Yeah. So interesting stuff. She yeah. goes on to talk about how she had this kind of relationship with the moon and the stars. She had this feeling of that uh kind of energy so all right a little more here her 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 memoir is pretty um spare when it comes to world war one I. I think because right. she was so young but it just she doesn't she mentions it you'd have to mention it but yeah i, I mean the she's impression. like a teen she'd be like a teenager when it starts yeah i don't think her mm. father obviously her father didn't die in it mm. her brother was too, too young, young. yeah mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. So here's a little bit more. Uh, in the years before World War I, sport did not feature much in the lives of ordinary people, and men such as Jan, the father of gymnastics, were mocked by intellectuals and caricatured by cartoonists. Oh, later we'll come to Susan Sontag and her uh, assessment of the, the African, the Nuba tribe photography as being fascist, right? Oh. Intellectuals are inclined to think that sport is fascist. 
Yeah, what is up with that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, mm, I, yeah, I can't imagine why why someone like Susan Sontag would think of peak athletic performance as implicitly fascist. Mm. Interesting. We'll get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, however, saw some of his, this yawn gymnast uh, performances and greatly admired him. So although I was a dreamy child, I was encouraged from a very early age to be athletic. In his own youth, my father played soccer in Rixdorf and in later life became interested in boxing and in horse racing. I was only five years old when he made me a life belt out of reeds and threw me into the water. Uh, so, yeah, so she was she had a, an early interest in sports and then later they would they would go to the track quite frequently. Uh, the the jockeys were kind of um uh, they were like little celebrities, you know, yeah, literally yeah. little celebrities. Right, yeah. Right. Cool. All right. I've got more here from the memoir. Uh, oh yes, this is good. So this is about her maternal grandfather, I believe. Yeah. Just to give you a little background on the family here. Who yeah. are we dealing with? Right. Who right. are we dealing with here? All right, yeah, I'm always see. interested in the sort of heritage, like the the back a couple generations with the with where they're coming from, what their familial context is. It's always interesting. Yeah, and for me, it's so intoxicating because this is a totally different world. We live in a completely different reality. If you dropped mm-hmm. any one of these people into like New York City right now, they right. Would, their minds would absolutely be blown. It'd be like Blade Runner for them. Yeah. Um, my maternal grandparents came from West Prussia, but moved to Poland be, uh, because my grandfather. Oh, uh, they're uh, evangelical Protestants. So there, there was a. I did a little research into this. She would be confirmed at I think sixteen. Uh, th- I my understanding of it is that the Calvinists and the Lutherans kind of merged during this period, or they attempted oh, okay. to merge them into like a general kind of German Protestant church. Okay. Uh, All right. Talking about her maternal grandfather. He was a master builder. When his first wife died after giving birth to my mother, her 18th child, he married the children's nanny and had three more children. Chad. (laughs) Wow. Lee. Cow. 21 children in all. Whoa. He had an army, had a platoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. When Eastern Poland was annexed by Russia, he moved back to Berlin, having no desire to become a Russian citizen. The family had to live very frugally, for by now, my grandfather was too old to find work, though he looked marvelous to me and seemed always very lively. His youngest daughter, my aunt, Tony, never forgave him for fathering 21 children. But I... Father, it's too many. It's it's too many. You should never have had me, Father. (laughs) Goodness. My mother, a good needlewoman, supported her parents by making and selling blouses. But I also recall some other kinds of work. I can dimly see us sitting at a long, wide table gluing cigarette papers. Some of my mother's older brothers and sisters remained in Russia and married there. We never heard from any of them, and they may have perished in the Russian Revolution. My father's parents and their ancestors came from Brandenburg. His father was a locksmith who had three sons and one daughter. I also love all the jobs 
Like yeah. these were all real jobs. Smith. Yeah. Before yeah. fiat currency came and made a mm -hmm. the world of fugazi. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm a locksmith. I'm mm -hmm. a master builder. I install central air. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I can support 21 children as a master builder. But in any case, yeah, you need to be a you'd be a, need to be a multimillionaire now to have 21 children. Sure, just go live off the grid and well, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, my grandmothers on both sides were quiet, gentle women who lived only for their fa families and for their values of their middle class milieu. It was a world in which I never felt quite at home. In that era, it was always thought necessary for a young girl of good background to take piano lessons. Accordingly, twice a week for five years, my father took me to a, a piano teacher who lived on Gentenerstrasse. I must confess that I did not enjoy the lessons at all. I hated practicing, even though I loved music and later as a dancer, I never missed a good concert. With the piano, as with painting, I had some talent, but not enough. I was actually chosen to participate in a student concert and performed a Beethoven sonata quite successfully, but I lacked the passion that I felt so deeply for the art of dance. Hmm. Yes, she she would go on and uh, and dance. Here's a little bit about her adolescence, which I think is important. I had to live with my parents until I was 21. Hmm. All right, different yeah. time. Yeah. During which time I was never allowed to go out with young men, nor could I go to a cinema without my parents. It is impossible to convey accurately the difference between adolescence then and that of young people today. My mother all, always made a beautiful dress for me to wear at Whitson, but it always seemed to annoy my father slightly. If a man looked back at me in the street, he would fly into a rage and yell crimson-faced, Keep your eyes drawn. Don't look at men in that way. His rebukes were quite unfair, for it not uh, entered my head to flirt with men. Don't get so excited, Papa, my mother would say soothingly. Lenny doesn't e ever look at men. She was both right and wrong. From the age of 14, I always had to be in love with someone, even though I didn't know my idol personally. For two years, I worshipped a young man I had happened to see only once but had never spoken to. Every day after school, I walked up and down the street where I'd seen him, hoping to catch another glimpse, but without success. No other male creature existed. Only hmm. this one while it lasted. Yeah. Hmm. So she yeah. did a ro bit of a romantic. Quite. Yeah. I saw this guy one time. She was the definition of the romantic and it yeah. would go come across. And there's there's an interesting if you wanted to do and I'm sure people have done it. If you wanted to talk about the aesthetic transom between romanticism and so-called fascist aesthetics, that's not that difficult. Yeah, I could see that being. Yeah. Mm hmm. She talks about her friend Alice and how they would uh, play together. Uh, how on the Kaiser's birthday, they ran up the flag. Uh, or no, no, there was... Okay, let me read this. My friend Alice, with whom I lost touch for a while after her marriage, has reminded me of all sorts of pranks. For example, we climbed up onto the school roof and removed the flag, which was flying there in honor of the Kaiser's birthday. And one day, when there was not the Kaiser's birthday, nor any victory of any kind to celebrate, we ran up the flag in the hope of getting the day off school. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That, that rocks. <laughs> I wasn't afraid of high places and could climb like a monkey. 
Another time, in order to play truant, I painted Alice's throat, arms, and face with red dots, and as there was an epidemic of rubella raging, she was immediately sent home. Two days later, she actually got rubella. Uh, (laughs) Careful. Be careful with the the sympathetic magic out there. Right. According to Alice, I was incredibly naive at 15, coming to her after my first kiss to ask if a baby would result. It is true that for a long time, I was not as mature as my girlfriends. I was embarrassed when Alice showed me her breasts, for I had none. So to look as if I did, I stuffed the front of my blouse with stockings. Alice was already engaged at 15 and married by the time she was 19. I, on the other hand, was still undeveloped at 21 and looked years younger. Hmm. All right. I am going to keep moving along. She talks about her uh, confirmation here. Easter Sunday, 1918. She was confirmed when I was almost 16 at the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. I can still remember the minister's name, Nitak Stan. He was very handsome and all the girls had a crush on him. My mother had made me a wonderful dress of black ruffled tula. I don't know that word. Mm. Uh, T-U-L-L-E. Anyway, lined with silk in which Alice claimed that I looked more like a femme fatale than a candidate for confirmation. All right. right. Okay. Okay. We're getting into it. We're getting into it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So let me just check back and make sure I'm keeping us on the rails. Yeah. Let's read this. In 1918, when she was 16, it says here she attended a presentation of Snow White again, which interested Mm. her deeply. Led her to want uh, to want to be a dancer. Her father instead wanted to provide his daughter with an education that could lead to a more dignified occupation. He wanted her to come and work at the firm, right? Uh, and and he probably, I, I am assuming. I mean, he probably saw that she was intelligent and capable, and you know, maybe she's going to inherit the firm, right? Sure, or yeah. at the very least, serve as his executive secretary, right? And and maybe marry someone who could. Right, right. right. It's all connected. What is father, Mm -hmm. what is father dreaming? Very practical man. Mm -hmm. Um, Without her husband's knowledge, her mother enrolled Riefenstahl in dance and ballet classes at the Grimm Reiter Dance School in Berlin. I'm not going to roll my R's the entire time, where she quickly (laughs) became a star pupil. And so this is a bit about the Grimm Reiter School. That year when I was 16 brought a turning point in my life, heralded by an advertisement in the newspaper, the Berliner Zeitung, am Mittag. It read, Wanted, 20 young girls for the film, opium. Apply at the Grimm Reiter School of Dance, Berlin, etc. Wait, what is it? What was it? The the film, the project was called Uh, Opium? Opium. Yeah. Yeah. The, I could see not, maybe not wanting your daughter involved in that. <laughs> you have to understand, like, it, 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 yeah, the stage is not that far away from the brothel right. and it, it never has been. And everybody wants to now kind of pretend that it's not, but it always has been. It always will be. Mm. You obviously have to go in with clear eyes and uh, clear eyes, full heart. You got to know mm. what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean it, it can't be a respectable profession, and, it, and indeed it can be. But let me tell you, yeah, it, yeah. It, a lot of young hearts get wrecked on the shoals of the stage in film. Sure. For sure. See Mulholland Drive. Yeah, yeah. If you care to see that represented on film. 
Uh, I went to the audition purely out of curiosity with no serious intention of going on the stage. If I were chosen, I could easily think up some excuse to turn the offer down. When and it, Come on. How genuine is that? Please? Right. She's right, just, right, cope. Right. Yeah. Cope. When I entered the auditorium, I found it thronged with young girls, each of whom had to go up to the table where Frau Grimm uh, was sitting. She sized up every applicant with a brief glance, jotting down her name and address. Sometimes she ticked a name, and I was glad to see that she put a tick after mine. I expected to be informed there and then if I had been chosen, but to my disappointment, we were told that we would get in touch. They would get in touch with us later. Just as I was leaving, I paused at a slightly open door through which I glimpsed several young dancers. I heard a piano and a voice commanding, one, two, three, one, two, three, amid much hopping and stamping. <laughs> the desire to rush inside and join in was almost uncontrollable. Against all the rules of common sense, for I knew my father would never consent to it, I asked about the qualifications required and the cost of lessons. Then, without hesitation, I signed up for the beginner's class two hours a week. Uh-oh. Apart from the low fees, which I could easily afford, all I needed was a dance smock. There would be That would be no problem, but keeping the lessons secret from my father would be a major difficulty. <laughs> Fortunately, he would be at the office during the hours in question, but there was still a danger of being found out. My poor mother, who could not resist my passionate insistence, became my confidant and accomplice. And since the lessons were purely for my own pleasure, with no professional goal in mind, we had a f- we had few scruples of consci- conscience. Now I had to lie in wait for the postman every morning, lest the longed-for letter should fall into my father's hands. How dramatic is all this? I right, love it. Right. In the event, it was intercepted quite soon without difficulty. The selected girls were to report back to the Grimm Writer School. This time, however, I found a much smaller number of applicants, each of whom had to dance a waltz before the casting jury. Delighted as I was to be selected, along with several others, I knew I could not take advantage of this opportunity, and I said so at once to the disappointed director. She had to turn it down. Yeah, Dad, if you show up on the screen... I mean, yeah, you're not going to even be able to make the day's shooting. Yeah. Right. It's one thing to make a, have a class that you're doing in secret. It's another to be launching into a career of some kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> the secret dance class was my compensation. However, and my enthusiasm grew with every lesson. At first, I was too tense and not particularly skillful, but technically I found it all very easy because of my training in gymnastics and various sports. After five or six lessons, my muscles relaxed and my limbs and body began to respond to the music. From then on, my progress was very rapid and I became one of the best pupils in a very short time. When I had been attending classes for three months, my father still knew nothing and encouraged by this, I decided to take ballet lessons too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Many such stories begin this way. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. know now. All right, let's start meeting twice a week. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll push it. We'll push it a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, the ballet le- ballet lessons would mean going to the school four times a week. This <laughs> I did, and soon I was dancing on points. No pain or strain was too great for me. I practiced many hours a day outside school time, using every rail or banister for that purpose. I made my friends flex my limbs so that they could move as easily as those of a rubber doll. Hmm. Uh, 
Even in the street, I would do great leaps and entrechettes, paying no heed to the stares and shaking heads of passersby. I could always concentrate entirely entirely on whatever interested me. Hmm. Uh, yeah, quite indifferent to what others might say or think about it. And during those weeks and months, I cocooned myself into a world of my own. Something an artist, very helpful to have that yeah. cocoon as an artist yeah. when yeah, you're I germinating an idea or you developing. You don't care about whatever else. This is all that matters. Yep. I'm writing my novel. Yep. <clears throat> I'm making my podcast. Mm -hmm. Already each of my friends had a boyfriend and the experiences which excited them most were all about flirting with men. I showed not the least interest in any of that. Of course, I had thought myself deeply in love several times, but... These were mere infatuations with boys I had never even a close, uh, never was never even close to in any sense. My feelings were poured into my dancing. And this is how she treats World War I. It was now 1918 and the war was over. Had... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> life on easy mode. Big time life on easy mode. Lenny, compared yeah. to some of the childhoods we've covered, Lenny has it pretty sweet yeah you compare uh well yeah and compare uh Yunga to like Marilyn doing, yeah. yeah or Yunga yeah <laughs> during right. that same time then yeah. he's like oh god if father <laughs> finds that I am taking ballet he will be he will be upset like literally <laughs> Junger's like dodging grenades <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah it was now 1980 this is the understatement of the century I'm declaring right. it yeah. it was now 1918 and the war was over we had lost. Ah, <laughs> uh, nine. Oh, ah, uh, shisa. What could go? What could go wrong? Oh no, we had lost. Yeah. Surely the allies will be generous and conciliatory mm -hmm. in their mm -hmm. uh, in their treatment of of Germany after right. World War One. They yeah. certainly don't want it to happen again. Right, right. No, she's 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 saying it like they lost the World Cup or something. It's like it's right. a disappointment, but uh, yeah. yeah, we had lost. <laughs> there had been a revolution, and there was no Kaiser, no king. But I experienced all these things in a cloud of unknowing. My mind was turned in on a tiny, exclusive world. Kind of admire it. Yeah, good way yeah, to cope. You're a yeah. young woman. Yeah with artistic sensibilities focus on that yeah she's not on twitter all day like right. railing against the the contemptuous nature of present day society yeah indeed yeah touch grass mm -hmm. during that period in the winter of 1918 or the spring of 19 uh, 19 i was once briefly involved in street fighting when an elevated train on which my mother and i were traveling was spattered with bullets we all had to lie down and the lights went out. As we hurried home later, shots whistled past us and we had to dash from entrance hall to entrance hall seeking cover. Oh. I had not the faintest notion why this was happening or what it meant. The word politics was not yet part of my vocabulary and my reaction to anything connected with the war was a shudder of revulsion. To my shame, I must confess that patriotism as such was alien to me in my youth. For me, war was the ultimate evil and extreme nationalism was usually responsible for war's very existence. All human beings, black, white, or red, had the same value for me, and I had never even heard of racist theories. 
Hmm. It could be said that my head was in the clouds for my interests, apart from dancing, were in the mysteries of outer space and in the planets, in the cosmos itself. The stars, and especially the moon, still exercised an irresistible fascination. I don't know that I'll cover it here in the memoir, but she does talk about encountering Einstein's theory of relativity and it just like rocking her. Wow. She's that kind of a mind. Yeah. Right. Smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah smart cookie. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Well, let's let's read a little more here. This is the early part of the memoir is going to occupy quite a bit of our time because I think it's so essential to really understanding her character. Now that I was 16 and had completed my schooling, a decision had to be made about my future. My father, determined to cure me of my obsession with acting, wished to send me to a domestic science college, the prestigious Lettehaus in Berlin, and then to finishing school. All my appeals for training in drama made him so furious that, for my mother's sake, I gave up and concentrated instead on finding some way to prevent my exile to a boarding school. The very thought of that was unendurable. Mm-hmm has a little bit about the racetrack here. They would go uh, to the track quite frequently. Uh, Now we get to the part of this called my first public performance. Ah, well, Um, yeah, well, I I don't want to get out of line here because it skips around in time a little bit. I'll mention it a little later. We got to get to some interesting stuff. Like her okay. first uh, sexual encounter is brutal. Oh, no. Fascinating and brutal. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, I just want to make sure I don't miss the introduction to one of the critical characters. Ah, yeah. So let me. So this is the racetrack. I have to cover this. It's too important. I have to introduce this character. My best friend Hertha usually came to the races with us and wearing the blue and white ribbons of the Weinberg stable, we cheered and suffered with Otto Schmidt. Otto Schmidt is the, um, the uh, one of the uh, jockeys. Sometimes I asked Hertha whether she thought that Otto Schmidt sitting high in his mount ever happened to look at my adoring eyes, and she usually said that of course he had. I did not believe it for a minute, for jockeys, just like performers on stage, seldom see clearly anyone in the audience. Several times I had tried to make contact with this demigod, but to no avail. He was too shy and retiring. There was, however, another well-known and popular jockey named Rostenberger, in personality utterly different from Schmidt. Lively and gregarious, he often talked to members of the public, and one day, after eyeing me for some time, he came over and spoke to me. Now, this is the effect she would have. My father being somewhere, being nowhere about, I was free to chat. Rostenberger was astonished by my knowledge of thoroughbreds and their pedigrees, not only those of the Weinberg stable, but those of all the major stables and stud farms. I had studied the subject because of Otto Schmidt and processed statistically all the information I collected. I was pract- it was practically a doctoral dissertation, and I still have it today. The thick black notebook with the calico cover in which for years I entered the ancestry and the successes of the horses. It is one of the few relics of my very early youth that has remained with me. Rostenberger, very impressed, suggested that we meet sometime, and rather nervously, I agreed. Though I stipulated that I could see him only in the afternoon. We're going to go for lunch, not dinner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're too short for dinner. Yeah. The rendezvous <laughs> was at a restaurant on, oh, I want to get this right, Friedrichstrasse. And oh, it's so tough, those R's. And he was waiting for me outside on the pavement. I was 17, and this was my first date. Yet, when I found myself in a room 
with no other diners, the walls, sofa, and even the table covered in red velvet, I knew at once what kind of room it was and what I had let myself in for. Oh, boy. Rostenberger had ordered champagne, and as our glasses clinked, he put his arm around me. Carefully, I extricated myself and began to chatter about Otto Schmidt, who was the only reason I had agreed to see his fellow jockey. Ooh, ooh, getting thrown in the the jockey zone. Yeah. (laughs) Rostenberger had no interest whatsoever in talking about Schmidt. Ah, Schmidt, he's a hack. Mm -hmm. Or in my lying disclosure that I was Otto's cousin. Dismissing my suggestion that we should visit my cousin, he seized me roughly in his arms and tried to kiss me. Then, as I pulled away and fled, he pursued me downstairs and into the street. Outside, it was raining heavily, and as a perfect end to this adventure, I found myself being beaten about the head by a woman I had never seen. It was Frau Rostenberger. Oh, my God. All right. That isn't the incident I was thinking about. Right. This is creepy. Oh, my God. Babylon, Berlin, man. That's yeah. the scene we're in right now. Yeah. See, how old is yeah. she? 17. So we're 17. talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. I want you to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for 60 seconds. Where are you at right now with Lenny? Well, I, you know, she's got an interesting childhood, not uh, particularly traumatic or anything yet. Although this incident with her at 17 is pretty intense. Um, you know, we've got some kind of standard, uh, artistic mythological fair here with the sort of stern father who's has no interest in the nonsense that is uh, art- artistic or creative output and then the mother supporting it so there there is and, and then there's this obsession with Snow White I do have there's something like a little bit of a fairy tale vibe here the World War One didn't really seem to touch her too much um, there's yeah, there, there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a fairy tale going on so far. But but, you know, like fairy tales, like Snow, there's darkness, right? There is, there's this stuff is sort of out there someplace. It's a dangerous world, clearly. Yeah. Mm. And, and you see these things like this with this Rosterberg guy, which is like, you know, we kind of we kind of, uh, uh, you know, look askance at those old forms of courting and things right where you know there's a chaperone and it's all very uptight and we look we look askance at that but then like she goes on this one little unapproved venture and like basically you know almost gets raped by this married man we're like well man maybe those rules were there for a reason i you know i don't know yeah tricky business tricky business my first public performance My father still knew nothing about my dance classes. Every Tuesday and Friday, I roller skated all the way to the entrance of the school, and I got away with my deception until a terrible day of reckoning. Every year, Frau Grimreiter's students gave a display, and this particular year, she was delighted to have a star attraction. Anita Berber, a former student and now a famous dancer who sometimes practiced at the school, had agreed to perform. I had so often watched her practicing and in private had so often imitated her every movement that when three days before the recital, she dropped out through illness, it occurred to me that I might do as a replacement. Frau Grimreiter was as doubtful, was doubtful at first, but after I performed one or two of Beva's dances, she agreed, providing we could find suitable costumes. This was no problem, and it was only when everything was arranged that I thought of my father. 
there being no hope of obtaining his permission, my mother contrived to have invite him invited to a card party with friends. The only other person who knew the secret was my brother, and he was to be in the audience for, for my first public performance as a dancer. Nearly all the spectators were friends and relatives of the students. Oddly enough, although I was trembling with excitement, I felt no stage fright. And when my cue finally came, I glided across the stage as though I had been performing all my life. The applause was so loud and insistent that I had to respond with several encores. I was numb with happiness. When it was over, I knew that this alone must be my life and my world. But my delight was short-lived. Having seen my performance, a family friend innocently congratulated my father on having so gifted a daughter. Oh. My father's anger was such that the first thing he did was to instruct a lawyer to initiate divorce proceedings against my mother. Wow. Only now did I begin to realize the extent of the crisis I had provoked and my desire by my desire to go on the stage. My mother had assisted me in deceiving my father and had secretly made me costumes. She was to suffer and I could not bear to see it. I decided to give up. I begged him to stop the divorce and I would bury all my dreams and longings, but he did not trust me. I was to be sent to boarding school. From the age of 13, I had suffered from bilious colic. She had a gall gallbladder issue. She would later get it removed. Okay. And this illness helped me in the efforts to avoid being sent away from home. Perhaps it was the distress I was causing in the family that brought on my attacks of colic, but for whatever reason, I was in agony for several days and my father saw it and suffered with me. I began to feel very sorry for him and to realize how deeply he loved me, for he was in such a state that he could not enjoy anything. He knew that I was ill with longing to be allowed to train for the theater, but to him the stage was one step up from the gutter and he could not yield. My awareness that the happiness of an entire family was being destroyed because of me, that my brother, my father, and most of all, my mother were victims of my obsession, sent me to my father in penitence. I told him that for his sake, I would study painting, though at first he eyed me doubtfully. My sincerity convinced him and he sighed with relief. The very next day, he enrolled me at the State School of Arts and Crafts on Prince Albrechtstrasse. Listening, I presented... Uh, listlessly, I presented myself to sit the qualifying examination among a hundred other young applicants, male and female. We had to do several nude drawings, some portraits, and other wor work of our own choosing. Only two of the hundred were accepted, and I was one of them. Wow. All right. So again, this is who we're dealing with. She's like, I'm not a very good pager, but I got in. Yeah, I'm just better than everybody else. That's all. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah this is my safety <laughs> school. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, good for her. Yeah, but I felt no joy in an honor which would probably seal my fate. I went faithfully to college every day, but fell deeper and deeper into a profound depression, which my father could not fail to notice. So now she gets sent to, uh, without saying a word to anyone, my father began to send away for brochures from boarding schools. <laughs> 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 so... Mm -hmm. Ah, boy, man, we, we really don't have that looming as a threat anymore over the middle class, do we? No, I feel like the only kids are like what you do. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anybody who went to boarding. Any I know exactly why I dated exactly one person. Yeah. 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 And I knew some hoodlums. 
You know what I mean? Like I knew some people who were definitely going the wrong direction. And yeah. So yeah, it doesn't seem like it's really a phenomenon for us anymore. No, no. Maybe we don't have a middle class anymore. That could be mm, why. Could be. Uh, hmm. In any case, uh, she was in 1919 sent to the Loman School in Tala in the Hearts Mountains, and uh, she secretly packed her ballet uh, slippers. And she says it hadn't occurred to my father that in such a finishing school, staging plays is usually part of the curriculum. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Nor apparently had anybody told him. I became a leading performer, played all kinds of parts, and directed dramas myself. I appeared as a hunchbacked woman in the Pied Piper of Hamelin. I played Faust in the old German play, The Descent of Dr. Faust into Hell. Hmm. Furthermore, we were allowed to attend the outdoor theater in Tala every weekend to see such classics as Schiller's The Brigand, Lessing, Lessing's uh, Minna von Barnhelm, and Faust. And so he basically sent her to theater school accidentally. Kind of sent her to theater camp. Yeah. <laughs> had Fräulein okay. had any suspicion of how these performances were stirring up all my repressed desires, she would never have allowed me to go. Hmm. Neither would she or my father have approved of the letter I sent to my friend in Berlin during my time at Tala. Dear Alice, I'm afraid I'm growing more and more serious, and I don't know why. I think too much and sometimes feel that I'm going mad Yet I can't do foolish things anymore, and really I'm becoming too sensible. I feel as if I am already 20 to 30 years old, but can't decide whether this is to my advantage or disadvantage. Everything seems so ridiculous, and people most of all. I've actually started to write, can you imagine? Already I've penned a few articles that I'd like to send to Sports World, if only I could pluck up the courage, and I hope to write a few short stories for Film Week. I'm also working on a film scenario, but I intend to keep that to myself for someday I'd like to play the leading role. The title is to be Queen of the Turf. And we're talking about a 17-year-old here. Mm -hmm. And it consists of a prologue and six acts. I do hope I succeed in this. I have also worked out something about civilian air travel, which I think is to come soon. And I've done several drawings in this connection. Uh, of course, it's all just fantasy. How I wish I were a man. It would be so much easier to carry out all my plans. Let's put mm -hmm. another asterisk, asterisk next to Lenny, along mm -hmm. with Control F Hitler, the fact mm -hmm. that he did all of this as a woman. And I think that's right. one of the reasons they struggle so mightily with her, because she she broke through the, mm -hmm. the glass ceiling right. at, to about as high as someone could accomplish and changed mm -hmm. her industry, changed her her art. Mm -hmm. uh pulled a like a like a tiger woods on film yeah. changed the game yeah as a woman yeah in the 30s and the 40s mm -hmm. right yeah. and how do we deal with that mm -hmm. yeah incredible uh before i left boarding school my father demanded that i come to some decision about what kind of professional training i wish to take up for i seemed unable to make up my mind about what would be my next step my heroine was the Polish scientist, Madame Curie, whom I admired for her willpower and her almost obsessive devotion to her work. A life of such self-sacrifice seemed to me to be an ideal worth striving for, yet interested as I was in science, I worried less, be, uh, less because of my love of art and my strongly emotional nature, I would fail to find fulfillment in a purely scientific career. 
The real reason, however, for my indecision was probably my inability to con contemplate giving up dancing, which by now was more important to me than acting. Then I had a rather clever idea. My father had always nursed a desire to have me work in his office as his private secretary and confidant. And it occurred to me that if I suggested doing this, he might very well be prepared to allow me to go on with my dancing, provided, of course, that I promised never to go on the stage. I thought it all out very carefully and then wrote a tactful letter to my father. His reply, when it came, sent me into ecstasies. He agreed to everything. Wow. Okay. Your dad's happy. Oh, she wants to come at the film. It's going right. to be great. Right. right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She oh, danced on the weekend. Lenny, she, yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. We'll take care of, of Lenny. She'll meet a nice man. Mm -hmm. She'll get, yeah, these dreams will will fall out of her head. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And now instead another... of recognizing the fact that she's like some kind of powerhouse in training, right? Like, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, right. <clears throat> well, it, the, the payoff here is going to be delicious. Trust me. All right, mm -hmm. let me make sure I'm staying on my track. I am. Uh, I just think it's so important with these characters to to emphasize the early life and the formative years because it all pays off when you get into the the works that we all know. Mm -hmm. Because it all begins to make sense. Um, nobody emerges from a the abyss. Everybody right, comes from, right. from somewhere. So this is a chapter about uh, tennis. So she's dancing. She's working at her father's office. She's in charge of the petty cash. He had no objections uh, to her taking tennis lessons at the Berlin Ice Skating Club, which is, that's kind of funny. Hmm. So what, the, do they do they give ice skating lessons at, at the tennis club? What's the deal here? Right. Um, he had friends there who would keep an eye on me. Hmm. Uh, from then on, I spent many hours on the tennis courts and made many friends there, two of whom were my tennis coaches. Many years later, I cast one of them, Max Holtzbauer, uh, into a, two of my films. So she would, she directed more other, she directed features and we'll, we'll cover them. Mm -hmm. uh, my other teacher, Gunter Rahn, had once been an adjutant to His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince Wilhelm, Wilhelm, and he gave me lessons really because he had fallen in love with me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We lost the war. Yeah, he gave me lessons because he fell in love. He had fallen in love with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there was something going on around on the bird website recently where it was like one of these green text things. I don't know if it was a green text thing, but it's just some e-girl, some Twitch streamer who discovered that she has like guys who love her all mm -hmm. around the world. Mm -hmm. And she's just she's just started traveling and like staying with them. <laughs> And like, oh obviously God. she's just running up, running up the body count. But like, she's like, have I discovered a cheat code? Like, <laughs> you kind of want to go like, kind of. Yeah. Like, yeah. But that it could end very poorly. I, I mean, there's all sorts of short, medium and long term hazards to that. I will say. No doubt. Yeah. But this oh, is yeah, another... this random, this random guy who on the internet who's obsessed with me. I think I'll fly to his town where I don't know anybody else and I'll stay with him for a while. Right. I, I hope she's doing appropriate. I guess yeah. what you would call it, it would be maybe OPSEC or appropriate yeah. vetting. Right. Uh, but again, this goes on the bingo card. Nothing no. changes. Right. right. Nothing changes. Yeah. Around that time, Something very strange occurred. 
I was in the locker room when a man opened the door and gazed at me for a long time with rather vague gray eyes and then closed the door. I like how she writes all of this too. Like the effect mm-hmm. that she has on men is never stated outright, but she mm-hmm. dances around it. Yeah, she's showing that telling for sure. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I found the incident very disturbing and it took me some time to recover from the tension that followed and from a feeling that I can only describe as being like an electric shock. Nothing like it had ever happened before. The finals of the National Tennis Championships were held at the Ice Skating Club, and when I saw Otto Freutzheim, the top German tennis player, I recognized the man whose appearance at the locker room door had so confused me. So Mm, it was like the equivalent of Federer was Mm -hmm. looking at her. Not to bring Federer into this, but to give you like a temporary comparison. Yeah. Yeah. he was much gossiped about, not only because of his prowess at tennis, but also because of his innumerable love affairs. I made up my mind to avoid him as best I could, having no desire to be counted among the conquests of this Lothario. <laughs> I All love right. the word Lothario. <laughs> yeah, we need to return to Lothario. Yeah. It's, it's quite a good word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to make sure that I cover everything. Let's see. Yeah, she's she's really, yeah, this is about her father. As so often happens, however, things worked out very differently. The very next day, one of my father's clerks appeared and asked me to report to the office where my father wished to see me. My mother had guessed where I might be found. He looked composed as I faced him. She, she fled home and went to stay with her grandmother mm. after an argument. At one point... Um, Let's see here. The father started um, behaving very, very cold, coldly to her, and he roared at her like a madman. I know you have been lying to me. You are still planning to go on the stage. The job as my secretary is only to fool me, and you have never had any intention of keeping your promise. You are no daughter of mine. So she goes to stay with the grandmother, and then he calls her, and he... uh, She writes, he looked composed as I faced him with wildly beating heart, determined to hold on my uh, fiercely to my new one freedom, but he was forcing himself to be calm, exercising great self-control as he spoke the words I had expected never to hear. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. are as stubborn as I am, he told me, and for your mother's sake only, I am willing to consent to your training as a dancer. Personally, I am convinced that you have little talent and will never be more than mediocre, but you will have no cause to say later on that I destroyed your life or ruined your chances of a career. You will receive the best possible training and everything else will depend on you and you alone. He paused and I pitied him for I could see what it cost him to make this speech. I heard the bitterness in his voice as he went on. I hope that I shall never suffer the mortification someday of seeing your name among newspaper advertisements. I flinched at this, and yet I was deeply grateful. Even as he spoke those harsh words, I swore in my heart that I would never do anything to disappoint him. Hmm. That very day, he took me to an excellent ballet teacher, Eugenie Eduardova, a once famous ballerina from St. Petersburg, to whom he repeated his belief that I lacked any talent worth speaking of and that he was merely indulging my whim. His parting advice to her was that she should exercise great severity when instructing me. 
Nobody was happier than my mother when I came home to Zoyton with my father that evening. And now a wonderful time began for me. Even though the dancing lessons and the exercises were exceedingly strenuous, at 19, I was really too old to be training for the ballet among students who had started at the age of six or eight. And I frankly mm-hmm. think this is what caused some of her injuries. I don't think yeah. that you can train ballet. I'm not an expert at this, I, uh, but I, yeah. I suspect that if you try to get to an elite level later in life without the muscle memory of the earlier training, it, it's probably pretty risky. Yeah, I've heard things like this. I mean, I think ballet in general is pretty has pretty disastrous effects on your body, but yeah, to come into it later is probably mm-hmm. even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here she writes, I had tried to close the enormous gap between them and me. I had to try. I trained and practiced until only my willpower prevented me from passing out. And thanks to my early training in athletics, I succeeded so well that within a few months, I could stay on points for several minutes. And by the end of the year, I was among the best. Uh, the teacher, a remarkable woman and a marvelous uh, instructor, was satisfied with me. And for my part, I truly revered her then and always. Mm. The next chapter is called A Tragedy of Young Love. Uh, and I don't want to skip anything. So how old is uh, she? How old is she at this time? Uh, she's got to be 18, 19. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 19, you said. Yep. Yeah. Let me read this. There's a fellow, this is very important, Uh, again, about the effect she would have on men. So they would take the train every day. Quite soon, these evening train journeys became a nerve-wracking ordeal because of Walter Lebowski's obsession with me. I had done everything to avoid arousing any hope of him. Yet every uh, evening, when we took the train to Zoyton, Walter entered our compartment and sat facing me dressed always in black and wearing huge, dark sunglasses. It frightened me. My father did not know him, but he noticed that the same young man in sunglasses sat with us on each evening trip. We never exchanged a word, and this behavior could not have been more foolish since it only made me dislike Walter more and more. One winter evening, we were all at home. My friend Hertha had come to stay, and she chatted happily with my mother while my father and I played billiards. There was a storm howling outside, and eventually my parents said goodnight and went upstairs to bed. I could hear the shutters in my bedroom banging to and fro, and we were about to follow my parents upstairs when there was a knock on the door. We looked at each other in alarm. Who could be there at this time of night? We stood by the door, petrified. After a while, there was another knock, and I thought I heard a plaintive voice. I was reluctant to disturb my father at midnight, so I opened the door a crack, and to my horror, I saw Walter standing in the snowstorm, rigid with cold. We pulled him inside, though I knew I would be beaten if my father came down and found him there, but he would have frozen to death if we had left him outside. We dragged him upstairs to my room, took off his wet outer clothes, dried him as best we could, and got him into bed. Hertha made some tea, which we poured into him through his chattering teeth. Between swallows, he whimpered, but he was unable to speak. After about an hour, he appeared to fall asleep, and we tiptoed to the ne- room next to mine and to, uh, to try to work out what was to be done with him without my father finding out. Suddenly, we heard moans and rushed back to my room. Walter's right arm dangled out of the bed almost to the floor where a pool of blood had collected. And there was blood on the bed covers. He had cut his wrists and then passed out. Oh, my God. Fright and horror. 
We did what we could. I ripped up a towel and bound up the wound. Well, Hertha tried to bring him round by applying compresses, compresses to his face and body. After some time, he began to moan. He was still alive. When dawn came, we managed to carry him into the next room, place him under the couch, and shut the door. Then, having wiped away all traces of blood, we waited anxiously for my parents to rise. My father noticed nothing amiss, and we were so terrified of him that we said nothing. In the kitchen, we told my mother and left her to take in the dreadful events of the night and to shoulder responsibility for saving Walter's life, since Hertha and I willy-nilly must travel to Berlin with my father. My mother whispered that she would immediately fetch a doctor and have Walter taken to hospital. Well, we must notify Walter's family. He did not die, but was sent for a long period of time to a mental hospital and never allowed to see me again, lest it bring about a relapse. Later, his family moved to America. Oh, he's going to fit in great over here. Yeah. 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 You belong over here, kid. Where he slowly recovered and was eventually able to resume his studies and became a professor of mathematics in San Francisco. Yeah. Good job, buddy. Many, <laughs> many years later, how many Lennies can I count? I yeah. spy three, I feel Lennies, fünf Lennies, six Lennies, six Lennies, even Lennies. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Many years, that's quite amusing. Many years <laughs> later, after the war, he did visit me and my mother in Kitzbühel, for he never forgot me as long as he lived. At the end of his days, he was almost totally blind. Mm. Uh, there was one incident Wild. that I may have skipped over, so I want to see if I can find it. There's a very interesting incident that happened in Berlin. I'm looking it up in the... Uh, uh, I, I like this notion that all this stuff happens under her dad's nose and he's just like oblivious yeah <laughs> it's yeah. like dudes killing him killing themselves in lenny's bedroom she's you know <laughs> doing stage performances <laughs> it's it's wild it's really Sends wild the feeder camp on accident yeah i'm i skipped another formative incident and this is so we're gonna flash back in time a little bit and okay. come yeah. forward but this yeah. happened when she was very young and well, the first thing that happens is that the vegetable vegetable market, I was the ringleader in this escapade, which involved knocking over the baskets in the hope of grabbing a few of the rolling apples. So they're going to try to steal fruit from the vegetable garden okay. or from the vegetable market. When my father found out, I was severely beaten and locked in a dark room for an entire day. Jeez. This was not the only occasion in which I suffered from my father's strict ideas about discipline. Now, this yeah, is, you're stealing stuff. There's got to be some repercussions, but yeah, lock it, lock it her in a closet or a room for it. It's a little much. Yeah. 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 Uh, now listen mm -hmm. to this. When we lived in Hermann's plots, I had a truly terrible experience. At that time, a, a particularly brutal sex murderer of children was at large in Berlin. Woo! <laughs> a particularly brutal. Yeah, you know, unlike your your just your uh, yeah, mil mills. I'm telling you what, this sex, sex murderer murders. of children was is not mid. He's particularly <laughs> brutal. A particularly brutal sex murderer of children. A man who <laughs> mutilated children before killing them, and of whom everyone was mortally afraid. Wow, I shouldn't be laughing. Sorry. That <laughs> I mean. <laughs> That that is a kind of an amusing turn of phrase, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It's just like, oh, uh, you know, we have another uh, yeah. sex murder of children. This one's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes! 
One evening, my father sent me out for beer to a tavern only a few minutes walk from our flat. I ran downstairs with a siphon. Mm. That, that's what we uh, called the type of beer tankard with a lid of white porcelain. Mm. So like, a, what do they call those things? Ha- like a handle? They have a word for those now. In any case. I and I saw a man, sta- a growler. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I saw a man standing at the staircase window with his back to me. He looked somehow menacing because, of course, the window was in darkness and nothing could be seen from it. So why was he there? I scurried past him, hoping he would be gone when I returned. But once back with the filled tankard, I did not dare enter the building. I stood outside terrified, all too aware that since we had no telephone, there was no way of notifying my parents, yet not wanting to stay out in the streets at night. At last, I made up my mind. I started for the stairs, and there he stood, straddle-legged, as before, silently gazing into the darkness beyond the window. Clutching the beer siphon, I dashed past him and took the stairs two at a time, but I did not get very far before he grabbed me by the coat collar. I dropped the beer and screamed for help. Next, his hands were round my throat as I was, and I was choking, but at the same instant, doors were being pulled open by neighbors alarmed by the noise, and the man rele- released me and fled. To this day, I feel a chill of horror when I hear footsteps behind me. Oh, my gosh. Nearly got killed. Yeah. If that's to be believed. Right. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Brutal. Huh. Mm. All right. So let's get into the uh the dancing career here. Oh. <laughs> Here's how she handles uh she literally has a chapter called Inflation. Coming attractions, people. <laughs> coming to coming to Why America. Vi America. It's here. Here we go. This is really, really funny the way she handles this. The next morning brought us an awful shock. We were in the grip of inflation. Our ah. money was worthless. Ah. Uh, you know, I mean, and it just goes on. You know, right. they, they literally can't. <laughs> suddenly, you literally can't get food. Yeah. Uh, Tur- turns out money's not worth anything anymore. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Would you look at that? <laughs> There's also a particularly brutal uh child sex murderer oh sure right yeah 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 we're having good times good times in berlin good times in berlin Mm. all right so this is a critical pivotal moment and it's going to get us into kind of her her full-fledged uh dancing career a beauty contest was to be held at the zoo banquet hall in berlin my father was away hunting for the weekend and so I think it's funny that you would host a beauty contest at, I assume, the zoo. It says zoo. That's <laughs> kind of perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so I was able to attend the festivities with my mother. She had made me a lovely silvery green silk gown trimmed with a border of white swan feathers. The poster said that the co- competitors would include film stars such as Lee Perry, a well-known and very beautiful blonde screen actress from Munich. I was becoming more and more fascinated by the theater and the cinema because my life had always been so narrowly bourgeois. But uh, not unexpectedly, Lee Perry, wearing a white tull dress trimmed with, I'm just going to pronounce that 10 different ways, and at one point I'll get it right. I'm going to look up Uh, what it is in the background. T-U-L-L-E, what is that? It must be a kind of fabric. Uh, Trimmed with silver spangles, won first prize. The second prize, and I thought I would sink through the floor, was awarded to me. Hmm. That's who we're dealing with. Movie star good looks. Mm -hmm. Right? And naive. 
Amid thunderous applause, I was taken down from the stage, and to my mother's dismay, two men hoisted me on their shoulders and carried me through the room. I feared the photographer's flashes even more than the dangerous throng, for there was no telling what my father would do if he saw my pictures in the paper. Why do you go to these things if you if you don't think you're going to win, Lenny? <laughs> right, right. I, They're all like, just like, well, I didn't mean to actually win it. I just, yeah, I feel like yeah. it's 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 a little bit of a... Uh... A little bit of cope. They're playing a little bit of a game, and they're kind of cucking yeah. her dad a bit. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm. Just he's got to be, uh, he's got to be losing his mind. By I'm this. right <laughs> here, Letty. I'm always right here. Right. In German, right? <laughs> you ready to hear somebody scream in German? Yeah. yeah. I bet you thought it was going to be mostly Hitler on this right. episode. It's mostly no, Letty's Letty's, Letty's father. <laughs> All right. Uh, tulle is a form of netting that is made of small gauge thread netted in a hexagonal pattern with small oh, openings oh, and frequently starched to provide body or stiffness. It's a sort of a fabric you wouldn't use necessarily as the primary thing, but you use to make dresses mm, flouncy in that sure. sort of thing. And maybe it Very shows light. a little skin. Yeah. It's yeah. Got... It's, it's slightly mm. transparent. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Flowers and calling cards were handed to me, and many people asked for my name and and address. I had a very difficult time extricating myself from the crowd and getting back to my mother. We both felt very guilty, but luckily my father never found out about the beauty contest. Yeah, sure. Among the cards I received, I noticed two names, which I knew from magazines. One was F.W. Kübner, editor-in-chief of a renowned fashion journal called Dame, I think. The other was Carl Vomula, author of the play Miracle, staged so opulently by Max Reinhardt. He was known to be friendly with Reinhardt. Vollmuller had scrawled something on his card. I would be delighted to meet you and to help you professionally. Yeah, yeah. Wink. Kebner's message read, you are very beautiful. I can promise you a great career. Wink. Also wink. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One afternoon, I visited Herr Kebner, who lived in a ground floor apartment in the western area of Berlin. A young maid opened the door and led me to a room which came as quite a surprise. All four walls were covered with photographs showing nothing but legs, no bodies, no faces, just legs. Hmm. Then Kebner came in, slender, rather tall, his clothes elegantly casual, and greeted me with a slightly leering smile that instantly aroused my antipathy. The first thing he said was, show me your legs, my lovely. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Almost a foot guy. Almost right. a foot Almost. guy. Yeah. 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 I was stunned, for I was wearing a fairly short skirt. But you can see my legs, I said. Please, just pull your skirt a little higher over your knees. So a short skirt <laughs> short down skirt. past the knees. <laughs> yeah. We're not Ooh. talking about your ankles, honey. Uh, <laughs> Scandalous, Lenny. Oh, is it hot in here? I'm wearing a turtleneck here. I don't know. Hmm. She was asking for it. Wearing a skirt like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was me impersonating her dad. Let, yeah, of course. Yeah. Let me see. Let me see your knees. Oh, goodness. Um. <laughs> Foolishly, I drew it at Art of Dark Pod, if you want to get a brag, <laughs> on Twitter, on Twitter. <laughs> Foolishly, I drew, <laughs> I drew it halfway up my thighs, then dropped it again. What's all this about? I asked in annoyance. 
Condescendingly, he mentioned, motioned me to a chair and said, as if offering me a magnificent present, I have something special in mind for you. If you can dance only half as well as your legs suggest, I'll get you a solo dance number at La Scala. La Scala was Berlin's biggest vaudeville theater, and its international program was world famous. If Herr Kebner thought I would be so overjoyed that I would throw my arms around him or let a, out a shriek of delight, he must have been very disappointed. I reflected for an instant, then said with a rather conceited grin, but Herr Kebner, I've never had any intention of appearing at a vaudeville house, even one as famous as La Scala. I'm going to dance only in concert halls and on theater platforms. I'm an artist. Yeah. Hey. I'm an artist. Right. He stared at me as if I were a freak. Then, offended, he opened the door. Goodbye and good luck, he said as I left. My visit to Herr Dr. Wollmuller was entirely different. Actually, after my encounter with Herr Kebner, I didn't feel much like meeting any other strangers uh, from the beauty contest. Fair enough. Yet I felt it was worth seeing this playwright. Uh-oh. Mm, the worst of, of the worst. Oh, the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. Her dad was right. Uh, because of his collaboration with Max Reinhardt, whose production at the Deutsche Theater and the Kammerspiel I hardly ever missed. So one afternoon, I stood at on Peretzerplatz outside a luxurious building near the Brandenburg Gate. It was on the side where, 10 years later... Uh, Goebbels would occupy his ministerial offices and I would be in much the same situation as I was now with Dr. Volmuller. We'll get to it. We haven't even introduced the full cast of characters on the Lenny Riefenstahl episode of Art of Darkness, artofdarkpod.com, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. I hope you're enjoying it as we go. A butler led me to an elegant, thickly carpeted room full of antique furniture and costly paintings. Everything was in perfect harmony and taste. Nothing was overdone. Softly, almost inaudibly, Dr. Vollmuller entered the room. He had an air of refinement, and in this ambiance, I could picture him in the costume of a bygone age. His face was lean, his eyes bright, and he had sparse, light brown hair. He greeted me with a kiss on my hand, the first I had ever received. The butler served tea and cake and I was offered a cigarette, which I declined with thanks. You don't smoke? I shook my head. May I offer you a liqueur? This, too, I declined. I don't like alcohol. It makes me feel tired and dizzy, I said apologetically. Don't you have any bad habits? I shrugged. I have my weaknesses, but they are of a different nature. What are they? I'm very self-willed, and I often don't do what other people demand of me. I'm also very undiplomatic. How do you mean? I'm often tempted to say things people don't wish to hear. One couldn't tell from your appearance. You look rather gentle. After this exchange, we got down to talking about the theater, about dancing and future plans. How do you envisage your future? I am going to dance. And how and where do you want to dance? Uh, like Impakov, uh, like Impakoven, like Gert, like Vigman, in concert halls and on stages. Do you have a rich friend to finance you? I laughed. I don't need a rich friend. I'll succeed on my own. Smiling, he broke in. Dear little Fräulein Lenny Riefenstahl, that's your name, isn't it? You strike me as very naive. You need a rich friend. Otherwise, you'll never get anywhere. Never. Yeah. Nothing changes. What's Would you name? care to bet? Yeah. Who's your daddy? Is mm -hmm. he rich like me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you care to bet on it? She said, yeah. Lenny says, 
Yes, I would, he said, and tried to put his arms around me. Uh. I pulled away, stood up, and walked quickly to the door. What a pity, I said. I was looking forward to chatting with you. He tried to hold me, but I hurried out. Before closing the door, I called back, I'll send you an invitation to my first recital. That's a promise. Goodbye. He got his invitation six months later. Nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Go mm-hmm. Lenny. Yeah, go Lenny. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm rooting for her at, yeah, this, for sure. 100%. at this point. For sure. Um, this is where she deals with some injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to read it. It's important. She says, my dance training was training was severely disrupted when I broke bones in my feet, uh, no fewer than three times. Yeah. The first time I slipped on uh, orange peel after ballet class. Ugh. Unable to stand, I was taken to hospital. My right ankle was, fr- was fractured, but I was able to dance again after only three weeks. My second accident occurred six months later. Walking home through the woods in the darkness, I stepped into a hole. This time I fractured my left ankle. The third accident was more serious. My bedroom floor had been painted the previous day, and in order to reach the hallway without touching the floor, I took a gigantic leap from the bed. The bed slid back, I lost my balance, and came down lopsided. Now my metatarsal bone was broken, and I had to stop training for six weeks. I can still feel the pain years later. This is a bit about Einstein. During this time of enforced rest, I saw a film about Einstein and his theory of relativity. It was an important discovery for me. I don't think I am exaggerating when I say that the moment I began to understand this theory, many things changed for me, and I seemed to undergo an expansion of consciousness. For someone with my ideas, Einstein's concept of the relative was revolutionary. All right. And now we have a chapter about her first man. And this is pretty essential stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm getting through my my early life uh, fragments here. All right. And then we'll pick up the bio and keep on churning. Keep on chucking. Yeah. This is a fascinating life and a fascinating story. At the age of 21, I had my first experience with a man. Even though I wouldn't admit it to myself, my feelings for Otto Freudsheim were growing deeper until at times they were almost overpowering. <laughs> And yet I managed to avoid seeing him for two years. I could live with it only because I was completely fulfilled by my pansing, uh, passion for dancing. And th- that's the tennis star. Oh, okay. Okay. All my girlfriends were already having love affairs. Some were engaged with, and Alice, my best friend, had already married. I was the only one who was still sexually inexperienced. Eventually, I did feel that I was missing something, and I often toyed with the idea of having an adventure. But with whom? I had many quiet admirers, but didn't like any of them much. So almost against my will, my thoughts concentrated more and more on the man who I almost feared. My most ardent suitor was Gunther Rahn, a kind-hearted man who was friendly with Otto Freudsheim. Somehow I managed to tell Gunther about my secret fantasies, and although I realized that he would be very distressed, I also said that I thought of him as a very dear friend, but nothing more. Ah, friend-zoned! It was he who told me that Freudsheim had left Berlin and was living in Cologne, where he had become deputy police commissioner. I got to make sure that Otto Freudsheim is the the tennis guy. I might be mistaken. Let me just look it up. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, she's just friends. I got all these admirers. None of them are really up to Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just like, I'm going to go and have an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Film producers and magazine writers and... 
and theater guy. Ah, no. Yeah. No, it is. It is the tennis player. And now he's like the the chief of police. I think it's a different era where like being the top tennis guy doesn't guarantee you like you're going to have to do other work, but they'll just give you a cozy position as like the chief of police because all the dudes respect you and Mm. you just go and play tennis with the boys. And (laughs) yeah. Yeah. That doesn't sound too bad. Nah, take that job. Yeah, why not? Um, all right. He still kept his apartment in Berlin, however, and according to Gunther, visited the capital every two weeks. Wonder what's he what he's doing? Hmm. Spending time between two towns. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I began to nag poor Gunther to arrange a date for me in Freudsheim. Perhaps an invitation to tea or something similar. It was not so easy since meeting was possibly possible only at weekends when Papa was off hunting. I was still a carefully sheltered girl. Mm-hmm. Dad mm-hmm. knows what he's got on his hands for yeah. sure. Yeah. There was great excitement when Gunther told me several weeks later that Otto Freudsheim would be expecting me at his apartment. Only now did I become fully aware of how reckless my plans my plan was. Yeah. There yeah. was no going back, but I was very apprehensive about what was to come. Alice was experienced in matters of love, so I shared my secret with her and asked her for advice. This is the advice yeah. she gets. The most important thing, she said, is to wear beautiful lingerie. You can't go in your woolen underwear. I'll lend you my set of silk undies. <laughs> okay. Okay. We, yeah. We're getting down. We're going to All bone right. town. We're going to the bone yard. <laughs> we're not messing around here. In your friend's underwear. Yeah. So okay. We're having, yep, having a normal Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Different times, Punk, different times. Different times, yeah. yeah. Punctually at five in the afternoon, I stood in front of the house, an old and elegant patrician mansion on Rauchstrasse. Inside, a broad marble staircase, luxuriously carpeted, led to the front first floor. Slowly, very slowly, I climbed the steps as if going to, in, to my execution. I rang the bell. Then the man, whom I didn't even know and whom I had been dreaming about for two years, stood in the doorway. Since the light was behind him, I couldn't see his face clearly. But he held out his hand, and his deep, gentle voice made me shiver. Please come in, Fräulein Lenny, if I may call you that. I am delighted to make your acquaintance. Then he helped me out of my black velvet coat, trimmed, alas, with fake ermine. After arranging my hair, I stepped into a living room, softly lit to suggest intimacy, I thought. I sat down in a comfortable armchair while he poured me a cup of tea. A faltering conversation developed, small talk about tennis, dancing, and various trivia. I grew more and more embarrassed. Gunther had told me that Freudsheim was 18 years my senior. At 39, he was already an elderly man. Oof. Oh, oh. shots fired. Lenny. Oh. I don't know how oh. I feel about Lenny anymore. Gonna barf. <laughs> uh, oh, she goes on here. At 39, he was already an elderly man, according to the notions of the day. Oh, okay. The longer he gazed at me, the more nervous I became, especially when his gaze rested on my legs. By now, I just just wanted to run home, but he put a a record on the gramophone, a tango. Unresisting, I let him draw me out of the chair, and as if hypnotized, I danced several steps with him, nestling happily against him. My dreams and yearnings were coming true. Then, as he lifted me bodily up in his arms and gently placed me on a couch, my happiness abruptly fled. All I could feel was fear, a terror of the unknown. As he virtually ripped the clothes from my body and with almost brutal violence, tried to possess me quickly and totally. The experience was traumatic. Was this love? 
I felt nothing but pain and disappointment. How far it was from my dreams and hopes. All I had wanted was tenderness, just to be with him, to cuddle with him, and to lie at his feet. I endured it to the end, then covered my tearful face with a pillow. A short while later, he tossed me a towel and pointed to the bathroom. You can wash in there. Profoundly ashamed and humiliated, I walked into the bathroom where I wept bitter tears. For the first time in my life, feelings of hatred rose in me. Yeah. When I came back to the living room, he was already dressed. Glancing at his watch, he said with insulting indifference, I have an appointment. Then, incredibly, he pressed a banknote into my hand. 20 American dollars, a fortune at the time. If you get pregnant, you can use this to get rid of it. I tore up the banknote and threw the pieces at his feet. You are a monster, I shouted and ran from the apartment, filled with rage and despair. My God. Mm. What a D-bag. She's throwing herself at him. You know, just... Be be normal, dude. Jesus. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. She writes him a letter uh, at some point here. And I want to make sure I get it because it's so interesting. In Dresden, so she goes to Dresden, uh, the memory of Frotzheim was sublimated into some of my later dances. Uh, and she goes on and talks about them. She did a cycle called got to come to my dance cycle, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, dude, it's the ninth. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> oh, groovy. 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 Yeah. yeah. The three dances of Eros. I called the first one fire, a passionate dance to music by Tchaikovsky. And the second one surrender. I chose Chopin and I used a piece by Grieg for the third dance release which was inspired by Gothic sculptures. So she's doing modern, like interpretive yeah. dance. Huh. Yeah. She wouldn't dance on points, but she, yeah. Um, one day to my astonishment, I found exquisite flowers in my room and a card, which said, forgive me. I love you. I have to see you again. Your Otto. I had never expected an answer to my desperate letter. And I never wanted to see that man again. Yeah. I want to make sure I get the bit about the letter. Yeah, so that very night, she says, I wrote a letter to Freudstein telling him about the love I once had for him and my boundless repugnance now. Mm. So he comes back with flowers and everything, which is just like, this is just shocking stuff. Scandalous. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but this is very interesting. I had never expected an answer and I never wanted to see him again. Yet now he was sending flowers. Why didn't I hurl them from the window? Why did I clutch them in my arms? Why did I kiss the card? I locked myself in my room and wept, wept, wept. Several days later, he appeared in person. I had felt all along that I would not have the strength to resist his insolence, and in some mysterious way, I was a slave to him. He ran his hand over my hair. I was shaken by your letter, he told me. Can you forgive me? I didn't realize how wonderful you are. He remained all day and all night, and I found him much changed. He'd become more tender. Again, I was hypnotized by his eyes and even more by his voice, yet physically I could feel nothing for him. He came back two weeks later, then a third time, treating me as if I had become his property, while I could think only of escaping from this bondage. Jeez. 
What a story. Yeah. 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 God. Right. What a piece of work that guy was. Absolutely. Absolutely. But also just like how casually she's like, yeah, just my, my first love affair was rapey with the best tennis player in the country. Right. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's very DFW in a way. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wild. All right. Um, but it is, you're right. This thing about her, she's captivating to men clearly um, of all, right. all stripes. Right. And she can also be hypnotized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the yeah. first time she encountered this guy, he just stared, stared at her. At her. Yeah. yeah. He's probably two got years, two years later. She's like, a, a, right, you know, right, right, yeah. right. He probably has like the cliff notes or the cheat notes for like mesmer somewhere right. in the background. Right. Oh, <laughs> right. this is how I'm going to, mm-hmm. is the PUA for the early 20th century. <laughs> just find her in the locker room and stare at her, bro. <laughs> That's how you pull. Yeah. This is how mm-hmm. you're going to get out of it, man. You're going to stare creepily at a hundred women. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 The Frotzheim system. Uh, it's a long acronym. Um, so this is called my first dance recital, and this is going to pay off what we've just gone through with, with dear Lenny. Mm -hmm. I was training harder than ever for several hours a day at night. I fell into bed exhausted and it was difficult getting up the next morning. My darling mother spoiled me terribly, even putting my shoes and stockings on me in bed. Then came the day I had to prove myself. 23rd of October, 1923. I stood on the stage of Munich's Tonhalle, waiting for the music to begin. At that time, inflation was at such height that Harry Sokol, oh, Harry Sokol is a fellow who was obsessed with her, adored mm-hmm. her. He was a Jewish um, financier. He mm-hmm. financed her dancing, and then he would go on and produce very, very many films. Um, with her. But it just that... Yeah, yeah, with with her yeah. in in them, but also just like generally. But yeah. he he also like later she moves somewhere like into a flat somewhere, and like he gets the flat across the hall without kind of telling her, right? Like he Ew. just moves in next door. So yeah. he's obsessed. He's obsessed with her too. Yeah. Um, at the time, inflation was at such a height that Harry Sokol had to shell out only one U.S. dollar to pay for the hall and the necessary publicity. My first recital, financed by my father, was to take place four out days later in Berlin, but Sokol felt that I should have some previous experience and had arranged for me to have a kind of dress rehearsal here. The room was barely one-third full, for of course I was unknown, and the few spectators had probably obtained free uh, passes from the manager's office. <laughs> the emptiness of the room didn't bother me. However, I was simply happy to be dancing in front of an audience, and I could hardly wait to get on stage. My very first dance, study after a gavotte, was applauded enthusiastically, and I had to encore the third. The clapping became louder and louder until during my final dances, the audience demanded repeated encores. I danced on until I was too exhausted to continue. Die Münchner Neusten Nachrichten said, This is a marvelously gifted dancer. Her artistry is utterly authentic and original. For instance, in Valse Caprice... And in the delightful final dance in which she had all the grace of a swaying poppy, a bending cornflower. And then I stood on stage in Berlin, once again at Blutner Hall. The place was almost sold out. Friends had made sure of that. This time I had to prove to my father that there was no other future for me. I had to convince him, conquer him, triumph over him once and for all. I was dancing purely for him and I gave it my all. 
At the end of the recital, a wave of applause came crashing towards me, and as I curtsied, I felt my father's eyes upon me. Had he forgiven me? That night, I won my first great victory. Not only had my father forgiven me, he was deeply moved. Kissing me, he said, now I believe you. That was my finest reward. The evening was more than a success. It was a triumph beyond my wildest dreams. The next day, I sat in a pastry shop on Kurf, oh, Kurfürstendam. That's a tough one. I think you, I Read, think you nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. Um, <laughs> there's an umlaut in there, too. Reading the headline, A New Dancer. At first, it didn't even cross my mind that this referred to me. Then I noticed that the review was about my performance and that it was a hymn of praise to be repeated in every Berlin newspaper. John Schakowsky, the most knowledgeable and most feared dance critic in Berlin, wrote in Der Vorwarts, it was a revelation, an almost total realization of the heights of artistry which could be achieved in the realm of dance. Fräulein Riefenstahl came very close to the goal towards which her most famous colleagues have striven in vain the fulfillment of our hopes for dance in the future, that new spirit and supreme style. Fred Hildenbrandt wrote in the Berliner Tageblatt, when one sees this girl move to the music, one has an awareness that here is a dancer who will appear perhaps once in a thousand years, an artiste of consummate grace and unparalleled beauty. Wow. Okay, I was not expecting her to be like a generational dancer. This is, wow. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Neither was I when I was getting into it. And I will tell you, I'll skip ahead and and, and hear briefly uh, and go on a a slight tangent. When you watch The Wonderful, Horrible Life of Lenny Riefenstahl, they show her screening on a little um, on a little screen, the original, like the footage of I'm pretty sure Triumph of the Will. It might be either Triumph or, or Olympia, but Maybe I think it's Triumph of the Will, and she's watching it, and her comments are all like, "You see how it's like a dance? Mm. You see? So this is this is the er, this is the language that underpins her cinematic technique and style. She understands the body. She understands yeah. how the body moves. This yeah. is the grammar that she brought into cinema. This dance like understanding of motion, and it carries throughout her yeah. throughout her work. Yeah, fascinating. Very important to understand. Um. Overnight, my life veered off in an entirely new direction. I received offers from all sides and inexperienced as I was, I accepted everything without an (laughs) impresario's help, regardless of whether it made sense or not. It's so sweet and endearing. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll do do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she needed an agent or mm -hmm. a manager or something. Sure, big time. One of the first people to engage me was Max Reinhardt. I did six evening performances at his Deutsches Theater and several matinees at his Kammerspiele. I had no idea how Max Reinhardt came to notice me so soon. Only later did I learn I owed this to Dr. Wollmuller, with whom I had wagered that I would achieve my goal without a rich friend. I hadn't Mm. forgotten that and sent him two tickets for the Blutner Hall, but heard nothing more from him. As he subsequently told me, he had taken Reinhardt along to my opening night and Reinhardt had been so enthusiastic that he engaged me for his Deutsches Theater. This was the first time that a dancer had appeared as a sole performer at the most famous theater in Germany. This wow. is what we're dealing with. She does, yeah. and I don't. I, and I've I've had friends who are very very serious in the dance world, and I've in the theater world here in Minneapolis is a huge, famously huge center for dance. Mm. Uh, and this style of dance is something that it's modern dance. 
Mm-hmm. So she's doing these expressive interpretive things with ballet training. And I assume some other forms of sort of dance training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is like innovative and new uh, right. and a very, very big deal. Clearly. Yeah, and it's just, it, it's distilled into its own art form. This isn't dancing as part of a, a song and dance show or something. This is like, yeah, she's... dance, dance as the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Yep. And if you, if you've never been to like modern dance, like it's funny, like modern dance has like an almost like weird sound for mm-hmm. somebody who's maybe a theater. I don't know, man. Mm-hmm. Ugh, modern <laughs> dance. Really? Mm-hmm. Go, go mm-hmm. see some. You'll be you'll be shocked. It's, yeah, it's I can't a pretty say incredible I've ever, experience. I can't say I've ever seen any. Uh, to oh, be really? Honest. And uh, well, part, not as its own thing, right? Elements of it, you know, sneaking in. Like for instance, saw Kanye West during the My Beautiful. You and I saw him during the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, and he had all of those dancers out, and it was a very evocative. Uh, it was really something to see, but only I've only seen it sort of and. Uh, auxiliary to something else so i mean the closest that most people will probably get now is that famous episode of sunny where mac yeah. comes out and dances his coming out <laughs> and, right. which is that, hilarious yeah. Yeah, but that's yeah. that's kind of it i mean it's not just that right sure. there's there's more styles another another thing is if you're ever traveling mm-hmm. uh and you maybe are somewhere where you don't know the language so you're like mm, i don't know if i want to go see a play mm-hmm. uh the opera might have subtitles or whatever dance mm-hmm. You yeah. can go see dance anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere. Yeah. And the language is universal. So right. Yeah, right. something to think about. Something to think about. Uh, here's Lenny. Next, I received numerous offers from agencies. I danced in a different city almost every evening. Frankfurt, Leipzig, Dusseldorf, Cologne, Dresden, Kiel, and Stetten. And everywhere I experienced the same success with the public and the press. Rock, she's a rock star. Yeah, that's awesome. my mother. She's like suddenly a rock star. It's wild. Mm-hmm. My mother accompanied me on all these trips. After just a few months, I also received offers from abroad. Before the year ended, I had danced at Zurich's Schauspielhaus, at Innsbruck's Municipal Theater, and at Prague's Central Concert Hall. It was intoxicating. Even in Zurich, among the restrained Swiss, I do an encore my first dance, a Caucasian march by Ipolitov. That hadn't happened in any other city. And in Prague, I had to break off Oriental Fairy Tale and start again three times because the audience applauded my very first movement so enthusiastically that I couldn't hear the music. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, go Lenny. This is, that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I like and hearing about up. people winning. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Big fat dub. Yeah. She liked to dance most to Schubert's unfinished symphony. Uh, she says the physical physical strain was brutal. She oh, every was night, exhausted. Yeah, at your whole body into this thing. I can only imagine. Right, and she said that some some uh, at some of the recitals or performances, her encores increased the number of dances to like fourteen. Right, and and this is a time I'm sure you don't have now. You would probably have something like a like a sports medicine therapist afterward, ice you and stretch you, and you know make sure you. And this was you know all right, done for the night. Move on right. to Dusseldorf. Absolutely, totally yeah. right. She'd have a whole team built up mm-hmm. around her from like day one, mm-hmm. and like a contract and a deal, yeah. and a, watching yeah. her diet and watching you know right. making sure she had right. a rest and everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Let me see here. Let me uh let me don't stop. Let me take a bathroom break. I will be back. Oh in yeah. Just one minute. Okay, yeah, no worries. Uh hope everybody's enjoying this episode of Art of Darkness about Lenny Riefenstahl. We will get to the uh the National Socialist Party. It is coming. It's coming in hot. Uh, I just I feel so motivated to share this story of her her early life and these early successes, which are so formative for her. Uh, she goes on to say here she received uh, received film offers, but she did, didn't even consider them at this point. She wanted to dance, uh, and so she did. Uh, yeah, no. Let's let's share the incident of poor uh, Harry Sokol. So she had two guest appearances scheduled at Zurich's Schauspielhaus. And she writes, where I was to alternate with Tolstoy's play, The Living Corpse, starring Alexander Moisey, a marvelous actor with whom I quickly became friends. After spending an evening with him, I returned to the hotel quite late. I had already undressed when I heard a knock at the door. It was Sokol asking to come in. I refused. I'm tired, I said, and I don't want to let a man into my room so late at night. Come into my room then. I won't do anything. I just want to be with you. I almost pitied him and tried to calm him down. Be reasonable, Harry. I can't come to you. I would never be able to make you happy. He wept, shouted, threatened to shoot himself, and said so many dreadful things that I became quite afraid, threw my clothes on, left my room, and hurried downstairs to Hertha. Brad's back. Harry Sokol is knocking on her door in Zurich. And when she doesn't want to come to his room or have him in her room, he threatens to shoot himself. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So she's with her friend now. We didn't dare leave her room until the next afternoon when, to our great relief, we learned that Sokol had left town. The concierge handed me a letter in which Sokol apologized for his conduct. He did not wish to lose my friendship, and he promised never to harass me like that again. He wrote that he only wanted to make me happy, which was why he had arranged my dance recitals in Paris and London. That was a shock. I had no idea that he had organized and probably also financed the offers from Paris and London. Oh. Profoundly disappointed, I dropped the letter. No other dancer had performed solo in Paris after World War I. I had been so proud, so ecstatic to receive those invitations, and now this disappointment. When I picked up the letter and read it to the end, I lost all desire to dance in Paris and London. Sokol continued, Since you don't have the proper clothes to appear in these big cities... I have ordered a suitable wardrobe to be sent to your hotel room. You can take whatever you like. At that moment, my doorbell rang and a messenger brought in two armfuls of fur coats. Hertha signed, for the, signed the receipt for two mink coats, an ermine, and a sporty leopard coat trimmed with black leather. They were all beautiful, but I was not tempted, for the whole thing felt like a slap in the face. It would have been wonderful dancing in Paris and London and owning such furs, but what would it cost me? I would have had to pretend to love, pretend love, Put on an act. I could not, and I would not. Hertha, I said impulsively. Let's take the train back to Berlin. I wrote a few comforting lines of farewell to Sokol, asking him to try and understand, and then Hertha and I fled from the hotel. In the train compartment, I hugged Hertha, saying, you can't imagine how happy I feel after my decision. Now I am free again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so here now, we're getting to the incidents of her her uh, injury. And this is this is what stopped her dancing career. So, mm. my next recital took place in Prague at a theater that could hold three thousand spectators. Lenny on stage, three thousand people. Prague. Okay, 
Art of Darkness live, June what? (laughs) Yeah, June 5th, St. Paul, Minnesota. We're trying to pack in 20 to 30 people. You guys are going to, everybody's going to have a great time. Walden uh, Brewery is incredible. Eventually, we'll play Royal Albert Hall. It's a matter of time, Brett. It's a matter of time. Mm. Mm -hmm. Anna Pavlova was the only other dancer who had ever performed here. And tonight, the house was sold out down to the last seat. My evening was a triumph, but perhaps my last. While making one of my leaps, I felt a crack in my knee. Oof. The pain was so sharp that I could barely finish the dance. Now she goes through a um, like a litany of doctors. Yeah. Nobody gave her an x-ray, even though like the x-ray had been invented 30 years earlier. Yeah. Eventually, she would get um, surgery done. And she had like a like a piece of cartilage had like grown to the size of a walnut and had that removed. She's saying during that miserable period, when I could walk only with the help of a stick, Otto Frotzheim looked after me. Although before the accident, my tours had allowed me to meet him only rarely. He insisted that we become officially engaged. He had introduced me to his mother who lived in Wiesbaden and had begun preparing uh, for our wedding. I agreed to everything for he still had great power over me and I couldn't contradict him face to face, but I was secretly determined not to marry him. I knew we could only be happy, uh, unhappy. Man. All right. hmm, Just thinking about this guy, her father, you know, I think there's something, there's some coming attractions. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, This is where, she is on a subway platform on a cane. It's after the Vitzentide tennis tournament where Frotzheim, her, uh, I guess now fiance, wins the tournament, as mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. Just like super giga elite power couple. <laughs> right, right. Chad and Stacy. Stacy's unhappy. Stacy's yeah. like the most famous new dancer in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is on a subway platform and yeah, for, I, I think for Americans too, I don't think like Americans fully grok how urbane Europe was at this time relative to the United States. Like it, at that time, it was more urbane than America is now. Mm. Like it's just mm. city after city. They have subways, they have trains, they have like modernity is in full swing right in Europe right now. Yeah. And you know, in America, it's a different vibe. Yeah. Uh, she sees a poster for something called the Mountain of Destiny, or just Mountain of Destiny. Mm. And there was a genre of film in Germany at the time uh, that this this fellow named Doctor Arnold Funk, I think, pioneered. Okay, and they were called mountain films. Oh, and they okay. would be, yeah, and they would be filmed on location. Like I think Doctor, this Doctor Funk fellow was the first person to like film something like entirely outdoors or like entirely on location, like with cool. no interiors anywhere else, no studio. I um, would watch. I would watch some of that. That seems interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. very very interesting stuff. And so she she goes to the cinema, and she becomes totally obsessed with mountain of destiny and with these mountains and to the point where she go there in the dolomites she like weeks later travels there hoping to meet them right huh so hoping she, to so meet she, the filmmakers 
yeah, hoping to meet the filmmakers. Yeah. And cool. there's a fellow named um, Louis Trinker. And she goes, uh, you know, down there and spends like four weeks down by the mountain where they shot it. And then, then it says, she writes, then on the day of my departure, I met someone at the hotel. It was a meeting that I had greatly hoped for. In the lobby, I had come up on. That's the other thing about this this time and age. Like it's you can't find somebody on social media. Of mm. course not. You can't no. get a phone book. There's no phone book for like, ah, oh, where am I gonna, you know, you'd have to mm. like send a card to the production office and then hear back. So like somebody in Lenny's position who's kind of footloose has mo- a bit of money, mm-hmm. just like, ah, I'm going down there. Yeah, I'll just go there and run just into gonna, it. Yeah. Like a, a, can you imagine actually living in the material world? <laughs> right oh. you gotta go track somebody down <laughs> right yeah can you imagine like going to a library because that's where you're gonna get the book incredible right. wow yeah mm-hmm. anyway um so in the lobby i had come across upon a poster announcing that the motion picture mountain of destiny would be shown that evening at the hotel and that the leading actor louis trenker would be present at the screening after dinner i nervously watched the film though i knew almost every sequence of image images by heart Nevertheless, the effect on me was as powerful as it had been in Berlin. As soon as it had ended and the lights had gone up, I hobbled back to where the projector was set up and found, standing next to it, a man whom I recognized as a star of the movie. Are you Herr Trinker? I asked somewhat diffidently. His eyes slid over my elegant clothes. Then he nodded and said, yes, I am. My embarrassment evaporated. My enthusiasm for the film, the mountains, and the performance simply bubbled out of me. I'm going to be in your next picture. I said uh, self-confidently, as if there, this were the most obvious thing in the world. Trinker eyed me in astonishment and began to laugh. Can you mountain climb? An elegant little lady like you shouldn't be traipsing around mountains. I'll learn how. I will definitely learn how. I can do it if I make up my mind to. Again, I felt a sharp pain in my knee. An ironic smile flitted across Trinker's face. Gesturing goodbye, he turned away. I called after him. Where can I write to you? Trinker, Balzano, that's enough. So she goes back to Berlin. She writes a letter and she's back in Berlin and she she recognizes Dr. Funk, the director at a, at like a at like a coffee shop. Mm. It's like a pastry shop. Mm. Um Oh, oh, wait, no, it's not, it's not a, a chance meeting. They, they agree to meet. In any case, yeah. they, she's going to meet him. So she meets him and she says, excuse me, are you Dr. Funk? Uh, are you Freudlein Riefenstahl? We sat down. I opened the conversation. She says, at first I was inhibited by his timidity, but little by little I grew livelier, almost rapturous. Dr. Funk sat opposite me, mute, his eyes almost constantly lowered to his coffee cup. He asked me only one question. What kind of work did I do? Trinker had obviously not sent him my letter and my photographs. Dr. Funk knew nothing whatever about me, but hesitantly he began to talk. He was supposed to do a picture for Ufa, but had no subject as yet. Ufa is like the the state, the big like studio in mm-hmm. Deutschland. I think it was eventually like Nazified. I mean, sure. the Nazis took it over. Yeah. yeah. I didn't dare ask him for a part. I simply told him that I would love to be involved in his next film, if only as a spectator. Now, what happens is she goes and she has uh, her surgery and 
uh hang on here. i gotta turn the heat down in our house i'm getting all so i'm getting all all jacked up talking about <laughs> lenny reefenstahl and her her burgeoning film career that's about to start here yeah. it's gonna be now is this and maybe this is a silly question maybe we can't answer it is her wanting to meet this funk guy arnold funk is this more like going to meet michael bay or going to meet uh christopher uh, nolan neither neither, neither. Okay. funk funk was um let me let me find you a little bit about him because i think it'll be helpful to yeah. uh to give you some context he was super it might be more like meeting ari aster a few oh, okay. years ago yeah yeah because okay so uh he was a german film director and pioneer of the mountain film genre He's best known for the extraordinary alpine footage he captured in such films as The Holy Mountain, The White Hell of Pitzpalu, Storm Over Mont Blanc, The White Ecstasy, and SOS Iceberg. And he, yeah, he was instrumental in launching the careers of several film marker, makers during the Weimar years in Germany, including uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. Right. My understanding of this is that he, he had like, he had some difficulty getting his films made and distributed okay. like initially and they weren't it, it was because people people thought because these films are often like very plot thin mm. right the, like the early films it was more right. just about like showing them out they were like yeah. proto the kind of documentaries yeah. but eventually he flips the script i actually think it's going to be it's going to be talked about here okay um so she's laid up uh getting getting this surgery and she writes the third day after my operation, when the nurse announced that I had a visitor, I was incredulous for no one knew where I was and who should it be, but Dr. Funk, he looked pale and exhausted. And as the nurse left us, he said, I brought you something. I spent the last three nights writing it for you again, the Lenny effect. And he handed me a bundle wrapped in paper. I unpacked it slowly. Inside was a manuscript. And on the first page, I read The Holy Mountain, written for the dancer Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh I cannot put into words my feelings at that moment. I laughed and wept with delight. How is it possible, I wondered, that a wish could come true so quickly, a wish that I had never even uttered? Hmm. And it goes on. I had to stay in bed for three months, three endless months, not knowing whether I would be able to move my leg as before. And during this time, Dr. Funk went through the entire film with me, scene by scene. (laughs) His faith and confidence were unshakable, as if there was no doubt that the operation would be a success. In the 13th week, I was finally allowed to stand up. The physician and the nurse hovered near to help me take my first steps. And I was in luck. I could bend and move my knee without pain. Hmm. So very good. Yeah, and I, this is where the business with Otto changes. A change occurred in my private life too. I learned from tennis friends that Otto Freudsheim, my fiance, was having an affair with a tennis colleague. Unbelievable! Can you believe this, Otto guy? <laughs> <laughs> they had shared a room for a whole week. Ugh. Painful in a way. Uh, as this news was, I saw it as a stroke of providence. I could finally who's, break who off. Who steps out on Lenny Riefenstahl? Who's Lenny Riefenstahl's had surgery? She's laid up for three months. He can't keep it in your pants, right? Right? Yeah. She's the catch of the. She's the catch of the decade. Yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna say match point, <laughs> Lenny 
ridiculous, Otto. <laughs> Don't like that guy. No. That was my name in German class. They called With me Otto? Otto. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. It's fate. Not all autos. No, not That's all what autos. I gotta say. Hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this is good for her because she says, I could finally break off all connection with that mm. man. A decision for which I had previously been unable to muster enough courage. Yet I still suffered at the thought of the final parting. Freitzheim wouldn't hear of it. Surprise. He kept sending me letters and flowers daily. And one day he stood outside my door asking if he could come in. I knew that if I let him enter, I would be at his mercy again, but I still found it hard not to open the door to him. He must have heard my sobs for he did not go away. He kept knocking and begging me in his gentle, seductive voice. Lenny, let me in. Lenny, Lenny. I did not yield, however, although it was the most painful decision I had ever made. After his footsteps faded, I wept all night. Hmm. All right. So now she's here with uh, Trinker and Funk, and they are going to go and shoot uh, the Holy Mountain. Hmm. And I'm coming to the end of my notes here that I have about the early life. And uh, here's another incident that happens that's Hmm. quite funny. Uh, Let's see. I want to make sure... Some other dude pounding on her door in the middle. No, of the night? It, it kind of is. It kind of is. I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, this is very interesting. All right, so they're down uh, by these mountains, getting ready to to shoot uh, the holy mountain, and. It was already past midnight when Fonk opened a bottle of champagne and we pledged our friendship and drank to the success of our film. Then when Fonk stepped out for a few moments, Trinker hugged and kissed me. Mad boy. It may have been the champagne, the delightful prospect of our future work. They're having a showmance or yeah. just the atmosphere of goodwill. But all I knew is that this was the first time I had ever lay in a man's arms under the spell of happiness I had never known before. Mm-hmm. When Funk returned and saw us embracing, he looked thunderstruck and his face was ashen as I pulled away from Trinker. What worried me most was that this incident might endanger our project. Would this destroy my dream of playing in the Holy Mountain? There was an instant of of tension and Trinker stood up and said, it's late. I'll see Lenny back to her hotel. No, I'll take Lenny back uh, to the hotel, said Funk. Trinker, happy to withdraw, murmured as he shook my hand. I'll stop by to see you in the morning before I head back to Bolzano. I would have given anything to leave with him, but I felt too sorry for Fonk. No sooner were we alone than he collapsed, sobbing and burying his face in his hands. From his incoherent, almost intelligible words, I learned how deeply he cared for me, how much he had hoped and dreamed about me, and how terribly wounded he had been by seeing us embrace. I tried to comfort him when he when he caressed my hand, saying, you, my diatima, which was the name of my role in the Holy Mountain. Get it together, man. Get yes, a grip. Seriously. <laughs> Eventually, he stood up, handed me my coat, and said, I'll take you back to your hotel. You've got to rest. Forgive me. Silently, we walked through the streets in the cold night air until Fonk halted abruptly at a small bridge and, with a low cry, ran down the slope toward the river, apparently to jump in. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Guys are just constantly like, if I can't have you, I'll die. 
we need a Lenny containment unit. Yeah, we've got, we've got to like, shut down the dance, the, the showbiz industry until we figure out what the hell is going what on. What the hell Lenny to do with Lenny Reef install? What is the half life of exposure to Lenny Reef install? What a Chad. What a Stacy. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I threw my arms around him, desperately trying to hold him back while I shouted for help, but Fonk was already up to his hips in water, and I wasn't strong enough to pull him out. Then I heard footsteps and voices. Some men came running and handed, uh, hauled Fonk out of the water. He was shaking with cold, but offered no resistance. We took him in a taxi to the Freiburg Hospital. He was feverish and delirious, but they allowed me to stay with him until he fell asleep. Had to have been drunk. Yeah, Dejected probably. and unspeakably sad, I went to my hotel. What would happen now? What was I to do? The film couldn't possibly be made. There were no answers to any of my questions, and the situation gnawed at me through the few hours until dawn. In the morning, there was a knock at my door. When I opened it, Trenker stood there, and I let him in. For a moment, we exchanged embarrassed looks. Then he hugged me, and I began to sob as I told him what I had gone through with Funk. He's crazy, Trink said. Trenker said angrily. <laughs> He'll come round. I know him. He went mad once before while we were shooting Mountain of Destiny. <laughs> I love this idea of this like geologist film director who's he makes the mountain movies. Right. I fall in love with the women and yeah. I go crazy. I, I go throw crazy. myself into the into the river. But uh, the actor's like, that's just yeah, the director. That's what he does. Yeah, we yeah. need we truly do need more energy like this back in the world. There's not, there isn't enough. There's of none right. of this anymore. Yeah. It's all been taken over by bean counters and professionalism. <laughs> and mm. yeah, we need this kind of reckless passion, obviously mm. without harming one another. You got to try yeah. to avoid that. But like, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, uh, then, <laughs> then like the door flies open and Funk enters the room. This is like a, a French play now. Raving like a madman, he jumped on Trinker, who being a stronger man, grabbed and held him. But Funk was beyond control. He tore loose in a Brutal fist fight began, growing oh more God. and more violent. I tried to pull them apart, but it was no use. I ran to the window, opened it, and climbed onto the windowsill as if I were going to jump. My ploy worked. The men stopped fighting. Trinker lifted me down into his arms, and Funk stormed out of the room. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, like, uh, it goes on anyway. She gets <laughs> letters, flowers and letters. And it's like, we're still going to make this movie. Of course. And they're going to shoot it in Switzerland. And they start to teach her how to ski. And then things like, I think it's on this film that things really go like, it might be this or a later film. Yeah, there's a different film. But it's almost like a comedy of errors. Like one actor breaks a leg. The other actor breaks a leg because they're all skiing, right? You can imagine these mm. movies. It's just like mm. these movies would have been like the IMAX of their day, right? You right. can imagine you're in Berlin. You can't afford to go to Switzerland, but I want to see the mountains, you know, and mm. you and you you show up and it's just this huge cinema and they're swooping and climbing yeah. and there's yeah. expressive music and light and the light cool. through the clouds. And yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very cool fun. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I looked okay. up uh, Lewis Trinker and an image and Arnold Fonk just to see, you know, what's the competition here? Uh, yeah. Lewis Trinker is much, much more handsome man. <laughs> you can well, it's the actor versus yeah, the, the director. Versus the director. I, it's yeah, I don't no competition. No competition. Yeah. All right, we're into our well into our third hour on this episode. Mm -hmm. I think we're gonna have at least 
three more to go. Mm-hmm. So buckle up, Brad. Get ready for it. Buckle up, everybody. Brad, can you? Will I go and uh, take care of some business real yeah. quick? Will you tell people about? Tell people about the Patreon. Tell people about the book club. Tell people about Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. And, oh yeah, and the other stuff we have coming because this we're doing. We're doing a great film director from frankly the the third reich and mm-hmm. we're doing a great film director from the soviet union yeah yeah pretty much back to back yeah yeah um yeah so uh yeah patreon.com slash art of dark pod um join in for or five dollars a month and you get access to the after dark episode which is a approximately 30 minute uh bonus episode attached to each episode that's both these core episodes like we're doing right now and the dark room episodes which we have a number of them that's when we have a guest on to kind of dig a little deeper into a, a, a certain aspect of of one of the subjects we've already covered um uh, you will also get access to Bookends, our reading club. We meet uh, about once every month or six weeks uh, to discuss uh, either a a classic must-read uh, work or uh, such as Heart of Darkness um, and uh, what did we do most recently? Oh, uh, Borges's uh, Ficciones or a work of contemporary literature by a you know, a, a writer who's still around, um, as in Dan Baltic's Nutcranker and coming up soon, Aaron Gwynn's uh, All God's Children. These meetings you read, we read, we hang out, uh, we record it. If you can't make it, but you're still a Patreon subscriber, you can listen to the recording. Um, and you can also always chat with us on the Telegram channel, t.me slash Art of Dark Pod. Uh, what else we've got going on? Oh, yes. Coming up soon. We are doing uh, basically a week from today. We're going to be covering the great uh, Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. I think we're going to see some similarities to this story a little bit, but also a very different kind of figure um, uh, filmmaker who's thought to be almost too esoteric by many people, um, a true sort of idealist uh, artist. Um, and I, I think we're going to we're going to have an interesting episode because by the end of it, um, if you don't get Tarkovsky, I intend to help you understand how to watch a Tarkovsky film. So stay tuned for that. Wow, I really need that because yeah. I've never been able to get my claws into Tarkovsky. It took me a minute, <laughs> but I've cracked the Tarkovsky code, I think. Ah, so. <clears throat> very good. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brad, for covering. Well, I handled a little bit of business there in the background yeah. and yeah. We're out of the early life. Okay. We are into the career. And I'm going to go back in the Wikipedia and just bring us up and to the point where we're going to meet the the Austrian corporal. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. So as we've covered, Riefenstahl attended dancing academies and became well-known for her self-styled interpretive dancing skills, traveling across Europe with Max Reinhardt in a show funded by Jewish producer Harry Sokol. Mm-hmm. Riefenstahl often made almost 700 Reichsmarks for each performance and was so dedicated to dancing that she gave filmmaking no thought. She mm-hmm. began to suffer a series of foot injuries that led to a knee surgery that threatened her dancing career. It was while going to a doctor's appointment that she first saw a poster for the 1924 film Mountain of Destiny. She became inspired to go into movie making and began visiting the cinema to see films and also attend film shows. Uh, on one of her adventures, I, I like that, man. You got to have a life where 
like when they're writing your biography, when they're writing your Wikipedia, mm-hmm. you better damned well be sure that they could start a para with on one of his adventures. <laughs> right. <laughs> we need to return to adventure. Return to adventure. Yeah. Don't outsource yeah. this stuff to to Twitter or to right. other corners of the internet. Mm-hmm. Go. Go yeah. to the show. Mm-hmm. Go. Take the trip. Mm-hmm. All right. She uh, on this adventure. She met Louis Trenker, the actor, uh, Mountain of Destiny. Then they met. She she meets Funk, the crazy director of Mountain of Destiny. <laughs> I must pioneer. have you. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Uh, I listen. I'm going to say it right now. Lenny Riefenstahl is my most problematic wood. <laughs> <laughs> I started right. to have it's, it's difficult not to kind of like cr- like crush on her a little bit like when you're reading Dude, about her she's I, extraordinary. I looked, yeah, I looked up and the uh, I looked the up uh, the Holy Mountain the Wikipedia page and the cover is very evocative. I mean, it's basically mm-hmm. just her, but man, whoo. Yep, yep, yep. She was she was putting it in. She, mm-hmm. I mean, and she had talent too. She was right. not. Yeah, yeah, she's not eye can't just eye candy by any means. No. It's almost not fair that somebody who's that attractive is also that multi talented. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. Really, uh, it, it's it's a shame that history kind of history history is looming around the corner for Lenny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. She persuaded him to feature her in one of his films. And this is where the Wikipedia gets it wrong, right? It's a reef install later received a package from Funk containing the script. It's like, well, no, he literally brought it to her while she was laid up in the hospital. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, she made a series of films for Funk where she learned from him acting and film editing techniques. And there's a little story here that I'm not going to read where they did a screen test and it came out really, really poorly. Like she ah. was mortified at how she looked. And then I think it might have been it was Funk or someone else who was like, no, 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 we'll just we'll just light you differently. And mm-hmm. they lighted her differently, and she she Which was great. like, Whoa. That and she said that's where she learned the importance of lighting in film. Yeah. I don't yeah. think most normies have any clue that oh, the film things is- you can do with lighting and with like focal length and some other things are incredible. Yeah. It's remarkable. Like mm-hmm. film is just pretty much the capturing of light. Mm-hmm. like that's what cinematography i mean mm-hmm. there's more to mm-hmm. it of course sure yeah yeah um okay uh one of funk's films that brought reef install into the limelight was the white hell of pitts palu 1929 co-directed by gw pabst her fame spread to count- countries outside germany reef install produced and directed her own work called das blaue licht the blue light in 1932, co-written by Carl Mayer and Bella Blatz. The blue light is uh, fascinating. Oh, and on the After Dark, when I when I talk about the witch, uh, who the mountain witch who saves Lenny's uh, film career, mm. it's back when they were doing the mountain movies. So okay. if you want to hear that story, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Yeah, the, the blue light is worth seeing. And uh, this is like her feature debut. It's 86 minutes long. It has the the look and feel of a mountain movie. Lenny plays the star, directs herself, and plays the star. She plays a witch, Junta, 
uh, or a woman that they think is a witch. And, and here's the plot. The Blue Light is a frame story. So it starts with a modern couple. They arrive at a convertible automobile at an inn uh, in Santa Maria, a mountain village. Upon seeing an intriguing cameo-style photo of a woman, woman, they ask the innkeeper who she is. The innkeeper tells the young boy to bring in the book that contains Yunta's story. And the movie unfolds mm-hmm. as the innkeeper opens a very large book to its title page. Yunta, played by Riefenstahl, is a young woman who lives at the turn of the century apart from her fellow villagers. Due to her feral strangeness, she is considered to be a witch. When she comes to town for one reason or another, the townsfolk chase her away. They feel that she must be in some way responsible for the ongoing deaths of the young men of the village. I mean, in real life, the men were killing themselves constantly or trying to. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You could see where it's a very thinly veiled metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. This is because Junta is able to climb the local mountain unscathed while these young men continue to fall to their deaths, attempting to climb it under supernatural circumstances. And Mm. I could go on and read more. Uh, But it was a moderate commercial and critical success, performed well in Europe and the UK, some critics were divided. Yeah, go ahead, Brett. It's just a very, it's an interesting story. I mean, it, it's not mm. just boilerplate. That's a kind of a crazy premise. I like it. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's beautifully yeah. shot. Lenny's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, but in Germany, the, the critics were kind of divided. Mm-hmm. The left wing publications derided the effort. The right wing applauded it. Mm-hmm. Ah, this is a, a stellar example of German womanhood, you right, know, and right. and the she's climbing the mountains. The mountain is the the self. Here we have the Ubermensch, you know, the mm-hmm. Uberfrau, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and all of that. Um, and the left wing news publications were they're largely Jewish. A lot of Jewish critics, so mm-hmm. there's some there was some tension here. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to track Lenny's every single interaction with like uh, J- Jewish people or, right. or her assessment of the Jewish people because it would be it would take a scholar to really get that properly correct. Mm-hmm. But it is discussed that like this was a moment where she was like she noticed like ah oh, these leftists you know and a lot mm-hmm. of these leftists happen to be Jewish like what's going mm-hmm. on you know she that that kind of stung her a little bit at this point but it got mm-hmm. some pretty great reviews and. Mm-hmm. The film's aesthetic, uh, particularly the depiction of nature, is also said to have caught the attention of Adolf Hitler. Oh, okay. So now we are on Hitler's radar. Okay. You don't want to be on that radar screen. Mm, You want to fly fly below that radar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Here we go. The film won the silver medal at the Venice Film Festival, but was not universally well-received, for which Riefenstahl blamed the critics, many of whom were Jewish. Upon its 1938 re-release, the names the names of Balaz and Sokol, both Jewish, were removed from the credits. Don't love that. Don't like no. that. Yep. No. Some reports say, coming attractions, the AI is going to wipe out people. Yeah. Don't like that. No. Some reports say this was at Riefenstahl's behest. See, so we get into this little tricky business here. Right. In the film, hmm, Riefenstahl played an innocent peasant girl who is hated by the villagers because they think she is diabolic and cast out. Mm. She is protected by a glowing mountain grotto. Cool. 
Okay. Co- according to <laughs> yeah, like you do. <laughs> Accor- I, we need a glowing mountain grotto. Yeah. 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 I, I, where it. do I get one of these? I don't know. Uh, yeah, got to go to a mountain. <laughs> uh, Riefenstahl received invitations to travel to Hollywood to create films, but she refused them in favor of remaining in Germany with a boyfriend. Hitler was a fan of the film and thought Riefenstahl epitomized the perfect German female. He saw talent in Riefenstahl and arranged a meeting. Was she blonde, blue-eyed? Um, you know, I the photos I've seen of her, her hair is kind of this. darkish. Yeah, I like think she's black, I think she's but... like kind of dark, darker. Yeah. Okay. Let me uh you could find some pictures from so I'm gonna look up Lenny Riefenstahl. I should know that. Uh Lenny Riefenstahl, let me see here. The whole wonderful, horrible life. You should look that up too while I am as well, Brad. I want to find some stills. It's it's tricky because everything's black and white. Right. Uh, yeah. So I guess maybe it's uh, older color pictures when she's an older woman, her hair's blonde. Yeah, but, her hair is you know, blonde. Yeah. Yeah. Can, that's not that hard to tr- fake. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, it's all good. Yeah. Well, how do you think Hitler's gonna be when we meet him? Um uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a neurotic, insane, but weirdly charismatic asshole. That'd be my guess. <laughs> that's my. That's just my guess. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I'm seeing that she had. He's like, going to be on his best like, behavior when he meets Lenny, though. I'm sure. Like, that's going to probably be the most. I don't think he's going to be like throwing himself into the river. Uh, for her mm. love and affection, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think he'll probably be as normal as he can possibly be. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I looked it up online and it says black hair, brown eyes. So I, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't really exactly know. She could have yeah. been dying her hair there when she was. I mean, she must have been because she was quite old. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, mm. no biggie. Okay. Just kind of curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. All right, so let's get into it here. Well, I've got this picture of her that would suggest blue eyes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Blue eyes and kind of like a brown, darker brown hair. So, uh, ooh, I think I think I might have had coffee here. Ah, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got to stay caffeinated. Oh my god, when we do these long episodes, I got to stay all all jacked up here. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's meet. Uh, let's meet the Austrian corporal. Okay. All right, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hang on here. Hang on. Hang oh. on. Pausing for dramatic effect while we lead into the uh, what is certainly to be quite the turn. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. It's called a fateful meeting. When I returned to Berlin after touring with the Blue Light, the city was filled with posters announcing that Adolf Hitler would be giving a speech at the Berlin Sports Plaza. On the spur of the moment, I decided to attend. I think it was late February 1932. I had never before been to a political rally. The sports palace was so mobbed that it was hard to find a seat. Finally, I managed to squeeze in among people so excited and noisy that already I regretted coming. But it was almost impossible to leave, for the crowds blocked the exits. At last, after a brass band played march after march, Hitler appeared very late. The spectators jumped from their seats, shouting wildly for several minutes, Heil, Heil, Heil. Mm. I was too far away to see Hitler's face, 
But after the shouts died down, I heard his voice, fellow Germans. That very same instant, I had an almost apocalyptic vision that I was never able to forget. It seemed as if the Earth's surface were spreading out in front of me, like a hemisphere that suddenly splits apart in the middle, spewing out an enormous jet of water, so powerful that it touched the sky and shook the Earth. I felt quite paralyzed, although there was a great deal in his speech that I didn't understand. I was still fascinated, and I sensed that the audience was in bondage to the man. Now, this is what, 1932-ish? 32, okay. yeah, right. Okay, so now, the next day, simply in order to talk about Hitler, I met my friend Manfred George, editor of the Berlin uh, evening newspaper Tempo at the Ulstein Publishing House. Until that day, I had no idea what it meant to be a Jew. It was never talked about in my family or among my friends. Had I not been friends with Monfred George, I might have become more entangled in the national socialist idea. Uh, although an ardent Zionist, he too failed to foresee the full scope of the imminent danger and his verdict on Hitler was brilliant, but dangerous. All right. So, you know, and, and she's sort of going, yeah, she basically just said there, like, I had a Jewish friend, <laughs> like right. sort of like prevented yeah. me from going. Yeah, because she never, she does never become uh a a party member oh really that's important. okay that's important yeah, to know that's huge yeah, yeah. no it's a big deal <clears throat> all right okay after however <laughs> after hearing hitler's speech at the sports palace i wanted to meet him personally i wanted to form my own opinion of him was he a charlatan or truly a genius i simply wished to learn more about him the closer we got to the day of departure for Green Greenland, the stronger became my desire to meet this controversial man before I left. Although I apparently had little hope of receiving an answer in time, I wrote Hitler a letter, every word of which I still remember, for I have often had to quote the text. I posted my letter on the 18th of May, 1932. And again, this is he's a just a heavy-duty political figure at this point who's released a best-selling book and who has like a po wildly populist movement. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's important to I think important to have that context. Right. This, this is, isn't like Hitler in the middle of the war. This is right. earlier, earlier. Mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Recently, I attended a political rally for the first time in my life. You were giving a speech at the Sports Palace, and I must confess that I was so impressed by you and by the enthusiasm of the spectators that I would like to meet you personally. Unfortunately, I have to leave Germany in the next few days in order to make a film in Greenland, so a meeting with you prior to my departure will scarcely be possible, nor indeed do I know whether this letter will ever reach you. I would be very glad to receive an answer from you. Cordially, Lenny Riefenstahl. She doesn't just stop there. In the Nazi Party newspaper, Volkischer Beobachter, I found the address of the Brown House in Munich to which I sent the letter. However, the newspaper said that Hitler was not in Munich at the time. time he was campaigning in Oldenburg, North Germany. I, therefore, could not count on a response before I sailed. Mm -hmm. During those days before my departure, I was surprised by an unusual visitor, a very senior Catholic priest who later became Cardinal of Cologne, Monsignor Frings. He had already written that he had been asked by his superiors in Rome to meet with me, and now I learned why. Monsignor Frings asked me whether I would be willing to make films for the Catholic Church, the one true faith. Hmm. As a Protestant, I was absolutely amazed by this offer. <laughs> From my conversations with the priest, I learned that the blue light had had a strong impact on the Vatican, and more than huh. anything, it was the mystical character of the film that so appealed. 
I found the priest very likable, and I did not want to disappoint him. But I didn't care for the idea of making films with, with prescribed themes. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I thanked him for the honor and asked him if I could think it over until after my return from Greenland. All right. One day before our trip, my telephone rang and the voice said, This is Bruckner, adjutant to the Führer. I held my breath. The Führer has read your letter and has told me to ask you whether you could possibly come to Wilhelmshaven tomorrow for the day. We would pick you up, and I'm going to go on. We would pick you up at the railway station and drive you to Horumerzil, where the Führer is currently staying. There was a pause. Then I heard, you could leave Berlin tomorrow morning and arrive at Wilhelmshaven at 4 p.m. I thought someone was playing a prank on me, so I shouted down the telephone, who is this? Are you still there? (laughs) Wilhelm Bruckner, I heard. What shall I tell the Führer? I don't know who you are. You say Quit you're playing on my ad- phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you say you're Hitler's adjutant? I asked, still skeptical, laughing. He said, yes, I am. Of course I am. You can believe me. Mm-hmm. I need to get my history uh, correct. Um, uh, Hitler, Reich's chancellor. When did that happen? Yeah, 1933. Okay. So at this point, yeah, I take back what I said earlier. He's already the Fuhrer at this point. In 1932, um, he is. Yeah, okay. Rose Fire on the lead of literally the Nazi, Nazi party, becoming the chancellor in 33 and then taking the title of Führer and Reichskanzler in 34. Mm. And so, yeah, His, she knows who she knows yeah. who he is. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's in he is the head of the I mean, he's the like fascist dictator of right. of the country. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's heavy duty. Yeah. When did mm. the when did the blue when did reef installs? I just want to make sure we're situated in the right blue, place. Blue light came out in thirty two. Yeah. So okay. All right. Good. Yeah. So this isn't like plucky young baby Hitler here. This is like you know the yeah. leader of the leader of the country. And I love Lenny's just like ah, I'm gonna write him a letter. I'd like to meet you. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And she knows yeah. she stands a chance. Right. All right. All right. So. And then he basically says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Hitler's adjutant. You can believe me. My doubts began to vanish, but suddenly it hit me that I was expected uh, at Berlin's Leta station tomorrow at the, that same time in order to go to Hamburg with the others. So she's basically got, has to decide, do I go you know, make my schedule for this film or do I go and see the Fuhrer? And she says, I'll come and see the Fuhrer. Wow. Okay. All right. And so she drives out there and here we go. The car stopped near the beach. Hitler came over and as he greeted me, a man sprang out from the group of people standing in the background. He obviously wanted to photograph the welcome, but Hitler waved him off. Don't, Hoffman. This could harm Fraulein Riefenstahl. I didn't understand. How could it harm me? Hitler wore a. I have to pause and say we're this is we're on page one hundred and six of her memoir. That is six hundred and fifty pages. <laughs> oh boy! And, yeah. But think about think about everything I've already read and told you. Right, it's a sixth of the Lenny Riefenstahl story. Crazy, incredible. Right, yeah. it's just incredible. All right. Hitler wore a dark blue suit with a white shirt and an unobtrusive necktie. His head was bare and he looked natural and uninhibited, like a completely normal person. 
in no sense like a future dictator. Indeed, he seemed unexpectedly modest. This Hitler appeared to have nothing in common with one I had seen at the sports palace. We walked on the beach. Bruckner and Schaub following a short distance behind. The sea was calm and the air unreasonably warm. Hitler looked out to the horizon through his binoculars and told me about the various types of boats he could see, and I had the impression that he was quite knowledgeable about them. Soon, however, he began to speak about my films. He made enthusiastic comments about my dance on the sea and told me he had seen all the films I had appeared in. The film that made the strongest impact on me was The Blue Light. Above all, because it is unusual for a young woman to win out against the hostility and prejudices of the motion picture industry. Mm. Mm -hmm. Hitler's like, you're a girl boss. Yeah. 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 Was it, and they walk on the beach. Did Hitler have his shoes off and his, is the slack cuffs of his slacks rolled up? I, I'm, I assume so. <laughs> they are already brown. Right. So I don't know. I assume. Yeah. I, yeah. I really don't know. I wasn't there, Brad. I know. I know. I'm just, you said they mm. went for a walk on the beach and I had a comical yeah. here in my head. Yeah. It's very funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that he's congratulating on her for like beating out the bros. Like, yeah. Respect. Very impressive. Yeah. yeah. Now that the ice was broken, Hitler asked many questions and I could tell he was well informed about my latest films. As I began to talk, he listened patiently for a long time. Then suddenly he said, once we come to power, you must make my films. Mm. Hey, boy. Remember, she played Faust. Right, right, right. Here we go. Yeah. Let's rock. <sighs> I can't, I said impulsively. Hitler looked at me calmly, displaying no reaction. I really can't, I said now, almost apologetically. Just two days ago, I turned down a very prestigious offer from the Catholic Church on the grounds that I would will never make prescribed films. I don't have the knack for it. I have to have a very personal relationship with my subject matter. Otherwise, I can't be creative. Hitler was still silent. Encouraged, I went on after a pause. Please do not misunderst uh, misunderstand my visit. I have no interest whatsoever in politics. I could never be a member of your par party. Now Hitler took me by uh, looked at me in surprise. I would never force anyone to join my party, he said. But when you become older and more mature, perhaps you will be able to understand my ideas. Hesitantly, mm -hmm. I said, after all, you have racial prejudices. If I had been born an Indian or a Jew, you wouldn't even speak to me. So how can I work for someone who makes such distinctions among people? I wish the people around me would be as uninhibited as, as, as you, he said quietly. And that was the conversation that took place between us. Meanwhile, Bruckner and Schaub had come over to us several times, reminding Hitler that he had to attend an election ra rally. I also wanted to say goodbye since I was planning to leave for Hamburg that night. But Hitler said, please stay here. I seldom get the chance to speak to a real artist. I'm sorry, I insisted. I have to board our ship uh, in time tomorrow. Don't worry about it, he broke in. You will be there tomorrow morning. I will arrange for a plane. Wow. Hey, he's get, getting the PJ out. Mm -hmm. Hitler's just like, yeah. Plane. <laughs> That's, that is another level of life. Like when you've reached a point where it's like, don't worry, we'll, we'll fly you out tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, in the 1930s. Damn. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a flex. Yeah. That's a flex. Yeah. He told Schaub to find me a room. And before I could protest, the cars arrived and everyone crowded in. 
They were already very late for the election rally. Perplexed, I remained behind with Shab. The tiny fishing village of Orumerzil had an inn with a bar and some guest rooms in which Hitler and his men were staying. Since Shab could not dig up a free room, he gave me his and bedded down somewhere else. Before dark, Hitler came back with his retinue, their cars loaded with flowers. At dinner, everyone, including Hitler, was in excellent spirits. He said no woman had ever been present at any such function, and for him, it was agreeable not to be surrounded only by men. <laughs> oh, really? Nazi party, bit of a sausage party. Yeah, well, you say Nazi party, I say sausage yeah, party. Yeah, Hitler's ha- yeah. Hitler's not having it. He's like, no. so good, Lenny's here. Yeah, it's really funny. Hmm. After she's hanging out with the boys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. After dinner, we all went outdoors, most of us strolling towards the sea. But Hitler waited a while, then asked me to accompany him, which I thought a little strange. But I didn't want to be impolite by refusing. Again, the two adjutants trailed at a short distance. Hitler was entirely relaxed. He talked about his private life and about things that greatly interested him, especially architecture and music. He spoke about Wagner, about King Ludwig of Bavaria, and about Beirut. But after a while, he suddenly changed his expression and his voice. With great passion, he declared, More than anything else, I am filled with my political mission. I feel that I have been called to save Germany. I cannot, cannot and must not refuse this calling. He, that dude thought about himself as an artist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And we said for a while that when we finally want to kill this show mm-hmm. in the distant future, mm-hmm. we just, we finally drop the Hitler episode. Yeah. Yeah. And disappear into the woods. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Throw ourselves into the lake. Yeah. Uh, this is the other Hitler, I thought, the one I saw at the sports palace. It was dark, and I couldn't see the men behind us now. We walked silently side by side until after a long silence, he halted, looked at me, slowly put his arms around me, and drew me to him. I had certainly not wished for such a development. He stared at me in some excitement, but when he noticed my lack of response, he instantly let go and turned away. Then I saw him raise his hands beseechingly. How can I love a woman until I have completed my task? Bewildered, I'd made no reply at all. And still without exchanging a word, we walked back to the inn there, somewhat distantly, he said, Good night. I felt that I had offended him and regretted that I had come in the first place. Yeah. Oof. The next morning. I regret it even more, Lenny. Whoa, um, doggy. Yeah. yeah. The next morning, they all had breakfast together. Hitler asked whether I had slept well, but remained rather taciturn, and his mind seemed to be elsewhere. Then he asked Bruckner whether the plane was ready, and when he heard that it was, he walked me down the steps. Kissing my hand, he said goodbye. Come back safe and sound and tell me about your experiences in Greenland. I'll get in touch when I return, I said. Be careful about assassination attempts. <laughs> Jeez. His voice was cutting in reply. I will never be the victim of an assassination of an assassin's bullet. Mm. We left. And as the car rounded a bend in the road, I looked back. Hitler was still standing in the same place, gazing after us. Mm. Ah, the cast of characters, the plot thickens in the Lenny Riefenstahl story. Mm. Now, I'm going to read a little bit about uh, back in Berlin. 
and this is some business with with Goebbels. Okay, I was back in Berlin. Hitler was not yet in power, and his party had suffered setbacks. The posters announced that he would be giving another speech at the Sports Palace. I had promised to tell him about Greenland, so I called the Hotel Kaiserhof and asked for Herr Schaub and Herr Bruckner. This time, Schaub came to the phone and seemed rather disgruntled. I asked him to tell Hitler that I was back from Greenland. A call came just a few hours later. It was Bruckner on the line wondering whether I had uh, time that same afternoon to have tea with Hitler. We settled on five o'clock. As I went up in the lift at the Hotel Kaiserhof, I noticed a short man with a thin face and big dark eyes wearing a raincoat and a felt hat. He kept staring at me unabashedly. As I subsequently learned, it was Dr. Goebbels, later to be propaganda minister. He got out on the same floor as I did, and Herr Bruckner, who was expecting me, also greeted the short man and said, Doctor, the Führer is still busy. Please be seated in the salon. Then Bruckner took me to Hitler's office. Hitler came towards me and greeted me warmly and without ceremony. His first words were, tell me all about your experience in Greenland. Enthusiastically, I described my expression, uh, my experiences and impressions. And as I was showing him photographs, Bruckner came back and said, Dr. Goebbels is waiting in the salon. Hitler broke in. Tell the doctor I'll come soon. <laughs> I've got Letty here. Yeah. Can't you see? He's talking about Greenland. Mm. He wanted to know more, and I was still so filled with the memories of our ex expedition that I kept talking as if I were giving a lecture on Greenland. When Bruckner reappeared and urged Hitler to come with him, Hitler stood up and said politely, excuse me, Fräulein Riefenstahl, but your description was so riveting that I, I am almost late for my election rally. Meanwhile, uh, all, women, always you making you late for the rally. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Lenny, Lenny, Lenny. I don't, she must have known her power over men. She's uh, just like at this I, point. I mean, this isn't for this isn't her first rodeo, right? <clears throat> mm. No. Yeah. Yeah, and she's playing quite literally at the highest level possible now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, Schaub appeared with Hitler's coat, and as he put it on, Hitler said to Bruckner, "Take Fräulein Riefenstahl along to the sports palace in your car. I'll see the doctor quickly." Surprised, I asked, "What does this mean?" Bruckner replied, "The Führer assumed that you were going to the sports palace too." but won't be able to make it on time. So I am to take you along. Wait here for one moment. I'll come right back for you. Everything happened very quickly. I was put in a car in which two other women were sitting, though I no longer recall their names, nor do I remember any details of the rally at the sports palace. Uh, so, right. Mm. The next when day. Her, I, mm, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. no ask. Well, I'm just curious. Like I'm having a hard time right now understanding what, Lenny wants from him like why is she she started this communication because she was sort of curious I, I don't fully understand why she's right. sort of, I don't I don't quite get it yet well he's the most powerful man in Germany okay you'll recall she was engaged to the the best tennis player in Germany right Lenny is attracted to Lenny wants to Power. scale the mountain yeah yeah. yeah. Okay. And okay. Lenny wants to under, understand Hitler was her mm -hmm. claim. Right. Right. You're you're asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it doesn't seem it, 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 thus far, mostly in her words, it doesn't seem like a particular interest or intoxication with his politics or anything. No. 
right? No, it's something about his personality if, and his. If position. she's to, if she's to be believed, right, right, okay. We don't have the most reliable narrator here. This, yeah, this well, there's also right. This, it's her. And yeah. She's like, I was on the beach and I told him, but you're a racist. I could never work with you. Like, I'm sure that happened. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes, good reminder, Brad, yeah. because. Uh, yeah, 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 we. Yeah, it's worth yeah, just yeah. kind of having it out there as, as as we go on here. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, mm-hmm. she goes on. The next day, I was amazed to receive an invitation from Frau Goebbels, whom I did not yet know. I was reluctant to accept, but but my interest in learning more about Hitler got the better of me, and my instinct was not wrong. For when I entered the apartment at Reichskanzlerplatz, Hitler was among the numerous guests. Nothing about him recalled the fanatical speaker of the previous day. As I found out from Frau Goebbels, whom one could ungrudgingly call a beauty, such a social gathering was always arranged whenever Hitler wanted to relax in the home of the Goebbels family after his strenuous campaign trips. Artists in particular were invited to such functions. It was here I met Hermann Göring, who was not yet as fat as he became later on when he was the Reich Marshal. He had read stories about my flights with Udet in uh, Greenland, and he wanted to know more about our work together. Goering really was very interested. He and Udet had become been in the same squadron during the war, though they hadn't been in contact since 1918. Then Dr. Goebbels discovered me, and again I felt his strange stare as he introduced me to several artists. He was himself witty and brilliant, uh, and a brilliant conversationalist, capable of sparking repartee. Nevertheless, although I wasn't able to account for it, I always felt uneasy in his presence. His face was not uninteresting. The large, dark eyes were striking, as were his high forehead, thick, dark hair, and well-manicured hands. The lower half of his face, however, especially the mouth, seemed somewhat coarse. It was odd that this man had such a beautiful wife. Magda Goebbels was a lady, aloof and self-assured, a perfect hostess whom I instantly liked. I did not know any of the 40 or 50 guests, but there was almost no political talk, the main topics of conversation being theater and various cultural events. You can see why this would be catnip to her. We're at the intersection of high culture, art, and Mm -hmm. political power all Mm -hmm. in one place. And we also see a little bit of 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 a trope that's repeated endlessly, which is powerful people like to have some artists around. It makes it seem more sophisticated somehow, right? Mm. This happens all the time. Oh, this is our painter friend who has, an, yeah, you know, sure. he has a... Sure. Yeah. We're available for parties. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll be, I'll be your token novelist at your fancy party. That's Whatever great. you need. Yeah. Fly me out. Yep. Token podcaster. <laughs> uh, trying to avoid Hitler, <laughs> which is, I love... <laughs> That's uh, that up till now has been the motto of Art of Darkness, but right, yeah. Well, okay, good job, it. Lenny. Yeah, <laughs> trying to avoid Hitler at Hitler's party. Right. I exchanged only a few words with him. He spent most of the evening on a small sofa conversing intently with Gretel Slezak, daughter of the opera singer Le- Leo Slezak. She was a well known young singer in her own right, and Hitler had been friendly with her for some time. I knew her only from the stage where I had seen her in a few operettas. She was blonde, a bit plump, but pretty and highly vivacious. Just before midnight, we don't call people plump anymore, do we? No. Just before midnight, when I was about to leave, this is she calls out two fatties in, in like three paragraphs here. She's got, she's got feelings about. <laughs> Lenny's got some. 
things you know, about yeah mm-hmm. you know her her dalliances with the nazi party are one thing but the fat phobia the fat the like... fat shaming lenny we really need to yeah reassess our yeah right um okay let's see just before midnight when i was about to leave hitler came over to me and to my uh surprise asked whether he and his photographer heinrich hoffman could briefly drop in at my place the next day as he wanted me to show hoffman my stills from the blue light Quite unprepared for such a visit, I asked nervously, would the day after tomorrow suit? Unfortunately not, said Hitler. Hoffman and I have to return to Munich tomorrow evening, and we won't be coming back to Berlin for some time. Mm. I thought of my tiny lift and uh, and said, I live five flights up, and the lift in my building is very small. Hitler laughed. We'll manage quite well without a lift. I had no business card with me, so I wrote my address on a slip of paper. The very next day, I anxiously awaited my visitors. My maid had prepared tea and baked the cake herself. She has a maid. Okay. Mm, And by the way, this, and I have some, some reading on this, like her association, by the time she's done with Triumph of the Will and with Olympia, she, Mm -hmm. she's kind of like the unofficial party documentarian. Mm -hmm. She's living in like a villa. She's like, sure. She's living large. So Lenny goes from solidly middle class to the equivalent of jet set mm-hmm. into the dumps after. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah after the war ends. Well, oh, I'm about sure. him, we're going to get there. Yeah. We're going to yeah. get there. Stay with me, Brad. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, so Hoffman, Goebbels, Hanf, Stengel, and Hitler arrive. Hitler's eyes were drawn to Keta Kolwitz's charcoal drawings. Do you like these? He asked. Yes. Don't you, Herr Hitler? No, he replied. Those pictures are too dismal, too negative. I disagreed. I find the drawings deeply moving. The expression of misery and hunger in the faces of the mother and the child is brilliantly done. His reply to this was, when we come to power, there will be no more poverty or misery. Then he turned away from the drawings and my maid served tea. I didn't like what Hitler had said. I was taken aback by his words, and I saw that he knew little or nothing about art. Fonk had given me these drawings, and when I told him about Hitler's imminent visit, he had advised me to take the Kolwitzes down, but I deliberately left them on the wall because I wanted to see Hitler's reaction. Okay. She also would claim that there was th- they did that um, exposition of like degenerate art or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitler and the, the Nazi party put that on. And Lenny says that was a moment. She says this in the in the documentary, The Wonderful, Horrible Life of Lenny Riefenstahl. She says that's a moment where she started to doubt everything else that he said. Because if mm. a man could be that wrong about art, mm. what else was he wrong about? Right, so, right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a brief conversation, Hitler asked to look at my photographs. When I showed them to him, he said, look, Hoffman, these photos are real compositions. You click around much too much. Better to aim for quality rather than quantity. I turned crimson. It wasn't tactful of Hitler, and I defended Hoffman. These photos cannot be compared with Herr Hoffman's. His job is to snap current events. He can't spend time on composition. Hoffman winked at me in gratitude. Meanwhile, Hanf Stengel sat down at my piano and improvised a few melodies. I noticed that this scene is, this is like straight out of a movie. This is wild. Yeah. I noticed that Hitler was glancing through a book on my desk. I saw that it was Mein Kampf. I jotted such comments in the margins as untrue, wrong, mistaken, though sometimes I'd put good, 
I didn't like Hitler reading these marginalia, no. but he seemed amused. He <laughs> took hold of the book, sat down, and kept leafing through it. This is interesting, he said. You're a sharp critic. But then we're dealing with an artist. Hitler never forgot that episode. Even years later, just a few months before the outbreak of World War II, I was reminded of it in the Reich Chancellery. Oof. Yeah. Okay. And it's really, really funny. I wonder if she would have probably asked him to sign it, right? Well, yeah. Yep. So she continues to be meeting with uh, with Hitler and company, and... Uh, there, there's an election. They lose the election. Uh, let me read this. This is another another Hitler party. Since we're this is the promise of the premise premise when we do Lenny Reef install. This is what you're here for. Yeah. All right. This is the sixth of November, nineteen thirty-two. So we've gone kind of a, a, a bit around in time here. Um, soon, I received another invitation from Frau Goebbels. Arriving very late, I was surprised to see how few guests there were. Only now did I learn that this was a special Sunday, Election Day, November 1932, when Germans were voting for a new Reichstag. The outcome, I would told, would be decisive for the party. I had never voted, however, nor did I do so this time. So I couldn't understand why I had been invited. So this is this is before he becomes Reich's chancellor. Mm-hmm. Um, it was evening already. One could uh, tell from the faces around me that the news was bad. The tension was hardly bearable. The radio kept reporting further losses for the Nazi party and gains by the communists. Everyone was very dejected. After the final announcements, Dr. Goebbels went into an a- adjacent room and could be heard telephoning Hitler in Munich, but I could make only uh, make out only a few fragments of their conversation. Around midnight, when the preliminary uh, tallies were reported, Dr. Goebbels looked worried. He told his wife, we're facing hard times but we've overcome worse crises. Yet I felt somehow that he didn't believe his own words. The next evening I went to Munich. I was scheduled to give a talk in connection with a new screening of The Blue Light at the Atlantic Theater uh, at the Isertor. Just as I was about to close the door to my sleeping compartment, I saw Dr. Goebbels standing out in the corridor. He was as surprised as I and asked whether he could come in and sit down for a moment. He had an appointment with Hitler in Munich, and he told me about his personal problems and the power struggles in the party. When he noticed how little I knew about all those matters, he changed the topic and shifted, oddly enough, to the theme of homosexuality. He said Hitler had an extreme dislike of homosexual men, but he, Goebbels, was more tolerant and did not condemn all equally. Hmm. Goebbels having a normal one. In my opinion... I said, the characteristics of both sexes are present in every human being, especially so in artists, but that has absolutely nothing to do with a defective or inferior character. Surprisingly, Goebbels agreed. Hmm. So there you go. Okay. Um, Is he just trying to get with her though? Yes. Correct. You know what I mean? Yep. 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 I've got a bit about that too. And that, and you're ahead with, ahead of of what I'm going to read. I uh, I understand like, men. I yep, get them. Yep, yep, yes, you do. <laughs> Here we go. Hey, Dr. Goebbels. According to the press, the power struggle in Hitler's party was still raging, and Dr. Goebbels, as Gauleiter of Berlin, was playing a major part. It was astonishing to me how much physical energy that little man possessed as each militant speech was followed by another. I didn't like him, but to be fair, he was very courageous. When he spoke to communist workers in Wedding, a poor district of Berlin... Ear mugs were hurled at him. 
He never left the platform on such occasions, even if he was injured and he nearly always managed to gain control of the angry crowd and win it over. Hmm. In Berlin, he was indispensable to Hitler. I found it all the more incomprehensible that the same man who had to devote his entire strength to this last phase of the struggle for power also tried to win me at any price and at such a time. Goebbels telephoned me just a few days after I witnessed Hitler's despair. What I had suspected was now confirmed. No day went by without a phone call from Goebbels. On some days, he even rang me several times and kept insisting that we meet. One afternoon, he stood at my door unannounced. Please, just for one moment, he asked uh, apologetically. I happened to be in the neighborhood. I found this very disagreeable, but I didn't dare turn him away. When I asked my maid to prepare some tea, he begged me uh, to be excused. Please don't bother. I've got very little time. I'm due at a meeting tonight. What brings you to me, doctor? I've got problems, and I wanted to tell you all about them. Oh, women love that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I am the right person. Goebbels ignored my response and began to talk about his problems, especially his political activities, in a manner that seemed arrogant and overweening. Boastfully, he assured me, I am the invisible wire puller in the Reichstag. I have all the strings in my hand, and I make the puppets dance. Hmm. This sounded so cynical that he appeared a real-life Mephistopheles hmm. at that moment, a man who would just as readily serve Stalin if circumstances demanded it. He was a dangerous man. Mm. Lenny makes that point, too, in the um, documentary where, because they keep peppering her about sure. her association with the Nazis. And she goes, I was an artist. Do we hold the the, uh, the artists who worked in the Soviet Union to the same standards? Right. And that's really kind of where it begins and ends. Uh, it's, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a good, that's a great point. Right. It's a fair yeah, point. I mean, and you know, right. And, you know, do we hold the people who made the propaganda films? Now, her her unique position is that she was she brought fine art to the make the creation of propaganda mm -hmm. in the triumph of the will, especially mm -hmm. Olympia. You can kind of go, OK, well, she filmed, you know, it did aggrandize, uh, you know, Germany under Hitler. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's a bit of a pickle. Yeah, it's a bit of yeah. a pickable pickle. All right, but that point about Goebbels, uh, who how he'd be willing to work for Stalin too. That yeah, and is very he's very telling. Cynical and arrogant, and it's really about his person. Sort of sounds like it's about his personal pride, and mm. and he's also probably showing off. I'm really Lenny. Listen, I'm really the one in charge here. I'm the puppet master. Right. Have you seen my wife? Have right. you noticed? Yeah, this is me. Yeah. Hmm. And going on, although I asked Goebbels not to visit anymore, his conduct didn't change. He must have noticed long ago that I did not care for him, but my rejection only encouraged him the more. Plainly, he could not grasp that a woman could resist his courtship, and eventually we got into an embarrassing argument. I had refused to receive him at home anymore, but when he promised to come just one last time, I unfortunately agreed, hoping he would finally give me peace. He was behaving like a schoolboy with a crush. His eyes shone as he said that in 1926, six years earlier, he had stood outside the Ufa Palace in Berlin at the premiere of the Holy Mountain, hoping to catch a glimpse of me. Mm. Until then, I had assumed that he was interested in me purely as an actress, but now I realized that he was after me chiefly as a woman. During all this flattery, he noticed an open book. It was Nietzsche's Also Sprach Zarathustra. He picked it up, leafed through the pages, and asked me whether I was an admirer of Nietzsche's. I said I was problematic yeah. yeah um i especially love his language and above all his poetry do you know nietzsche's poems i can't wait to do nietzsche on the pod yeah, um it's gonna be an instant banger yeah do you know nietzsche's poems i asked he nodded and immersed himself in the book then to my surprise he began to declaim passages like an actor i was glad to see him sidetracked 
But he put the book down, came over and gazed at me as if trying to hypnotize me. Admit it, he said. You love the Fuhrer. What nonsense, I cried. Hitler is a phenomenon that I admire, not a man to fall in love with. Now Goebbels lost control. You must be my mistress. I need you. Without you, my life is torment. I've been in love with you for such a long time. He actually knelt down in front of me and began to sob. It was sheer madness. I felt quite stunned at the sight of Goebbels on his knees. But then when he grabbed my ankles, it was too much for me, and I ordered him to leave my apartment immediately. His face turned ashen. But when uh, he still hesitated, I shouted, What kind of man are you? You have a wonderful wife, a darling child. Your conduct is simply outrageous. I love my wife and my child. Don't you understand? But I love you too. And I would sacrifice anything for you. Leave, doctor. I cried angrily. angrily. Leave. You are quite mad. I opened the apartment door and pressed for the lift. With hanging head and without glancing at me again, he left. The future minister of propaganda never forgave me for that humiliation. Yeah, so now boy. she has an enemy in Goebbels. It's not good. You don't really want him as your enemy, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. No, not unless mm. he's like downrange of your... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, boy. Okay. Well, we're coming up to some of the business around the major films. I've still got more Hitler here. No. Let's see. Did I cover some of this? Let me find it. Uh, let me see. Yeah. Well, in the interest of time, essentially, Goebbels, this is after that went down, mm -hmm. basically says, the Fuhrer has put me in charge of cinema, theater, press, and propaganda. I wanted to talk to you, therefore, about your future film projects. I read in the newspapers that you have been commissioned by UFA to do a motion picture that deals with espionage. How did you come to that subject? And it goes on like this, and they basically court her uh, in order to to get her to uh, uh, to to make cinema for them. Right. Uh, I'm going to read a little more here. On my return to Berlin, I was summoned by to the Reich Chancellery. As before, I was the only woman at the big luncheon table, and again, Hitler had the floor, occasionally uh, echoed by Doctor Goebbels, who, to my dismay, was also present. When the meal was over, I was again invited into the adjacent room by now familiar to me. A short time later, Hitler appeared with Goebbels and an embarrassing scene ensued as Goebbels and I tried to hide the tension between us. Tell me, said Hitler, about your work in Nuremberg. I couldn't control myself any longer and I poured out all the humiliation, harassment and trouble I had endured in Nuremberg. I believe what happened um, is that they got her to film like an early uh, piece of propaganda for the party, like an mm -hmm. early one of the rallies, this is not um, about the triumph of the will. Okay. Um, and I think she encountered a lot of like trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so she, pour, she poured out all the humiliation, harassment, and trouble I had endured at Nuremberg. I also told him about, about the bizarre interrogations of Rudolf Hess until choking back tears. I could not go on. Hitler's face turned crimson while Goebbels became chalky white as the Fuhrer leaped up and snapped. Doctor, you are responsible for this. It is not to happen again. The motion picture about the National Party rally is to be made by Fräulein Riefenstahl and not by the party film people. Those are my orders. Full of despair, I exclaimed, I can't. I absolutely can't. 
Hitler's voice became icy. You can and you will. I apologize for what you have been through. It will not happen again. Then he said goodbye and left the room without so much as glancing at Goebbels. The propaganda minister, his face stony, went off without looking at me either. Um, then she has to go and meet with uh, Goebbels, and Goebbels says, how dare you tell the Fuhrer these stories, and blah, blah, blah. Goebbels was furious. I can see you're a dangerous person. You're, uh, you're tip the, uh, you tip the Fuhrer off about everything. Get out. I can't bear the sight of you. I mean, this stuff has like the smacks of like, like high school level dramatics, right? Right. Just like, uh, Goebbels said this and Lenny said this, but Hitler Mm -hmm. said this and, oh, I hope Hitler likes me. You know, I mean, it's like, oh my gosh. All right. So now we're going to get back into the wiki and I'm going to do my best to, to move this sucker along, because I mean, man, this is this is just an example. We could go eight, ten hours on Lenny. We could do an entire season of hour-long Art of Darkness episodes to get at her story. So right, okay. right. All right. In 1933, Riefenstahl appeared in the U.S.-German co-productions of the Arnold Fonk-directed German-language SOS Icebag and the Tay Garnett-directed English-language SOS Iceberg. The films were filmed simultaneously in German and English and produced and distributed by Universal Studios. Her role as an actress in SOS Iceberg was her only English language role in film. So that's a bit of a side story. That that's quite a that's quite a fun cover. If you go to the Wikipedia for SOS Iceberg, it's her like in fur and there's like a polar bear behind her kind of okay. looking at her. Cool. Yeah. Very cool, fun. So it's a uh, plot at oh, a yeah. banquet uh, at the International Society for Arctic Research. ISAR the men, ISAR, the members toast scientist Dr. Carl Lorenz about to recreate famed explorer Wegener's ill-fated expedition. Lorenz's team consists of two scientists, Dr. Johannes Brand and Dr. Jan Mataschek, his friend Fritz Kummel, their financial backer John Dragan, and their pilot to the Arctic, Lawrence's wife, Hella, Lenny Riefenstahl. All right. That's cool. So she, yeah. she plays the pilot, you know, nice. it's just really fun. Yeah. You know, that is quite a cover. Watch. She's yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Just different time, man. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So getting back to, so now this is kind of the, we're into the propaganda film period, right? So mm-hmm. Riefenstahl heard Hitler speak in 32, which we covered. Uh, describes the apocalyptic vision. I've got one of the books here, um, one of the Folks, biographies. Uh, yeah, one thing. I, this is this is just an observation. If the first time you hear someone speak, you have apocalyptic visions, maybe just avoid that person. Just yeah, throw, you know what I mean. Right. Just go over yeah. there. Go away from them. Yeah, yeah. That sounds that sounds reasonable. Yeah, we, yeah. We're just like, oh, I had an apocalyptic vision. Don't like seek that person <laughs> person out. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Here's a little bit about her work at Nuremberg. Uh, she arrived in Nuremberg in August to take command with equal measures of steel and elation of a production staff of more than 170 people, including 16 cameramen and 16 camera assistant operating handheld cranked cameras under the direction of Sepp Algeier. Nine aerial photographers supplemented those on the ground, as did another 29 cameramen from the newsreel divisions of Germany's Ufa and Tobis film companies, as well as their counterparts from the European uh, subsidiaries of Fox and Paramount, whose footage would be at Lenny's disposal during editing. 
A technical staff of 10 was complemented by a lighting crew of 17, two full-time still photographers, one of them personal, 26 drivers, 37 watchmen and security guards, a sound crew of 13, two office workers and their assistants, including her skier lover, Walter Prager, working with her secretary, Erna Peters, and Guzzi Lanschner and his brother, Otto, both avid national socialists. Hans Schneeberger's new wife, Gisela, prepared publicity stills, and to ensure ideological integrity, the staff accommodated, uh, accommodated Dr. Herbert Seehofer, propaganda consultant to the National Socialist uh, Party. Oof! Boy. Such lavish, uh, lavish support is not unusual for a major studio film, but was unprecedented in reality-based filmmaking anywhere in the world, signaling the importance of the project and Lenny's stature, now light years beyond anything she had known or perhaps dreamed as a young dancer or actress. Hmm. A week after the rally ended, she would appear on the cover of Newsweek as Hitler's friend. And Janet Flanner, writing in The New Yorker, would be struck by the mere fact of her celebrity as she moved in her white greatcoat among the stormtroopers and SS men. A professional woman on her job, and so rare a sight in masculinized Germany today that among the quarter million spectators assembled, there wasn't a person who didn't know who she was. She is unique, and the white-skirted figure couldn't have been anybody else. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to read a little more. This is fascinating. Lenny met logistical challenges that would have defeated any film director without her sense of organization and entitlement. She drew again on her experience with Bonk, who had captured images from the edges of cliffs or from deep within glacial clefts. To ensure a variety of perspectives in Nuremberg, she secured vantage points on rooftops and from man-deep trenches and extendable ladders supplied by the Nuremberg Fire Department. She sent cameramen aloft in planes for aerial views and laid tracks on the ground for cameras to glide on while photographing Hitler, always from below, or clamped roller skates on her crew so they could execute moving shots that, in a studio, would have required rubber-wheeled dollies. To keep her cameramen from capturing one another in cross shots, though they can be spotted throughout the film, she dressed them in designer-made uniforms of light gray, not in SA uniforms as is everywhere reported. So they might blend into the crowd and still be distinguishable from the black or brown shirts when she needed to find them. Fireworks, magnesium flares and torches and smoke pots and braziers full of flames dramatized nighttime shooting, suggesting ancient rites made modern by wave after wave of flags, undulating oceans of them emblazoned with the swastika, the most recognizable and potent political symbol of the 20th century. Fortuitously, all Lenny Nuremberg's films were built around predetermined programs of events she could use as narrative armature. In compressing a week's events into two hours, she omitted some and reordered others for rhythm and impact, some atmospheric, some ideological. It goes on. <laughs> yeah. Parades and ceremonies contained their own small narratives of ritual and response, making plentiful use of the Nazi iconography of eagles, standards, helmets, belts, boots, and flags. Speeches somberly noted the death of President Hindenburg, though the entire rally can be read as a celebration of his passing. Oratory reassured the 100,000 rank-and-file members of the SA of unity and strength in the aftermath of the Rome Putsch, alluded to only as a dark shadow now dispelled. Uh, I believe Rome was like his his rival. Um, yeah. Rudolf Hess sang out the rally's theme at the emotional closing ceremony, 
the party is Hitler, but Hitler is Germany, as Germany is Hitler, Hitler, Sieg Heil. Mm. It's some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, boy. I mean, that stuff is, that is, I, whatever your politics are, like, that stuff is scary. When you start identifying, like, one man with the country, with the nation. Oh, yeah, you start doing that, like, neuro-linguistic programming trick, man, like that. You know you're trying to be, you're you're being manipulated, for sure. 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 Yeah. And, but, it, and yet you can understand the pull. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're, if your country's yeah. been falling apart, you were just defeated in a, in a world war. You feel like your country's been shamed. You've been demilitarized. Your, your money is inflating. You feel this threat of the Soviet Union at your back door. Mm-hmm. Communism is lurking everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's like a siren. Yeah. 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 It's a thing to believe in, man. Thing yeah. to believe in. Oof. Yep. All right. So here we go. Hitler was uh, immediately captivated by Riefenstahl's work. She's described as fitting in with Hitler's ideal of Aryan womanhood, a feature he had noted when he saw her starring performance in Das Blaue Licht, The Blue Light. After meeting Hitler, Riefenstahl was offered the opportunity to direct Der Sieg des Glaubens, The Victory of Faith, an hour-long propaganda film about the fifth Nuremberg rally in 1933. Mm. Uh, I've got a little more from her memoir... I think I may have already covered some of this stuff. Just want to make sure I'm not missing anything essential. Uh, yeah, no, we've already covered this stuff. Uh, there, yeah, okay, very good. Uh, uh, there's just one other thing I just have to get here. <laughs> oh man, there's just so much in this in this yeah. story. Uh, yeah. Okay, all right, let's keep a pressing on. Mm-hmm. The opportunity that was offered was a huge surprise to Riefenstahl. Hitler had ordered Goebbels' propaganda uh, ministry to give the film commission to Riefenstahl, but the ministry had never informed her. Riefenstahl agreed to direct the movie, even though she was only given a few days before the rally to prepare. Hmm. She and Hitler got on well, forming a friendly relationship. The propaganda film was funded entirely by the Nazi party. This is the first one. This is not... Um, this is not triumph of the will. This is not triumph of the will. This is the one that we talked about where she reported her problems. Victory uh, of the. What is uh, it? It's called. Let me look here. Hang on. The victory of faith. Okay. It, it sort of means like the victory of belief. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm looking something up in the background here. This is uh, okay. I'm going to see if I can pull it up. All right. Uh, during the filming of Victory of Faith, Hitler had stood side by side with the leader of the Sturmabteilung, Ernst Röhm, a man with whom he clearly had a close working relationship. Uh, Rome was murdered on Hitler's orders a short time later during the purge of the SA, referred to as the Night of the Long Knives, which is so metal, by the way. Well, yeah, metal, metal. It, ha- it has gone on record that immediately following the killings, Hitler ordered all copies of the film to be destroyed, although Riefenstahl disputed that this ever happened. Um, so that's that first film. Yeah. So we're b- bouncing a little back and forth here again, but uh, right. hopefully that's okay. You can track what's happening. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the bathroom. You can keep going. One okay. Minute. All right. All right. We're going to keep going. Uh, let's see here. We make sure that we're getting what we need out of these pages yeah so she's uh she's basically ascended to the the heights of um you know her career here between triumph of the will and olympia it doesn't really get 
much higher for her. I'm going to read a little bit about Triumph of the Will. Uh, it was around mid-August when I returned to the house on Hindenburgstrasse where baskets of unopened mail were waiting for me. But afraid of bad news, I opened no letters during the first few days. Finally, I, <clears throat> I did have to make a start. After sorting out the fan mail, I noticed a large envelope with a return address, Brown House, Munich, and rather nervously I opened it. Hess wrote that he was surprised I had put Walter Ruthman in charge of this year's party uh, rally film when the Fury had insisted that I alone was to make the film. Hess asked me to contact him as soon as possible. This almost amounted to a threat. Even so, I was determined to resist taking on this assignment. First, I tried to get in touch with Hess. I called up the Brown House and was told Hess would be coming to Berlin in two or three days. I could reach him then at the Reich Chancellery. I used the time <clears throat> to look at Walter Rittman's footage and received a new shock. What I saw on the screen was, to put it mildly, useless. It was a jumble of shots of newspapers fluttering across the street, their front pages tracing the rise of the Nazi party. I didn't understand how Rutman could present such work. I was miserable. So she's sort of getting ready, and she doesn't really want to do uh, the triumph of the will. Um, and uh, she ends up having a meeting with him. And here we go. Here's Hitler. Party member Hess has told me why you wish to speak to me. I can assure you that your worries are groundless. You will have no problems this time. That is not all, my Fuhrer. I am afraid I cannot make this film. Why not? I am completely unfamiliar with all the subject matter. I can't even tell the essay from the SS. That's an advantage. Then you'll see only the essentials. I don't want a boring party rally film. I don't want newsreel shots. I want an artistic visual document. The party people don't understand this. Your blue light proves that you can do it. I interrupted. That wasn't a documentary. How am I supposed to know what is politi uh, politically important or unimportant? What should or shouldn't be shown? If my ignorance makes me leave out some personality or another, I'll make a lot of mistakes. Hitler listened attentively. Then he said, smiling, but in a resolute tone, you're too sensitive. You're just imagining all these obstacles. Don't worry. <clears throat> and don't force me to keep asking you. It's only six days you'll be giving me. Six days? Again, I interrupted him. It's going to take months. The main work starts in the editing room, but quite apart from the time factor, I pleaded, I could never take responsibility for such a project. Then Hitler became insistent. Fräulein Riefenstahl, you have to have more self-confidence. You can and you will do this project. It sounded almost like an order. I realized I could not break Hitler's resolve. Now at least I had to try and obtain the best possible working conditions. I asked him, Will I have complete freedom in my work, or could Dr. Goebbels and his people order me around? Out of the question. The party will exert no influence on you. I have discussed this with Dr. Goebbels, not even financially. If the party were to finance the film, he said sarcastically, it would obtain the money only after the party rally was over. The party agencies have received instruction from me to support you and your people. Will I be given a deadline for the completion of the film? At last, growing imp impatient, Hitler barked, No! You can take a year or several years. You are not to be under any time pressure. Abandoning my resistance, I ventured to make one last request. I'll try it, but I can only do uh, but I can do it only if I can be free after completing this project and do not have to make any more films to order. That must be my reward. I apologize for making this request, but I wouldn't want to go on living if I had to give up acting. Hitler, clearly satisfied that I had given in, took both my hands and said, Thank you, Fräulein Riefenstahl. 
I will keep my word. After this party rally film, you can make any films you like. Hmm. So <clears throat> she really didn't want to make that movie. Uh, yeah, but, I guess not. Um, but just sort of under the power, like he just sort of strong armed her into her. It doesn't even sound like there was a threat behind it, really. He, I mean, do you think Hitler at that point could make your life really uncomfortable if you said no? I, I'm, I assume he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that he <clears throat> could. So, <clears throat> yeah. So she goes on, and she, you know, she makes the triumph of the will. She does have a point, though. If like <clears throat> she isn't, if she genuinely wasn't politically interested, and well, I'm just taking her word for it, she isn't really a good candidate to make the film, right? It's like. Yeah, but in a but in a funny way, Maybe in a funny way, it makes lost it, in that it's just like yeah, she's going to make what's evocative, what tells the story, right, yeah. right, right. And I like that Hitler is sort of larping as, um, well, I'm an artist too, so I understand, I understand, um, you know, Lenny's, um, you know, yeah. sentimentality, and I understand like why she would want to be free as an artist and all of the mm -hmm. rest. You know, he's mm -hmm. definitely like enjoying himself. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I understand you as an artist, and these other brutes, you know, can't understand you, Lenny. And there's a lot of that going right. on. Yeah, right. yeah. All right. So, Triumph of the Will is sometimes considered the greatest propaganda film ever made. Initially, according to Riefenstahl, she resisted and did, did not want to create further party films, instead wanting to direct a feature film based on Eugen Dalbert's Tiefland, or Lowlands, an opera that was extremely popular in Berlin in the 1920s. <clears throat> Riefenstahl received private funding for the production of Tiefland, but the filming in Spain was derailed and the project was canceled. When Tiefland was eventually shot between 1940 and 1944, it was done in black and white, and was the third most expensive film produced in Nazi Germany. During the filming of Tiefland, Riefenstahl utilized Romani from internment camps for extras who were severely mistreated on set. And when the filming completed, they were sent to the death camp in Auschwitz. Jeez. That's a big black mark about, uh, against Lenny. And there's a lot of talk about this. Did she know? How much did she know? Like, if you need extras for your, your whopping movie... You can do worse than like grabbing extras from a work camp. Like yeah. pretty, pretty awful, pretty yeah. awful. Yeah. Um, Hitler was able to convince her to film Triumph of the Will on the condition that she would not be required to make further films for the party for Riefenstahl, which we just saw. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Triumph of the Will is, is recognized as an epic, innovative work of propaganda filmmaking. And it took her um, career to another absolutely uh, next level. I've got a little bit in the memoir here about the premiere. Can you just about imagine? Yeah. Geez. I mean, Wait, the premiere. So it's like they show it at the movie theater. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, I want to see if I can find it. Yeah. This is funny where he's trying to give notes. Uh, let's see. So Hitler shows up at the editing room. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> After yeah. all those promises. Can you imagine yeah. taking notes from Hitler? Oh boy. I just have a few notes. Yeah. I just have some, some ideas. <laughs> Maybe we could try it. We could try it this way. I'm Suddenly Hitler arrived. I'm an yeah. artist like you. Yes. 
Yeah. When I gave you the assignment for the party rally film, I promised you complete freedom for the production. I looked at him tenderly and I wished to keep my promise, but more than anything, I would not want to want you to have any unpleasant repercussions from your work or make any new enemies. Now I had dark foreboding. I asked you to come here, he went on, because I would like to ask you to make one single compromise. General von Reichenau came to see me. He complained that you do not wish to include the Wehrmacht in the film, the army. Mm. I've been thinking about it and worked out a way that could allow you to change your film and without having to make any artistic compromises, still incorporate all the people who deserve special credit. Human beings are more or less vain and wishes have been voiced to me from various sides. This was the very thing I had feared and why I had been so surprised at being promised a free hand. So the army is feeling left out. Mm. I would therefore like to make the following suggestions. I will ask the most important generals and members of the party to come to a film studio. I will be present too. Then we will line up and the camera will move slowly down the line. This will make it possible to emphasize the contributions of each person with a few words. That could be the opening uh, credits of your film. No one will be offended and you will not annoy anyone. Hitler was growing more and more enthusiastic, but I was growing more and more upset. I gazed at him in disbelief. What's wrong? He asked me in amazement. Don't you like my idea? <laughs> my, uh, oh boy. My rough cut of the opening sequence flashed past my eyes. The sea of clouds at the start of the film, the spires and gables of Nuremberg looming through. I couldn't imagine any other beginning. This mood would be destroyed if I had to add the footage suggested by Hitler. Tears came to my eyes. For God's sake, what's wrong with you? Said Hitler. I'm only trying to help you. And he again began to point out all the merits of his ideas. I forgot who I, who was in front of me. All I could think of was my cinematic work, and I found Hitler's idea simply terrible. My reaction was so vehement that I lost all fear. I leaped up and stamped my foot, shouting, I can't do it. For the first time I saw Hitler angry with me, he snapped, have you forgotten whom you're talking to? He stood up and barked, you're behaving like a stubborn mule. I was only thinking of you, but if you don't want to do it, then let's drop it. I had turned away in order to hide my tears, but then I had an idea. Couldn't I make up for it, I said, by doing a short film on the Wehrmacht next year? That might appease the generals. Hitler was already standing in the open doorway and, making an almost weary gesture, he said, I'll leave that up to you. Then, accompanied by Frau Hess, he left the room. Yeah. Huh. So. Yeah, she was now she's in this, like, labyrinth of, like intrigue and you know what i mean like uh, she's in a rough spot now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure they were editing yeah here so we'll get to the premiere here it was the 28th of march 1935 we were still working on the print until a few short hours before the premiere we didn't even have time to screen it for the censors a highly unusual situation since no film could be shown in public until it was passed by the censorship board Aside from my staff, no one had seen the film before the premiere, so I didn't even know how it would be received. I worked on in the printing lab for such a long time that I didn't even have a chance to go to my hairdresser. In a great hurry, I combed my hair, made up my face, slipped into an evening gown, and, very behind schedule, drove with my parents and Heinz to the festively decorated Ufa Palace. The manager of the theater was already waiting impatiently to lead us to our seats. It was rather an embarrassing outing, since Hitler and all the guests of honor, including the diplomats, were already sitting in their boxes. No sooner had we settled down than the talking died, the lights faded, an orchestra played a march, the curtains parted, the screen lit up, and the film began. I re-experienced my sleepless nights and the arduous efforts of each transition from one sequence to the next, all the anxieties that my staff and I might have done something wrong. 
I had omitted not only the military maneuvers, but so many other events, including those of the Congress of Women. Holding my eyes shut most of the time, I kept hearing more and more clapping. The end of the film was greeted by long, indeed almost endless applause. At the moment, my strength ran out altogether. When Hitler thanked me and handed me a lilac bouquet, I felt faint and then lost consciousness. Jeez. After the war, the German illustrated magazines with high circulations claimed that after the premiere, Hitler wanted to present me with a diamond necklace and that I gazed so deeply into his eyes that I blacked out. God. <laughs> so now she's, mm. she's at the top of the world and the war hasn't started yet. Right. All right. So, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep yeah. pressing on here. I'm going to try to try to bring us in. I we're 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 two thirds of the way there. Okay. Um, despite allegedly vowing not to make any more films about the Nazi Party, Riefenstahl made the twenty-eight minute Tag der Freiheit unserer Wehrmacht, Day of Freedom, Our Armed Forces, about the mm -hmm. German Army in nineteen thirty-five. Uh, like Der Sieg des Glaubens and Triumph des Willens, uh, this was filmed at the annual Nazi Party rally at Nuremberg. Riefenstahl said this film was a subset of Der Sieg des Glaubens, added to mollify the German army, which felt it was not represented well in the Triumph of the Will. And then just like a side note, which I don't even think she mentions in her um, autobiography, is like she was on the cover of Time magazine in 1936 in like okay. like skiing in what looks like uh, uh, like a swimsuit type thing, you know, like oh, like okay. yeah, yeah, it, it, it doesn't even mention it, and you know, huh. and the the title there is um uh. Hitler's Lenny Riefenstahl. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now your okay. name's just associated with him no matter what happens. Yeah. 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 There's no, absolutely no way out of, of that. Um, all right. Hitler invited Riefenstahl to film the 1936 Summer Olympics scheduled to be held in Berlin, a film which Riefenstahl said had been commissioned by the International Olympic Committee. She visited Greece to take footage of the route of the first torch rally, which mm -hmm. we still do now, mm -hmm. and the game's original site at Olympia, where she was aided by Greek photographer Nellis. Uh, this material became Olympia, a hugely successful film, which has since been widely noted, uh, widely noted for its technical and aesthetic achievements. Mm -hmm. Strongly recommend uh olympia hmm. and you can still watch it it's still riveting hmm. and the the nazis had some problems with it because she gave a great deal of attention and equal treatment to jesse owens who won oh, okay. four uh gold medals during he was the, the big star of the berlin olympics in 1936 hmm. and they dug trenches around the track they created special equipment to to get tracking shots along with the um hmm races they put cameras on balloons to try and get overhead shots they hmm. did all of this and none of those were usable um, oh. <laughs> but they did all of this crazy stuff to to capture the 1936 games and they really did a tremendous a tremendous job um i've got something here from one of the other biographies yeah Based on what we know today, Hitler commissioned Riefenstahl to film the Olympics in August of 1935, short, shortly before her 33rd birthday party. She's not even 33. Oh, my God. Right? Dude, 
Yeah. Even before the official appointment, she told propaganda minister Goebbels of her plans. On August 17th, he noted in his di- diary, Fräulein Riefenstahl reports on preparations for her Olympia film. She's a clever one. Oh, that <laughs> Letty. Um, it was an open secret at the time that Riefenstahl had been given the assignment by the Nazi regime. The director alternately mentioned the commission from the Fuhrer and as a Tobus press announcement around 1936, commission from Minister Goebbels. Reports of this in papers both inside Germany and abroad went unchallenged at the time. Whereas in the post-war period, Riefenstahl maintained that she had received the commission from Karl Diem, head of the German International Olympic Committee, independently of the Nazi government. In order to disguise the fact that the Nazi regime was providing preliminary financing for the film, the National Socialist Press declared Riefenstahl its independent producer. As the National Socialists did not want to be accused of political partisanship and realized that the film's propagandistic value lay in the fact that it could be shown internationally as an objective image of a peace-loving and open Germany, great care was taken to keep the financial arrangements and origin of the commission from the public. Today, there's no doubt that the Reich financed uh, Olympia. Um, So, all right. So, the film is also uh, noted for its slow motion shots. Riefenstahl played with the idea of slow motion, underwater diving shots, extremely <laughs> high and low shooting angles, panoramic aerial shots, and a tracking system uh, tracking system shots for allowing fast action. Many of these shots were relatively unheard of at the time, but Riefenstahl u- Riefenstahl's use and augmentation of them set a standard and is the reason they are still used to this day. Mm. Huh. Wow. Riefenstahl's work on Olympia has been cited as a major influence in modern sports photography. She filmed competitors of all races, including African-American Jesse Owens, in what later became famous um, footage. Yeah. And yeah, uh, huh. yeah so pretty Wild. pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff in her memoir about the torch race and then, you know, and editing this and how much footage they had. I mean, they had an insane amount of footage and she's right. right. The real work begins in the editing bay. Oh, I'm sure with that, you're just filming basically everything. And then, yeah, you go figure it out later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Olympia premiered for Hitler's 49th birthday on 19 uh, in 1938. Its international debut led Riefenstahl to embark on an American publicity tour in an attempt to secure commercial release. In February of 1937, Riefenstahl enthusiastically told a reporter for the Detroit News, your hey. hometown paper, yeah. Brad Kelly. Yeah. Is yeah. the Detroit News still still extant? Does it exist? No. Oh. no. But I, it, did up until, it did up until the late 90s, maybe? Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, Lenny outlived the Detroit News. Yeah. Uh, so Lenny Re- said- wait, Really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. She okay. lived into the aughts. What? Yup. <laughs> I told okay. you. I told okay. you. Okay. My most problematic wood. Yeah. I've, I've said this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people, people are walking around right now who knew her. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. And okay. I say this with all due respect. We joke a little on the pod. If the jokes aren't for you, just you know, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We try to laugh because we're yeah. again we laugh so we don't cry. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah, but she said the uh, reporter for the Detroit News, to me, Hitler is the greatest man who ever lived. He truly is without out fault, so simple, and at the same time, possessed of masculine strength. Wait, this is what the reporter told Lenny? Lenny told uh, the reporter. The reporter. Yeah. yeah. Well, that yeah. quote's going to live with you for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's going to stick. Um, 
So I, I have in my notes right here, it just says memoir, page 224, Hitler. Yeah. That's what it says. So we've got the world premiere of Olympia. She's sort of antsy, you know, how's it going to, how's it going to go? Sure. When the curtain parted and Olympia appeared in huge letters on the screen, it began to shake. The round of images began, the template, temples, sculptures, statues, and the torch race, the lighting of the Olympic flame at the stadium in Berlin. I shut my eyes and experienced again the labor it had cost to put all this into shape, and I couldn't hold back the tears. I began to cry, heedless of my makeup and mascara. That's pretty intense. She's like a real legitimately an artist. Mm -hmm. There was already some clapping during the prologue, and it was repeated over and over. Now I knew the film would be a success, but in my frame of mind, this changed nothing. I felt utterly burned out. Yeah. After the end of part one, the applause swelled into a crescendo, and Hitler was the first to congratulate me. You've created a masterpiece, and the world will be grateful to you. The Greek ambassador, on behalf of his government, presented me with a diploma and an olive branch from Olympia. It was past midnight when the second part ended. The applause had grown even louder. Again, I was taken to Hitler, who didn't seem at all tired. Now, that'd be the meth. Yeah. And who congratulated me again. Now, Dr. Goebbels appeared. He took me aside saying, I have to tell you on behalf of the Fuhrer that you may ask for something for your greatest, greatest achievement. Unprepared and without thinking, I ask for something foolish. I would be grateful to you, Herr Minister. If you could take Herr Jaeger, the former editor-in-chief of Film Courier, back into the Reich Film Chamber and allow him to accompany me as my press chief on my planned trip to America. Hmm. Goebbels was clearly irritated. I cannot do that, for I would then also have to readmit others who were expelled for the same reason. I assume uh, he may be a communist sympathizer. With a name like Jaeger, it doesn't sound Jewish, but that could mean anything, yeah. Um I pleaded, Herr Jäger is an unusually gifted journalist. Please grant my wish. You'll be letting yourself in for a lot of trouble with Herr Jäger. Don't let him fool you. I warn you. I will accept full responsibility for Herr Jäger, I said, totally convinced. He's a man of absolute integrity. If only I had an inkling of what I had done to myself by expressing this wish. The reception at the Ministry of Propaganda was the conclusion of that uh, festival premiere. It was already very late when Hitler shook hands with each and every member of my staff, praising them all for their work. When he asked me about my future plans, I said that at the request of Tobis, I would be touring Europe with Olympia. And after that, I would fulfill my great wish to get to know America and travel through the States for a few months. Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You've taken on a large program, said Hitler in a friendly tone. I wish you luck. She won the German Film Prize in sure. you know 1938. She won a prize in France. I mean, this movie was just like objectively is to this day. It's what it's watchable. If you want to watch the 1936 Olympics, like yeah, this is it. Yeah. This is it. This is mm -hmm. it. Um, here we've got a chapter called "Unexpected Visit." Hitler. <laughs> in June, <shortly laughs> at this point, it's kind of expected. I mean, unexpected. Right, right. Yeah. Oh man, that, that, that fifth hour hour of dark, that Hitler jump scare in the Lenny Riefenstahl episode is just here we go. <laughs> ah, yeah. Uh, in June, shortly before my premiere tour, I received an unexpected visit from Hitler. When the Reich Chancellor called me up to ask whether I could receive the Fuhrer, I was surprised and I wondered what uh, what was bringing him to me. Lena, my cook, and uh, Mariachin, my maid, actually. Well, yes, I'll do this, but then I got to, yeah, I just, 
her cook, her maid. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is the life that she's having. We're very excited and fought over who would serve the tea. I want to serve the tea to the Führer. (laughs) At 4 p.m., Elena told me that a black Mercedes had driven up. In my vestibule, I greeted Hitler and his, well, what are they going to drive? A Honda? Right. I greeted Hitler and his uh, companion, Albert Bormann, a brother of Martin Bormann. Both men were in plain clothes, Hitler wearing a navy blue suit. Before entering my living room, Hitler asked Bormann to wait for him elsewhere. So my maid took him to the rustic bar in the basement. Meanwhile, Hitler and I, yeah, I just have a rustic bar in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, Hitler and I went into the living room, which was also my screening room. As a precautionary measure, I had asked Herr Kubisch, my projectionist, to come in case I had to show a film. Again, are you picking this up? Cook mm-hmm. made projectionist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Her staff. Mm-hmm. Hitler seemed to be in a wonderful mood. He admired the house, the garden, and above all, the interior decoration, which surprised me since it was such a different style from his own rooms. Somewhat awkwardly, I asked, wouldn't you care for coffee or tea? As an exception, tea, but weak, if you please. I have to be considerate of my stomach. Out in the gazebo where Helena had set up a table and decorated it with flowers, she now proudly served her homemade apple strudel. It seldom happens, said Hitler, that I can take time to be a private person for a few hours. I know that you are, you too are a hard worker and have almost no private life. Embarrassed, I stirred my tea in silence. I believe, he went on, that you work too much, just like me. You should take better care of yourself. That was my cue. Now I was able to talk about my work, about disappointments and sleepless nights, as well as the feeling of happiness when a work is successful. People like you, said Hitler, must often be lonely. You probably don't have an easy time of it. Again, his words surprised me, for Hitler had never spoken to me in such a personal way, and since I didn't know how to reply, I was irritated. I wonder, too, about the, because you know how Alf Deutsch, if you want to be formal, you say Z mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. not do. I, won't, mm-hmm. I don't have the original in front of me, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's like possibly a shift in, mm-hmm. they started saying do right, here, which right. would have been, yeah. I mean, she even says, spoken to me in such a personal way. Um, going on, Hitler praised Helena's apple strudel and then said, for a woman, you are unusually active and dynamic. That seems to be a challenge to certain men and you must make enemies. Many people and not just men will also resent your triumphs. You probably know that it was difficult even for me to facilitate your work. I thought of Goebbels. Perhaps today I could speak to Hitler about him. But a sudden wind interrupted our conversation, forcing us to go back indoors. Hitler sat down on a sofa by the fireplace and leafed through several books of pictures that lay on a small table. Then abruptly, he said, you know that I admire you greatly and enjoy your company, but unfortunately, any obligations do not permit me to indulge in seeing you more often. His compliments simply added to my confusion. I don't know another woman, he went on, who works as single-mindedly as you do and is so obsessed with her mission. I am just as devoted to my mission. What about your private life? I asked. When I made up my mind to be a politician, I renounced my private life. Was that difficult for you? Very difficult, he replied, especially when I meet beautiful women whom I like having around me. But I am not the sort to enjoy brief flings. When my feelings are involved, they are deep and passionate. How could I assume responsibility for that, given my duties to Germany? How greatly I would be bound to disappoint any woman, no matter how much I loved her. It surprised me that Hitler was once again speaking of his personal feelings. 
After a brief silence, his expression changed, and he said with bizarre and grandiloquence, it is my intention to create a strong and independent Germany, a bulwark against communism. And this is possible only in my lifetime. After me, no one will come who could do this. Hmm. I ventured to ask, what makes you so convinced of this? It is my calling, which I sense daily, an inner compulsion that forces me to act in this way and not otherwise. With these words, Hitler seemed to become impersonal, just as I had seen him speaking at his rallies. Then, noticing that I wasn't very interested in politics, he was quite suddenly an utterly charming private person again. Meanwhile, Helena brought us some salad as well as toast and fruit. I drank a glass of wine, but Hitler was content with his water. Then I had my maid light a fire, and when we were alone again, I asked Hitler, Have you always been a vegetarian? He said no to this and told me falteringly that he had been unable to eat after a deep shock he had suffered. I regretted my question, but Hitler went on. I loved Gelly, my niece, so much that I thought I couldn't live without her. When I lost Gelly, I couldn't eat for days on end. Since then, my stomach has resisted any kind of meat. Hmm. Perplexed, that, uh, perplexed that Hitler told me all this so frankly, I hazarded another question. Was Gelly your first love? And he began to tell me about women he had loved before Gelly. Hmm. My romances, hmm. he said, were mostly unhappy. The women were either married or wanted to get married. He did not mention Eva Braun. He was bothered, he told me, when women threatened suicide in order to tie him down. And he repeated that he could have married no one but Gelly. He's in love with his niece. Yeah. I asked him what he thought of Unity Mitford, the pretty Englishwoman who, as the whole world knew, was so in love with him. His reply surprised me. She's a very attractive girl, but I could never have an intimate relationship with a foreigner, no matter how beautiful she might be. I thought he was joking, but Hitler assured me, my feelings are so bound up with my patriotism that I could only love a German girl. Amused, he said, I can see that you don't understand. Incidentally, he went on, I would be completely unsuitable for marriage, for I could not be faithful. I understand great men who have mistresses. The tone of this was lightly ironic. Our strange conversation was interrupted when my maid knocked. She wanted to know whether my projectionist would be needed, and although it was already quite late, Hitler wanted to see a film. Netflix and chill with the film. Right. <laughs> right. Looking no, toward my watch? list of... Yeah, looking toward my list of titles. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe watch The Godfather. Yeah. Watch, uh, you know, The Mask. Yeah. Annie Hall. Uh, I don't think. I don't think. I don't think Adolf would like Annie Hall. Probably not. I just. No. I like. He's a funny man. Just Woody Allen. He's so funny. He's very funny. He does the funny jokes. Oh, I see. Oh no. Oh. Uh, oh nine. Nine. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> he picked. Look, look. I, it. This scene is so interesting. It's just it so normal. Like normal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, looking through my list of titles, he picked "The Big Jump," a farce directed by Funk. In this silent film, I play an Italian goat herd, Trenker's goat who clamors barefoot around the Dolomites. Uh, Schneeberger plays a ski acrobat who flies over the mountain in a blown-up rubber suit. It was almost 11 when the film ended, and Hitler, much amused by it, <laughs> said goodnight and left with Bormann, who had been waiting patiently in my basement bar. I couldn't fall asleep for a long time. The tensions of the day were too much. Why had Hitler visited me? 
Why had he stayed on for such a long time? And why had he given me such an intimate glimpse of his private life? That evening, I felt that Hitler desired me as a woman. I'm sure he did. Yeah. 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 I like just this image of Hitler. Like, oh, what movies do you have here? Let me go through. Let's see. Oh, oh this yeah. looks like, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's watch the big farce with a big jump. Oh, God. Mm. Oh. I like a comedy. I like a good comedy. Yeah, dude. That's heavy. It's, it's, it's wild. Wild. Yeah. And just like, yeah. And I think I already got it. I don't need to read this passage. But at this point, she's living like, she's living long. Sure. Yeah. That comes across. She has her as a projectionist. Yeah. Totally. She has yeah. a driver. Right. Yeah. Right. right. She's okay. Great. All right. Mm. Uh, pressing on as we head into hour five mm. of the Lenny Riefenstahl episode. Mm-hmm. How are you hanging in there, Brad? How are you feeling? Man, I, you know, you can kind of feel obviously this is going to take a big turn, you know, because World War II hasn't happened yet, right? So the other shoe has yet to drop. Um, it, it does really drive home to me a point that I have already known, but that, which is if you're an artistic person, be careful who's who uses you mm. your talent mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. things can seem like a reasonable opportunity or whatever um but yeah man you got to you got every every piece of art is a little bit of propaganda for something right whether that's just you know whatever it is you just mm-hmm. have to be real careful that you are not being used to be the mouthpiece for somebody else's ideas because it's almost always going to come back to bite you. I think at Completely. least if you're, mm-hmm. yeah, at least if you're doing what you believe in, then later you can stand or fall on what you actually believe. But if somebody else used you, you know, you're going to, yeah. So yeah, it, it's, it's sort of like Lenny Riefenstahl. I can have sympathy for her and I can, I can be understanding and say, you know, she isn't really a Nazi. She, maybe she, she wasn't racist or whatever, but, but in the end you made, this piece of propaganda maybe the most effective piece of propaganda of all time and that's kind of on you right right so right <clears throat> at the same time you're gonna leave the country I, right yeah i don't know i don't know I mean, what the, the alternative is kind of an all or nothing proposition yeah yeah, yeah i don't know what the yeah. i don't know what the different choices you know i don't know what what you do and when and it's easy to say you oh you wouldn't do it but I, yeah i don't know yeah, the stakes were so high, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just such an intense story. So mm-hmm. awesome. All right, yeah. I will start to press on here. So she arrived in New York on the 4th of November of 1938, five days before Kristallnacht, the mm-hmm. night of broken glass, when they uh, it was a pogrom against mm-hmm. Jews throughout Germany. Um, when news of the event reached the U.S., Riefenstahl publicly defended Hitler. On the 18th of November, she was received by Henry Ford, in Detroit, your backyard there, yeah. Brad. Yeah. Uh, Olympia was shown at the Chicago Engineers Club two days later. The president of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, praised the film and held Riefenstahl in the highest regard. She negotiated with Louis B. Mayer, uh, the Hollywood executive, and on the 8th of December, Walt Disney brought her ah. on a three-hour tour, showing her the ongoing production of Fantasia. Sure. Cool. Uh, I bet she, she thought that was awesome. 
Oh, I, can you imagine? Right. Yeah. She was, they were, but after Kristallnacht, uh, there was a boycott. And uh, I'll read just from the memoirs of Lenny about this. She says, I think she was like even like asked to leave the country. Mm. Um, oh, because she was in the United States when Crystal Nacht happened. Happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Here we go. En route to, well, here. When we left, Ford said to me, when you see the Fuhrer after you return, tell him that I admire him and I'm looking forward to meeting him at the coming party rally in Nuremberg. Oh, Henry Ford Mm -hmm. in in Detroit. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, this is the other thing. It's like, it's okay, well, Lenny Riefenstahl, you you can't, okay, literally like the preeminent captain of American industry was a a Hitler. Enamored of Hitler. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Mm. Just uh, built built Ford tough, right? Built <laughs> built Ford t- built Ford tough. Ford right. tough. Fords right. are tough, right? I've seen the ads. Fords are tough. <laughs> yeah, Fords yeah. are American. They're about America. Fred. Yeah, they're yeah. about America. American mm-hmm. Detroit Ford. Mm-hmm. Ford tough. Mm-hmm. En route to California, we interrupted our trip for several days in order to visit the Grand Canyon, where <laughs> Indians sold me silver jewelry decorated with genuine turquoise as presents for my friends at home. Cool. I was disappointed by our next stop, L.A., which I had pictured quite differently. It looked bleak and ugly. So we hurried on, renting a spacious bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel in Hollywood. The swimming pools, the gardens and multicolored flowers, the orange and grapefruit trees were delightful. But the best thing of all was the marvelous climate. One could feel so wonderful there. My holiday mood vanished overnight, however, for the press ran ads by the anti-Nazi league calling for a boycott against me. The text said... There is no place in Hollywood for Lenny Riefenstahl. Such signs were also posted on the streets, and Hollywood gave me the cold shoulder. This is not surprising after the terrible events of Kristallnacht, but it was a dreadful shock after the warmth with which I had been previously received. I had been greatly looking forward to meeting my American colleagues and viewing the studios of Hollywood, but I soon experienced the first effect of this boycott. My appointment with the manager of Radio City Music Hall was canceled without notification, and I heard later that he had been abruptly dismissed because he intended to premiere the Olympia film in his theater. I wanted to leave immediately since it was no fun remaining in Hollywood under these circumstances. Ignoring the appeal of the anti-Nazi League, however, many Americans begged me to stay on. The League, they said, represented only a minority, and I had lots of friends here. We were up to our ears in invitations, and I let them talk me into remaining. Then a well-to-do American woman asked all four of us, her her partners there, including Stowitz, to her luxury villa in Palm Springs, where we would stay as long as we like. We visited her for a week. In those days, Palm Springs, which was chiefly inhabited by Hollywood stars and other rich Americans, was still a small community. In the midst of a desert landscape, a South Sea paradise created by artificial irrigation blossomed behind tall fences. I had never seen such beautiful swimming pools. To my surprise, I received an invitation from Gary Cooper, who, as I read in the press, had returned very excited from a trip to Germany. I was told he would call for me at my hotel, but then the invitation was withdrawn. Cooper, I was told, had to leave for Mexico unexpectedly and regretted that he could not meet me. I had no doubt that he had been pressured to break our appointment. My experiences with Walt Disney, friend of the show, we did an episode (laughs) about Walt Disney. We can go back and listen to it. One of our many core episodes, Mm -hmm. artofdarkpod.com. We uh, also have a dark room where we di- went deep on the uh, mm, astrological uh, significances mm, of Walt Disney's life. 
Yeah, so he uh, Disney has her over to the studios. She spent the whole day with him. Hmm. Patiently, but also proudly, he demonstrated how his cartoon figures were, were made. He explained his unusual technique and showed us sketches for his new production, The Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia. I was fascinated. For me, Disney was a genius, a magician whose imagination seemed boundless. During lunch, he mentioned the Venice Biennale, where Snow White had competed with Olympia. He wanted to see both parts of my film, which would be no problem. The prints were at my hotel and only had to be brought over. Disney reflected, uh, then said, I'm afraid I can't afford to do that. Why? I asked in surprise. If I see your film, then all of Hollywood will find out by tomorrow. But you have your own screening room here, I protested. No one will know about it. Mm. My projectionists are unionized, he mm. said. People would find out from them. I'm an independent producer, but I don't do my own distributing, and I don't have my own theaters. There's a chance I might be boycotted. The risk is too great. Hmm. Three months later, after leaving America, I found out from the American press how powerful the Anti-Nazi League was. Walt Disney was forced to make a statement to the effect that when I had visited him, he didn't know who I was. Ah, uh, uh, the leftists in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, good thing. Thank goodness that that's over. Okay. All right. Yeah. So let's see. I think it's cool. She met Disney. I think it's interesting. That's neat. I get Yeah. That's a, that's too. And I, I would with her innovations in Olympia, I'm sure that she found the Walt Disney process fascinating. Yeah. I spilled a little water here, Brad vamp oh. a bit. Oh, sure. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was just thinking the fact that she basically invented all of these shooting techniques to make Olympia and then to see Walt Disney similarly innovating totally different innovations but an another visionary about how you can bring different things to the screen you know um Fantasia as we talked about in our core episodes Fantasia and Snow White interestingly enough a theatrical production of Snow White is part of the Lenny Riefenstahl story I mean those films were like a generation ahead of their time from a technical standpoint you went from watching silent films with you know scratchy with cute with title cards to fantasia being on the screen in like 10 8 10 years yeah that's that's um, it's kind of hard to imagine man right right yeah it's that like a, that's absolutely wild yeah the transition later to like 3d isn't as big as that transition was i'll i'll co-sign that yeah 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 totally totally all right so from the Goebbels diaries, researchers learned that Riefenstahl had been friendly with Joseph Goebbels and his wife Magda, attending the opera with him and going to his parties. Riefenstahl maintained that Goebbels was upset when she rejected his advances and was jealous of her influence on Hitler, seeing her as an internal threat. She, therefore, insisted his diary entries could not be trusted. By later accounts, Goebbels thought highly of Riefenstahl's filmmaking, but was angered by what he saw as her overspending on the Nazi-provided filmmaking budgets. Also, it sounds yeah. like he tried to stop her, her. Yeah. and uh, she rejected his advances. So if she's to be believed, well, Goebbels yeah. probably, like, like uh, yeah. a lot of guys would, would have a grudge. Yeah. yeah. Not that he was right, but, you know, right. I, surprise, Goebbels wasn't the most savory fella. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Um, and now we're arriving at the war. Mm. Don't talk about the war. Yeah. Yeah, here we go. 
When Germany invaded Poland on the 1st of September 1939, Riefenstahl was photographed in Poland wearing a military uniform and a pistol on her belt in the company Wait. of German soldiers. Wait, re really? Yeah. That's not yeah. a good look. That's not a good oh, look, Lenny. Yeah. She's she's in she's involved. Oh, yeah. Boy. Okay. Yeah, she had she had gone to Poland as a war correspondent. Mm -hmm. On the 12th of September, she was in the town of Konski when 30 civilians were executed in retaliation for an alleged attack on German soldiers. <clears throat> According to her memoir, Riefenstahl tried to intervene, but a furious German soldier held her at gunpoint and threatened to shoot her on the spot. She said she did not realize the victims were Jews. Photographs of a seemingly distraught Riefenstahl survive um, from <clears throat> that day. And I've got this business from her memoir because it's an important incident that uh, kind of kicks off the war for her. All right. Well, why is she wearing a uni the uniform? Well, she's She'll a... But I mean, a right. war correspondent. Well, she's probably attached to a unit, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. All right. All right. We walked over to the marketplace where a large number of German soldiers were gathered and in their midst, some Polish men who were digging a pit, the grave for the dead German soldiers. Our soldiers were extremely excited and the faces of the Poles exhibited a deathly fear. They understood no German and were terrified that they were digging their own grave. Now we get to the hell on earth part of this episode. Hmm. Now a German police officer appeared, stood at the edge of the grave and ordered the soldiers to maintain calm and discipline. He gave a brief speech. Soldiers, cruel as the death of our men may have been, we do not want to return like for like. Then he told the soldiers to send the Poles home and to bury the dead. After the officer left, however, several of the soldiers dragged the frightened Poles out of the pit and not very generally, uh, gently. An extremely angry group stood right beside me and ignoring the officer's orders, they brutally kicked the men who were pushing their way out of the pit. I was outraged. I yelled at them. Didn't you hear what the officer told you? Are you German soldiers? The angry men now faced me menacingly. One of them shouted, punch her in the mouth. Get rid of that bitch. Another yelled, shoot her down. As he aimed his rifle at me, I gasped in horror at the man. And at that instant, I was photographed. When the gun barrel was leveled at me and my colleagues, at me, my colleagues jerked me aside. But suddenly we heard a shot in the distance and several more. Everyone ran from the gravesite in the direction of the firing. While I went to Reichenau uh, in order to protest against the undisciplined conduct by the soldiers. Only then did I learn what had happened. A shot fired by a Luftwaffe officer had started a panic that in turn had led to a senseless shooting spree. Soldiers had fired at the Poles who were dashing away because they assumed that some of them were the ones who had committed the massacre. More than 30 Poles fell victim to this shooting and four German soldiers were wounded. Might be Rishinu. Yeah, Reichenau. Rishinu uh, was as furious and disgusted by the rest of us, uh, as the rest of us. He said that such an outrage had never occurred in the German army and that the perpetrators would be court-martialed. I was so upset mm. by this experience that I asked the general to allow me to terminate my film reporting, and he was very sympathetic to my request. I wanted to get back to Berlin as soon as possible. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so now we're getting to the, uh, here we go. So, nevertheless, by the 5th of October of 39, she was back in occupied Poland, filming Hitler's victory parade in Warsaw. Mm. Afterwards, she left Poland, and that was the end of her time making Nazi-related films, finally. Okay, jeez. Um, mm. Now we're going to get to a kind of a pivotal letter she sent Hitler. 
Um, uh, just give me a moment here. Hmm. On the 14th of June, 1940, the day Paris was declared an open city by the French and occupied by German troops, Riefenstahl wrote a let Hitler uh, a telegram. With indescribable joy, deeply moved and filled with burning gratitude, we share with you, my Führer, your and Germany's greatest victory, the entry of German troops into Paris. You exceed anything human imagination has the power to conceive, achieving deeds without parallel in the history of mankind. How can we ever thank you? She later explained. Everyone thought the war was over. And that's the end of the letter. And she explained this. She later explained, everyone thought the war was over. And in that spirit, I sent the cable to Hitler. Okay, mm-hmm. so how are we supposed to read that congratulatory letter to the Fuhrer? Right. right? Is it just appeasement? You know, <sighs> hard, hard to say. Mm. Yeah. Or is I, I mean, if she really believed that the war was over, then you could see why she would be enthusiastic about and possibly send that letter. But again, she's yeah. kind of trying to explain it away. All right. Okay. Uh, after the Nuremberg Rallies trilogy and Olympia, Riefenstahl began work on the movie she had tried and failed to direct once before, Tiefland. On Hitler's direct order, the German government paid her 7 million Reichsmark in compensation. Hmm. Uh, from the 23rd of September until the 13th of November, 1940, um, she filmed at a place called Krün near Mittenwald. Uh, the extras playing Spanish women and farmers were drawn from the Romani, from the detention camp, which I already touched oh, on. God, right. Yeah, right. yeah. This is where she met uh, a fellow named Peter Jacob or Peter Jacob, um, mm-hmm. who would be who would be her one and only husband, um, although they were only married briefly. And is her second. That- yeah. Oh. Sorry, is he a Jewish fellow? That sounds like a no, awesome no. Jewish I think name. he's no, no. I think he's German. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to see if I can introduce him, just because he is she, he is the only man who she formally married. Um, let me see if I can find an introduction to him. Where is he? Yeah, she had no children. Yeah. Um, let me let me go into my search here. Her second longer relationship is actually quite amusing. I think you're going to enjoy that, Brad, because she's mm-hmm. just like, she's such an interesting character. There's really nobody. we. Uh, I mean, can you think of anybody that we've covered who's quite like Lenny? Have no. we covered anybody? Yeah. Yeah, she's a, she is definitely kind of her own breed of sort of modern 20th century woman, you know? Mm. like Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, you'd so almost have any... to compare her mm. to like an Amelia Earhart or something, you know? Right. It's like, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but but did a lot more than Amelia Earhart. Mm-hmm. Did. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 Amelia Earhart, but a polymath and an artist. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in any case, um, right. So she's she's working on this set and she encounters this officer uh, on the set. And they're outside the barracks in Mittenwald. A dark, spirited horse was standing there. Its reins held by an officer who was to replace Minetti in the riding scenes. And he was the man who had stared at me for such a long time in the train. Uh, once again, she meets a man who stares at her. Lenny can't help herself. If, if a guy, you know, 
the guy stares at her for long enough. <laughs> she remembers it. <laughs> and, you know, she ends up marrying this guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Before filming the riding scenes, I learned more about the officer. His name was Peter Jacob. He was a first lieutenant in the mountain inf- infantry, a soldier in an army of 100,000 men who had been on active service from the very first day of the war. He had been awarded the Iron Cross in the French campaign. And after being slightly wounded, he was spending his leave in Mittenwald. Although Peter Jakob was not yet needed for the shooting, he came by every day, but I never exchanged a single word with him. When he started joining us for dinner in the hotel and sought contact with our crew, I had my meal brought up to my room and stopped going down to the restaurant. When my crew noticed my absences, they assumed that I didn't like the young man. Quite the contrary. I was fleeing him, but I couldn't avoid him for long. From a distance, the officer looked like his twin brother. The script called for my sitting behind him in the horse, uh, on the horse, a scene which had to be rehearsed over and over. The horse, unnerved by all the people, often began to rear, and I was happy when these rushes were finally completed. I believed I would no longer see the young officer, but I was quite wrong, for he remained nearby, even though the riding sequences were done, becoming friendly with several members of my crew and joining them in our hotel every evening. When I learned that he had even rented a room in our hotel, I was angry. His pushiness merely increased my resistance. Uh, Mariachin, my maid, was supposed to take care of the film wardrobe near my room on the second floor. And when one day I came up to change clothes after shooting, she put her finger on her lips and pointed to the couch where First Lieutenant Jakob, in full uniform, appeared to be asleep. My maid whispered that she had given him headache pills. I took away my clothes in order to change in my room while the girl brought me a bottle of mineral water and departed to her room uh, in a different building. There was a knock at the door, and when I asked who was there, I got no answer. The knocking grew louder, and still there was no response. Then it turned into an ear-splitting pounding. Indignant, I opened the door a crack. Peter stood there. He shoved his boot into the crack, pushed through the door, closed it, and achieved his purpose after some fierce resistance on my part. Never had I known such passion. Never had I been loved so intensely. This experience was so profound that in a way it changed my life. (laughs) It was the beginning of a great love. And when Peter Jacob's leave ended, it was like separating forever. Peter Jacob, Peter Jacob, Jacob. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Wow. Huh. She got, I think they say ravished, ravished. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Jeez. and she was into it again, like a movie, right? Just mm-hmm. pounds on pounds on her door, yeah. sticks his boot in the door, comes in. She's into it. There's a lot of there's a lot of men in her life pounding on the door, making outrageous <laughs> demands. Yeah, yeah, there is. There's an awful yeah. lot. Yeah. There's an awful lot going on. Mm. Um, all right, I am going to try. In the interest of time, I'm going to try to push through here because yeah. we've got a lot, and I and I feel like I painted a pretty good picture. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, of of Lenny so far, um, so great. So they're filming Tiefland. Um, there's this business with the um, the Roma, almost to the end of, the, of her life. Despite overwhelming evidence that the concentration camp occupants had been forced to work on the movie and were later sent to the Auschwitz death camp, Riefenstahl continued to maintain that all the film extras survived. She even sued filmmaker Nina Gladitz, who said Riefenstahl personally chose the extras at their holding camp. She libel laws are different in Europe. Mm-hmm. She had, if I understand it properly, 
she had a lot of lawsuits and she won a lot of libel cases. Oh, really? Um, Gladitz had found one of the Romani survivors and matched his memory with stills of the movie for a documentary Gladitz was filming. The German court ruled largely in favor of Gladitz, declaring that Riefenstahl had known the extras were from a concentration camp, but they also agreed that Riefenstahl had not been informed the Romani would be sent to Auschwitz after filming was was completed. Mm -hmm. Um, This issue came up again in 2002 um, when Riefenstahl was 100 years old she was taken to court by a Roma group for denying the Nazis had exterminated Romani. She apologized and said, I regret that Sinti and Roma people had to suffer during the period of national socialism. It is known today that many of them were murdered in concentration camps. Um, I do have to move us toward the end of the war. I am going to give us, so something really terrible happens to her personally, July, 1944. Um, her father dies hmm. rather young, like in his sixties. Okay. Um, and at the moment she's standing by her father's grave, they attempt to assassinate Hitler. Mm. Right. Yeah. With it, then whatever that's, that's, I think we tell the story of that in, in the union episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, her brother, her brother is killed. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, on the, on the Eastern front. Oh, so he was a combatant, huh? Yeah. Okay. So let me read here at the exact time of the attempted assassination of Hitler. So we're in July of 44. I was at the Dalem forest cemetery attending my father's funeral. My father had died far too prematurely aged only 65. After the funeral, I wanted to visit Speer, hoping to hear something about the miracle weapons. People had recently been talking about so much. But when I entered his office on Peresserplatz, he was just hurrying out of the room. As he flew past me with a quick hello, his secretary told me he had been urgently summoned by Goebbels, but we still knew nothing about the attempt on Hitler's life. And it goes on. Hmm. In Kurzbühel, more terrible news awaited me. My brother had been killed in Russia. His death was gruesome. A grenade had torn him to bits. The disaster occurred at the very same time the, bl- the bomb exploded at the Fuhrer's headquarters, and I stood at my father's grave. I have never fully recovered from my brother's horrible death and still cannot forgive myself for failing to approach Hitler just once in connection with a personal matter, all because I felt inhibited about turning to him in this difficult phase of the war. She could have, she could have asked to bring him back. My brother had fallen victim to internal intrigues. Charged with buying meat on the black market and making pejorative remarks about the war, he had, in fact, been denounced by a colleague employed in my father's business, and the accusation stuck to Heinz like a curse. Hmm. Despite his valor, he was never promoted, and as he wrote me, he was constantly detailed to death commandos for a while, even to a punishment battalion. Hmm. Um. And it goes on. I could go on, but she, um, her father's business, by the way, like took off when she became a big deal. deal. Yeah, like they they sent contracts to him. Like they shoveled shoveled work his way. Yeah, but uh, she views the attempt on Hitler's life as a a tragedy. Is it? Yeah, it's it's a bad day. It's a bad day for her all around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
The war is ending the world. Very few people will will live through an apocalypse the same way that Lenny Riefenstahl will. Right. With so much to lose. And then truly, not just your own life falls around you, but your country, your nation falls around you. Yeah. Yeah. We lost the war. Yeah. Um, I've got a little bit about her last meeting with Hitler. Um, So let's see. One moment. So she's at a, the Grand Hotel in Kitzbühel. A Luftwaffe officer, obviously drunk, dashed toward me with outspread arms and shouted, Lenny, do you remember our night of love? You were as tender as a kitten. I stared speechlessly at this lunatic. In fact, we all halted in our tracks. Then Peter lunged forward and punched him so hard that the officer hit the floor. And while several people attended to the drunken officer, we sat down on the table I was happy that my husband, who was extremely jealous, behaved well and behaved. I believe that I had never before set eyes on the man. Uh, Mm. Let's see. Here we go. How often I have been asked about my impressions of Hitler. This question has always been the one that everybody asks, especially when I was interrogated by the Allies. But it was not easy to describe my reactions to Hitler in those days. On the one hand, I was extremely grateful to him for protecting me against enemies like Goebbels and others and for respecting me as an artist. But I was indignant and ashamed when I returned from the Dolomites in the autumn of 1942 and for the first time saw Jewish people forced to wear a yellow star. It was after the war where I learned from the Allies that they had been taken to concentration camps and exterminated. Although my earlier enthusiasm for Hitler had cooled, the memory of it is was still alive in me and my feelings during our meeting were very mixed many things about him bothered me when hitler spoke of the russians as subhumans for example i was deeply offended by this blanket condemnation of an entire people who had brought forth such great artists i also considered it terrible that hitler found no way of ending this hopeless murderous war and wanted very much to ask him why he never went to look at the bombed german cities but i held my tongue hitler kissed my hand and having tersely greeted my husband, paid no further attention to me. I noticed his shrunken frame, the trembling of his hand, the flickering of his eyes. He had aged years since our last meeting. Yet despite these external signs of decay, he still cast the same magical spell as before, and I could see that the men and women around him were still following his orders blindly. Hmm. During this final meeting, it surprised me that Hitler did not ask my husband a single question. I had assumed he would, want to know in which sectors Peter had fought and why he had been awarded the Knight's Cross, nor did he ask me any questions. Instead, as on that night at the Kaiserhof, he began to talk immediately after greeting us, and he talked for almost an hour. Again, it was a monologue, and all the while he kept restlessly pacing back and forth. It's the meth. Yeah. He seemed... I've had nights like that. He seemed (laughs) preoccupied chiefly with three topics. First, he spoke in detail about the reconstruction of Germany after the war, about how he had commissioned many photographers and specialists to do shots of all artwork, churches, museums, historic buildings, so that they could be precisely reconstructed. That's so sad, dude. Mm. Oof. We're slipping slipping further and further into the realm of delusion. Yeah. Germany, he said grandiloquently, will rise from the ruins more beautiful than before. And he would he continued to talk about Mussolini and then England, at which point, uh, trembling with rage, clenching his fists, he shouted, as sure as I'm standing here, no Englishman will ever set foot on German so- uh, soil. 
Then he launched into a diatribe of hatred against England. He spoke mm. like a spoke like a rebuffed lover. For everyone in his entourage knew how much he had admired the British. It's true. He thought that the British and the Americans would come to their senses, as he described it, and fight on the side of uh, Germany against the communists. Oh, you can, you can, uh, you I, can, yeah, I, I didn't know. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler. <laughs> Hitler was a madman, but not in the way people think. Yeah, like, he was. It, you know, it was read the table talks if you're genuinely curious about mm. what he was actually thinking. Yeah. 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 He figured that the United States and that and that Britain would come to come to their senses and realize that the true enemy was was global communism. Mm. And he was wrong. Yeah. Uh, so and here we yeah. are. He can have more than one enemy. Yep. Yep. You know. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> you certainly can. Yeah, Especially if you're American and you're sitting in the catbird seat waiting for the global order to shift your way after the war, yeah. which is 100% what American foreign policy was during that period. Yeah. We will emerge from this as the more or less the single superpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll let we'll let Russia uh, exhaust itself battering the Germans in the east. Mm-hmm. We'll let Europe exhaust itself batter- battling them in the west. We'll drop the nukes and we'll end the war and yeah, we will be I, the superpower. Yeah. I mean, your America, there's a sense in which this stuff ain't your problem. Yeah, there's a bit of that. There's you know what I mean? Yep. It's, like, it's not it's happening not, over there. Yep. It's not yeah. your problem until they want it to be. Right. Until we right. want it to be. Yeah. But yeah. this is not a World War II podcast. No, no, no. Nope. nope. It is not. Any, it I is don't not. have any interesting opinions about it, really. All right. I am going to blast through the remainder here. Uh, Brad, I hope you're having a good time. Yeah. This I hope is you're interesting, enjoying man. this. Yeah. yeah you're, I hope you're learning a lot about Lenny. Definitely I am. find her story extraordinarily moving. Um, so. Uh, as Germany Germany's military situation became impossible by early 1945, Riefenstahl left Berlin and was hitchhiking with a group of men trying to reach her mother wow. when she was taken into custody by American troops. She walked out of a holding camp, beginning a series of escapes and arrests across a wasteland, the wasteland of Central Europe. Finally, she made it back home on a bicycle where she found American troops had seized her house. She was surprised at how kindly they treated her. Now, she goes on trial. Mm. Novelist and sports writer Bud Schulberg was assigned by the USS Navy to the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, uh, for intelligence work while attached to John Ford's documentary unit. He was ordered to arrest Riefensahl at her chalet in Kitzbühel, ostensibly to have her uh, identify Nazi war criminals in German film footage captured by the Allied troops shortly after the war. Mm. We got to round up these Nazis, these Nazis, yeah. right? Where they go to Argentina. Mm. Um, Riefenstahl said she was not aware of the nature of the internment camps. According to Schulberg, she gave me the usual song and dance. She said, "Of course, you know, I'm really so misunderstood. I'm not political." <laughs> it's so funny. Makes triumph of the will. Right. Claims not to be political for the rest of her life. Like, okay, all right, yeah, that's uh, that's a cop out to me. Yeah, you're. It's your. Yeah. that's a a bit of a bit of a stretch in, in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Um, Riefenstahl said she was fascinated uh, by the Nazis, but was also politically naive, remaining ignorant about war crimes. Throughout forty five and forty eight. She was held by various Allied-controlled prison camps across Germany. She was also put under house arrest. Um, 
for a period of time. She lived in um, Innsbruck and had at this point some, this is where the, the marriage ended. There was just too much strain. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've got uh, just a brief thing about that. He was, he was pretty um, abusive. Uh, if I'm nah. not, I'm not mistaken. Well, that um, seems to be kind of her style, frankly. Right. Right. Let's see. Of all my post-war experiences, the weeks I spent in the Innsbruck prison were the most taxing. Apart from going to the toilet, I was never once permitted to leave the cell for hours, and for hours on an end, I dozed on my straw mattress, lost to all feeling. I had no communication with the other prisoners, except for the doctor, who was always accompanied by a sentry. The prison guard who brought me food was the only person I could speak to. He was an ugly man of indefinable age whose ears stuck out and whose small gray eyes were strangely blurred and expressionless. This man always stared at me whenever he brought me food. One day he said, today someone else jumped out of the window, a famous actor from Vienna. That makes Hmm. three. Do you know his name? I asked, but the man merely shrugged. Just to give you an idea of the the state that she fell to. I mean, she was being kept in prison, like in yeah. solitary practically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So let me get a little bit about what happened. Um, yeah. So she and her husband are having a, a falling out and mm-hmm. finally, you know, managed to get a, well, here it is. So she has, she was having a terrible time. Um, let me see. I want to make sure I get, um, she's being kept at an institution here. Uh, I think they arrive at a large building and uh, with two Frenchmen, uh, she was basically, she was received in a bear hall by a physician and a nurse. The Frenchman signed papers. She's left alone with the nurse who took my case and led me into a small room. Now listen to this. When she left, I saw that there were iron bars in the window and that the wash basin was also behind bars. I had obviously been brought to a closed institution. She's taken to a, like an asylum. Hmm. My protests were useless. The nurses shrugged and the doctors who examined me the next day said, you've been brought here at the orders of the French military government to be treated for your depression. Hmm. In despair, I asked the doctor to let me go home, but it was hopeless. I was locked up once again, this time in an insane asylum. I have retained very little about this black episode. I recall being led through long, dark corridors, hearing loud shrieks, and one of the nurses saying, that was Paula Bush, the one from the circus. I was Mm -hmm. taken to a room where a skinny girl with a pallid face lay strapped to a bench. She let out blood-curdling screams while her body twisted up and down. Then I was given electroconvulsive therapy. Jeez which I remember only dimly because I perhaps because I was first given tranquilizing injections. Why had I been locked up in a mental institution? Was I to be certified or even done away with Mm. a long time later, a French film artist sent me a letter, which is still in my possession. He explained that influential groups in Paris were fighting over the ownership of my films. And I was to be kept in safe custody as long as possible. So she was freed after, uh, three months and, um, so let's see here. Uh, she right said that my confinement in the closed ward of the psychiatric clinic in Freiburg had been necessary because of my depressive frame of mind. A, f- a shadow fell across my path and I saw that someone was standing waiting for me. It was my husband. She's let out. I was taken aback for after beginning the divorce proceedings, I hadn't expected to, to see him again so soon. 
he took me by the arm and said, Herr Wohl sent me, uh, lent me his car. I'm driving you to Königsfeld. During the drive, we were too inhibited to talk much, but Peter hesitantly told me that the divorce had already been granted in Constance by the state court of Baden. He had raised no objection to it, but he hoped this would not mean a complete separation. I wouldn't hmm. want to uh, wouldn't like to lose you, he said. I know I've done a lot of things to you, but you have to believe that I've always loved you. After a pause, he went on, please, Lenny, give me another chance. I promise you that I'll change. I couldn't listen to him. He had made this promise far too often, and I had believed him far too often. I can't stand it anymore. I'm going crazy, I said, weeping. I was so afraid that I would give in again that I felt like jumping out of the car. I still cared too much too much for him. Peter tried to calm me down. I want to help you, he said. You need help now, and you need a friend. I'll wait, and I'll always be there whenever you need me. Two, two hours later, he delivered me to my mother, who was overjoyed, and then he drove back to Villingen. Yeah, so they had a mm. they struggled with the relationship, and it was was not to be. They get the divorce. Yeah. Um. So she was tried four times by post war authorities for denazification, and eventually found to be a fellow traveler, Mittlaufer, yeah. who sympathized mm. with the Nazis. Well, never an official member of the Nazi Party, she was always seen in association due to the propaganda film she made in Nazi Germany. I mean, yeah, you made the pre the top propaganda film. I, I, I you. Sorry, you, you're not dodging those charges. Nope. I don't see nope. how you do. Yeah. Those are going to, those are going to 100% going to stick. Mm -hmm. Over the years, she filed and won over 50 libel cases against people who had accused her of complicity with Nazi crimes. Mm. Riefenstahl said that her biggest regret in life was meeting Hitler, declaring it was the biggest catastrophe of my life. Until the day I die, people will keep saying, Lenny is a Nazi. And I'll keep saying, but what did I do? You know, but mm. what did she do? Mm -hmm. Even though she went, on to win up to 50 libel cases, details about her relation to the Nazi party generally remain unclear. Mm -hmm. Shortly before she died, uh, she voiced her final words on the subject of her connection to Hitler in a BBC in interview. I was one of millions who thought Hitler had all the answers. We saw only the good things. We didn't know the bad things were to come. We didn't know mm -hmm. bad things were, were to come. All right. Yeah. See, I'll so accept, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'll accept that mm -hmm. more than I'll accept the like, but I never really did anything kind of thing. You know sure. what I mean? Like I can, right. I can sympathize with somebody kind of getting caught up, not totally understanding the implications and then history unravels rather than like, um, I told Hitler that I didn't like him for his racism and I never did anything for the Nazi right. party except right. make this huge propaganda film. Sure. <laughs> sure. Right. right. Mm. Yeah. You can't reverse engineer excuses onto this stuff. Right. Um, right. You know, you could sure try, though. Yeah, your best right. bet is to be like, I'm an idiot who made mistakes that I regret. That's your best bet. Sure. And yeah. I regret meeting him. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So we've got thwarted film projects and Lenny is about as canceled as anybody's ever been canceled at this point. <laughs> right, right. You think you've been canceled? Yeah. You haven't been canceled. You right. weren't canceled the way Lenny Riefenstahl was canceled. Germany was canceled. Yeah. The entire yeah. country was canceled. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to blast through here, Brad. Most of Riefenstahl's mm -hmm. unfinished projects were lost toward the end of the war. The French government confiscated all of her editing equipment along with the production reels of Tiefland. After years of legal wrangling, these were returned to her, but the French government had reportedly damaged some of the film stock whilst trying to develop and edit it, with a few key scenes being missing. Although Riefenstahl was surprised to find the original negatives for Olympia in the same shipment. During the filming of Olympia, Riefenstahl was funded by the state to create her own production company in her own name, Riefenstahl Film, uh, which was uninvolved 
with her most influential works. She edited and dubbed the remaining material and Tiefland premiered on the 11th of February of 1954 in Stuttgart. However, it was denied entry into the Cannes Film Festival. Canceled. Mm-hmm. Although Riefenstahl lived for another uh, half century, Tiefland was her last feature film. And that's based on an opera. Mm-hmm. Riefenstahl tried many times to make more films in the 50s and 60s, but was met with resistance, public protests, and sharp criticism. Many of her filmmaking peers in Hollywood had fled Nazi Germany and were unsympathetic to her. You could leave. Yeah. You could yeah. have left. Right. Yeah, for sure. Right. Although both film professionals and investors were willing to support her work, most of the projects she attempted were stopped owing to ever-renewed and highly negative publicity about her past work in Nazi Germany. In 1954, Jean Cocteau, who greatly admired the film, insisted on Tiefland being shown at the Cannes Film Festival, which he was running that year. In 1960, Riefenstahl attempted to prevent filmmaker Erwin Leiser from juxtaposing scenes from Triumph of the Will with footage from concentration camps in his film Mein Kampf. So we've got some business where she meets Jean Cocteau and they have a correspondence that's kind of nice. It's not a total uh, desert for for Lenny, but it's not great. Right. Riefenstahl had high hopes for a collaboration with Cocteau called Friedrich und Voltaire, wherein Cocteau was to play two roles, though they thought the film might symbolize the love-hate relationship between Germany and France. Cocteau's illness uh, and death in 1963 put an end to the project. A musical remake of The Blue Light with an English production company also fell apart. This is right around the time where she meets, or at least at least collaborates with, LRH, L. Ron Hubbard. Ah, okay. Which, which we're, we're talking talk about, about in the After Dark. After Dark, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Mick Jagger. And we're going to talk about the witch, the mountain witch that uh, saved her film career. It's going to be good. Yeah. For Patreon. All right. So we've got kind of two more big, incredible artistic turns for Lenny, uh, which we won't dwell on as exhaustively as we have um, the mm-hmm. earlier stuff. But the first one is Africa and the Nuba. Mm-hmm. And the second one uh, is underwater photography. Mm-hmm. So she started going to uh, Africa in the 50s, but it was really in the 60s she became interested in Africa from Ernest Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa oh. and from the photographs of George Roger. Hmm. Uh, she visited Kenya for the first time in 56 and later Sudan, where she photographed Nuba tribes with whom she sporadically lived. Hmm. So this footage is amazing in that hmm. documentary I keep mentioning. You've got little old Lenny Riefenstahl and her assistant, her cameraman, Horst Kettner, who is 40 years her junior. He was born in 1944. Wow. They were together from the time she was 60 and yeah. he was 20. Wow. Okay? Yeah. And th- that relationship worked. They had a working relationship yeah. and, as far as I can tell, an intimate relationship. Interesting. Okay. 40 years her junior. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what to make of that. Mm. That's a, that's a hell of an age gap and a pretty unexpected partnership. It but is. they made it work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He must so have she, stared. He must have stared at her. <laughs> did he? Did he stare <laughs> at her? My, you know, in the memoirs, she's looking for somebody to come work with her. Sure. She needs like an assistant. You know, mm-hmm. and it makes sense that for her, it would be somebody who could assist in her vision of 
film and photography. Of you course, know, yeah. and she's not yeah. she's not a young person anymore. No. So she needs somebody who's like sort of able bodied and capable of, you know. Yeah, um, someone's gonna have to schlep the bags as you're, you know, following yeah. the nuba around. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think it was something like we're gonna go on a, like a lifelong adventure. It's mm. sort of it's sort of sweet, uh, yeah. to be honest. Um, yeah. Here's how here's her description of it of him. Then something happened to cheer me up. Late one night, I was dictating letters when the telephone rang. It was Horst Kettner, whom I had forgotten all about. Half an hour later, he was in my apartment. I welcomed a rather shy young man, very tall, slim, and attractive, whose face inspired my trust from the very first moment. Tactfully, I tried to find out about his background, and in broken German, he told me he was the child of German parents but had grown up in Czechoslovakia. He had been working in Germany for the past two years. My name meant nothing to him. He had never heard of me. It was his interest in Africa, which had prompted him to get in touch with me. When I was forced to tell him that I could afford to pay only his traveling expenses and the necessary insurance fees, but no salary, he didn't care. Hmm. He accepted my offer without hesitation. Hmm. Okay. So kind of. There you go. All yeah. right. Yeah. So she goes down to Africa, meets with the, meets with the Nuba, stays with them, is photographing them, which you have to like ingratiate yourself to these communities. You can't just mm -hmm. go in with a camera and start snapping. Right. She tried to make a film called the Schwarze Fracht or the, the black freight, the black cargo mm. about modern slavery. Mm. Uh, the film was never realized. Um, however, she was able to sell the stills from the expedition to magazines in various parts of the world. Sure. Well, scouting shooting locations, she almost died from injuries received in a truck accident. So there's a truck accident when at one point mm. um, she describes it as like they crash. She doesn't remember what happens next. She remembers waking up in a hospital. Yeah. Um, yeah. After waking up from a coma in a Nairobi hospital, boy, and getting in a getting in an accident like that in Africa, that just hits different from like maybe it happening in cleveland mm. you just sort of feel like oof, i'm really out here here we yeah. are right yeah if you get stuck yeah. there for six months in a coma mm -hmm. you know or you got to lay up there that's something else mm -hmm. anyway so mm -hmm. she she wrote the script for the black cargo there um but she was thwarted by uncooperative locals the suez canal crisis and bad weather so the film project was called off she was nevertheless granted Sudanese citizenship for her services to the country, um, becoming the first foreigner to receive a Sudanese passport. So wow. if if Lenny Riefenstahl's a racist, she's a very unusual racist. Yeah, I guess so, huh? I'll just say that. Okay. Mm. Very good. Um so she's she's these this is where the books um come out, but they they weren't published until uh 1947. And these sorry. are the books. Mm -hmm. 40, 47? Wait. Oh, no, no. 74. Sorry. It's been oh, okay. a long episode. No, no, no I, get you, I got you. I yep, yep, sure yep. got that. 74. 74. We're, we're, we're blasting into the future here. Mm. Um, and she published these books, um, Di Nuba, or The Last of the Nuba, uh, and uh, The Nuba People of Cow. And this is where Susan Sontag released this like famous um, piece of criticism about these books, leveling them um, as examples of Lenny's fascist aesthetic. And they're just they're pictures of these African tribes people wrestling and dancing. And uh, Sontag says, of course, you know, this is Lenny uh, doing what Lenny does, which is um, elevating the 
the body, elevating beauty, elevating to a degree, you know, sort of orchestrated violence. Um, that's that's yeah. fascist. Yeah, according to Susan Sontag. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what fascism. I'm going to put it out there. I don't know what fascism means anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. I just don't. I don't. Right. Because <laughs> I've heard I've heard literally almost everything called fascism at one time or another. Now it's right. taking pictures of dudes wrestling is fascist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have it here. <clears throat> um, I, I mean, I think Susan Sontag is brilliant, actually. I, I, I haven't read this about I haven't mm-hmm. read this part of the mm-hmm. of Sontag's writing because she's got a ton of stuff. But I do think mm-hmm. Susan Sontag is brilliant. But this criticism yeah. seems uh, awkward to me. You know, you could it in a funny way. It's almost like anything that uh, that Lenny would put out would mm-hmm. probably receive mistreatment. Mm-hmm. You can find this a PDF of this online uh, of of Sontag's uh, article, which is called "Fascinating Fascism." Uh, so. Let's see here. Fascist aesthetics include, but go far beyond the rather special celebration of the primitive to be found in the last of the new, but more generally, they flow from and justify a preoccupation with situations of control, submissive behavior, extravagant effort, and the endurance of pain. They endorse two seemingly opposite states, egomania and servitude. This is Sontag, of course. Mm. The relations of domination and enslavement take the form of a characteristic pageantry. The massing of groups of people, the turning of people into things, the multiplication or replication of things, and the regrouping of people slash things around an all-powerful hypnotic leader figure or force. The fascist dramaturgy centers on the orgiastic transactions between mighty forces and their puppets, uniformly garbed and shown in ever-swelling numbers. Its choreography alternates between ceaseless motion and a congealed static virile posing. Fascist art glorifies surrender. It exalts mindlessness. It glamorizes death. All right. I'm going to say yeah. she probably has a little bit of a political uh, and maybe even an like, ethnic ethnic bone to pick there with yeah. uh, with old Lenny. So we'll leave that controversy aside and just say that this was yeah. a, a pretty well um, received book of, of photography. It wasn't just totally, uh, you know, uh, it put her back on the scene. Okay. Right. Okay. And this is where, you know. I mean, Eudora Welty review, reviewed Dinuba positively for the New York Times, um, you know, and she said uh, she uses the light purposefully, the full blinding brightness to make us see the all-absorbing blackness of the skin, the ray of light slanting down from the single hole high in the wall. That is the doorway of the circular house, which which tells us how secret and safe it has been made. The first dawn like light streaking the face of a calf in the sleeping camp where the young men go to live which suggests their world apart. All the pictures bring us the physical beauty of the people, a young girl shy and mischievous of face with a bead sewn into her lower lip like a permanent cinnamon drop, a wrestler prepared for his match with his shaven head turned to look over the massive shoulder, all skin color taken away by a coating of ashes. Hmm. Art Directors Club of Germany awarded Riefenstahl a gold medal for the best photographic achievement of 1975. All right. Okay. So... She photographed the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich and rock star Mick Jagger, along with his wife, Bianca, for the Sunday Times. We'll talk about it in the after dark. Years later, uh, Riefenstahl photographed Siegfried and Roy. Oh, which her, is fun. her culminating artistic achievement. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> she was also a guest of honor at the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal. Hmm, um, okay. She lied about her age to get a scuba license. 
because she got interested in underwater photography. She had to pretend to be 50. Wow. Right. She was probably the oldest active, uh, active scuba diver in the world, or it's certainly one of the like 10 oldest at the time that she was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, she's not done, right? In Mm. 1978, she published a book of her subaquatic photographs, which was all in partnership with uh, Kettner, called Korallengarten, or Coral Gardens, Mm. followed by the 1990 book Wunter unter Wasser, which is fun to say, Wonder Underwater. Yeah. Uh, On the 22nd of August, 2002, for her 100th birthday, she released the film Impressionen unter Wasser, Underwater Impressions, an idealized documentary of life in the oceans and her first film in over 25 years. Wow. This lady just will not die, huh? Nope. Crazy. She got she lived to see 9-11, man. That's... <laughs> yep. Wow. Riefenstahl was a member of Greenpeace for eight years. You know, she's probably, she's one of the few people in 2001 when the towers got hit. She's probably like, yeah. reminds me of Hitler. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I was expecting yeah. the phone to ring. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I just love that. Um, so in, in it was in 87 that the memoir came out. Okay. Um, in the 90s, we get the wonderful, horrible life of Lenny Riefenstahl. Mm. There was some like argument on the, like she even, it was just, apparently it got a little funny when they were shooting it because like, she would tell them how to light her. She was right. like almost kind of like trying to take the movie over a little bit. It's a wonderful documentary. It, it gives a very balanced and rounded mm. um, biography of Lenny Riefenstahl. And if you're looking for something to augment this episode of Art of Darkness, I would recommend that. And I'd recommend, mm. like I said, the memoir. Those yeah. two alone um, are enough. Um, so... <laughs> In the year 2000, she went back to the sedan um, to check in on the Nuba. There was some, there was a civil war. She's 98 years old or whatever. Okay. 97 years old. Holy crap. Listen to this. Lenny Riefenstahl. This is from a newspaper. The 97 year old German photographer and filmmaker best known for her Nazi propaganda films has survived a helicopter crash (laughs) in sedan. (laughs) <laughs> Riefenstahl was returning from a trip to the Nuba Mountains with her companion Hurst Kettner when the their aircraft was forced to land 350 kilometers from the Sydney's capital Khartoum. She suffered two broken ribs while Kettner sustained injuries to his eyes and shoulders. Holy Whoa. smokes. Yep. Wow. I, I don't know about you, but at 97, I ain't getting in any helicopters. No. Man. Did she just like kick her way? Out? I just imagine her kicking her way out of the wreckage. She's a <laughs> Stacy, dude. She is. She does yeah. not. Lenny Riefenstahl did not give a fuck, dude. Oh, she just wow. went so hard, man. I mean, wow. at 97, I might still be doing Art of Darkness with you, Brad. That's yeah, but hope. I mean, this involves my sitting hope. in one place. Right, you know? right, right. There'd be more right. bathroom breaks, probably. Mm, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, there should be a <laughs> just be a catheter there'll be a bucket at that point <laughs> paints a picture yeah. they can only they can't see us above the waist that's here. true you gotta remember yeah. that and they certainly true. can't hear us they can't no. or, or below the yeah. waist rather yeah right. they can't yeah, yeah. okay all right, yeah. right. Yeah. everything is above the waist on art of darkness that's right um all right bringing this bringing this sucker home brad wow you've that been a, helicopter you've been crash a is wild You've been a champion. This has been an amazing story, man. I I really am happy that you like it, man. So, and we're going to have some really fun stuff on the after dark. So we've come to, unfortunately, but she lived a good long life to her death. 
She celebrated her 101st birthday on the 22nd of August, 2003, at a hotel in Faldafing on Lake Starnberg, Bavaria, near her home. Hmm. The day after her birthday celebration, she became ill. She had been dealing with cancer. Uh, Riefenstahl had been suffering from cancer for some time and her health rapidly deteriorated during the last weeks of her life. Kettner said in an interview in 2002, Ms. Riefenstahl is in great pain and she has become very weak and is taking painkillers. Riefenstahl died in her sleep at around 10 p.m. on the 8th of September 2003 at her home in Pücking, Germany. After her death, there was a varied response in the obituary pages of leading publications, although most recognized her technical breakthroughs in filmmaking. Gisela Jan, Lenny Riefenstahl's former secretary and sole heir, donated the mm-hmm. estate bequeathed to her to the Prussian Cultural Russian or Cultural, sorry, <laughs> Russian Cultural Heritage Foundation. The estate included f- photographs, films, manuscripts, letters, files, and documents dating back to the 20s. Film scholar Mark Cousins notes in his book, The Story of Film, next to Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock, Lenny Riefenstahl was the most technically talented Western filmmaker of Mm. her era. For that reason alone, despite being uh, problematic, everybody should know about her wonderful, horrible life. Wow. Yeah, man. You're welcome. 100% agreed that this is an important story for people to know if you want to understand the the cultural history of the 20th century, for sure. Um, Yeah, 100. I can't get over this. 97 years old or whatever, getting in helicopter crashes and just what a what a powerful lady. Holy smokes. I'm going to give her the last word here from her memoir. Before completing my manuscript, I asked friends to point out any mistakes or unclear passages in my presentation. I learned that some people were surprised when I gave the exact dates of many events, above all when I quoted Hitler, Goebbels, and many others verbatim. I was advised to admit omit such direct quotations, since I no longer have any documentary evidence of the precise wording. After mulling over these objections, I decided that I had to write in that way. Nevertheless, such criticism had induced me to explain to my readers who might have similar reactions, how I am able to render these utterances verbatim. Mm. Hitler has so left his mark on my life that I can still remember every single word of my conversations with him and with the most important people in his entourage. Very often I describe those meetings later to members of my staff and friends, even more often after the war. I had to repeat those conversations to American and French authorities, both military and civil, in the course of repeated interrogations during the years of my imprisonment. Most of these interrogations were taken down and the transcripts were signed by me. How could I repeat anything differently now? I have to abide by my earlier detailed statements, if only to protect myself against the possibility that documents signed by me might suddenly emerge from archives in Washington or Paris. The events of those years run before my eyes like a film over and over again, and I am repeatedly confronted with the past, even today. Furthermore, when I was young, I made almost daily entries in my diary. After the war, irreplaceable notes and documents were either taken from me or were lost. During the 1950s, the French gave me back a number of documents and files and correspondence which had been confiscated and kept in Paris for many years. In this way, with the help of my friends, many of whom were witnesses to my presentation and who collect everything that is published about me anywhere in the world, I was able to rebuild a vast archive without which I could never have written my story. 
My aim was to tackle preconceived ideas and to clear up misunderstandings. And I spent five years working on the manuscript. It was not an easy task since I was the only one who could write these memoirs. It did not turn out to be a happy one. Mm. Yeah, I guess not. Wow. And here's the epigraph she put for her memoir. So many things have been written about me, masses of insolent lies and inventions that I would have perished long ago had I paid any attention. One must take comfort in the fact that time has a sieve through which most trivia run off into the sea of oblivion. Mm. Albert Einstein. Ah, okay. Wow. So you should put, say, a Jewish fellow uh, as right. the epigraph for her for her memoir. Right. Yeah. Wow. What a what an interesting story, man. You did a fantastic job with that. You really gave us the full picture. Much appreciated. Oof. I was excited about that one. What do you think she's doing now? I mean, she she died like twenty ish years ago. I, I mean, if she was if she was alive now in her prime, I really I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, the the, the trick with her is she's so sort of multifaceted that yeah, you, know, you know, okay, she's not going to be dancing anymore, just age wise, right? Uh, let's just put that though she might if she could physically. But I mean, she kind of had to give up acting. You know, part of the thing when she was making the propaganda films, it seemed like she wanted to get back into acting. So you wonder if she would have maybe tried to follow that route a little bit more. I think she'd have her own film production company and she'd be making movies. That That's a, Probably. That's a tricky question for her because she yeah. was not a one trick pony. Right. Exactly. Like if, Lenny, exactly. if Lenny at 20 came back, she'd probably go be a dancer. Right, right. Right. Sure. Yeah. That would seem to be. 40 her. came back, she'd be a filmmaker. She'd be doing something yeah. artistic and hopefully Absolutely. steering all the way away from politics. Yeah. Just don't mess with politics at all. <laughs> yeah. Just, don't make. Right. This is, this is part of the reason. I mean, this, this whole episode is a great, great touch point for art artists to like, don't make propaganda. You right. Know, you can't. Right. You're, yeah, yeah. If like and, Northrop Grumman and like mm-hmm. or uh, whatever, any of these like military arms manufacturers are like behind financing something mm-hmm. that you're involved in, you yeah. really gotta like ask yourself what you're doing. You gotta look at right. where the money comes from. And unfortunately, right. a lot of like the institutions, yeah, like opera and the theater, it's all tangled up together. It's all tangled up with yeah. that stuff. So what are you gonna do? Right, right. You know, right. It's yeah. just a lot more dispersed now. Yeah, so right, you, exactly. you know, there's not a Hitler pointing a finger, but like right. you're still like, yeah, it's still like, well, who actually write who underwrites this grant that's just yeah. named the so and so, right? The, you know, this, yeah, the Miss Maples Foundation, like, but right. under you know, underneath right. it's 30% funded by some demon, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, Ugh. so anyway, glad I don't make any money off of art. Hey, <laughs> it'd be a good problem to have. No, you make some money off. You got your bit. book spread. You yeah, got a book. Yeah. You got another novel yeah. coming. I got my plays. Yeah. We're rocking mm-hmm. and rolling. We're we got doing Art it. of Darkness Live coming. We're doing the yeah. thing. And I Absolutely. need you. I need you listeners to go to patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Sign up. Subscribe. After Dark, we're going to talk about three fun things. L. Ron Hubbard and Lenny, which is super surprising. That's like that's not crazy. anything I would have expected. No, me neither. We're going to talk about the Mountain Witch who saved her, her film it. career. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Mick Jagger. Very cool. All of those are cool. Yeah. All of those are great. Okay. 
Well, and so now I'm going to go and uh, let me see here. I'm going to go over to my uh, I'm going to go over to my search engine here yeah. and my government search engine, and I'm going yeah. to Control F Hitler. <laughs> Hitler. Yeah, he's got dark eyes, almost black. <laughs> Hold the fort. Oh,